This is Audible. Sci-Fi Audio presents Rise of Empire by Michael J. Sullivan. Narrated by Tim Jared Reynolds and directed by Erica Jensen. Book 3. Nephron Rising. Chapter 1. The Empress. Amelia made the mistake of looking back into Edith Mon's eyes. She had never meant to. She had never planned on raising her stare from the floor. But Edith startled her, and she looked up without thinking. The headmaid would consider her action defiance, a sign of rebellion in the ranks of the scullery. Amelia had never looked into Edith's eyes before, and doing so now, she wondered if a soul lurked behind them. If so, it must be cowering, or dead, rotting like a late autumn apple. That would explain her smell. Edith had a sour scent, vaguely rancid, as if something had gone bad. This'll be another tenant withheld from your pay, the rotund woman said. You're digging quite a hole, ain't you? Edith was big and broad and missing any sign of a neck. Her huge anvil of a head sat squarely on her shoulders. By contrast, Amelia barely existed. Small and pear-shaped, with a plain face and long, lifeless hair, she was part of the crowd, one of the faces no one paused to consider, neither pretty nor grotesque enough to warrant a second glance. Unfortunately, her invisibility failed when it came to the palace's head maid, Edith Mon. I didn't break it. Mistake number two, Amelia thought. A meaty hand slapped Amelia's face, ringing ears and watering eyes. Go on, Edith enticed her with a sweet tone, and then whispered, Lie to me again. Gripping the washbasin to steady herself, Amelia felt heat blossom on her cheek. Her gaze now followed Edith's hand, and when it rose again, Amelia flinched. With a snicker, Edith ran her plump fingers through Amelia's hair. No tangles, Edith observed. I can see how you spend your time instead of doing your work. You're hoping to catch the eye of the butcher? Maybe that saucy little man who delivers the wood. I saw you talking to him. Know what they sees when they looks at you? They sees an ugly scullery maid is what? A wretched, filthy gutter snipe who smells of lye and grease. They'd rather pay for a whore than get you for nothing. You'd be better off spending more time on your tasks. If you did, I wouldn't have to beat you so often. Amelia felt Edith winding her hair, twisting and tightening it around her fist. It's not like I enjoy hurting you. She pulled until Amelia winced. But you have to learn. Edith continued pulling Amelia's hair, forcing her head back until only the ceiling was visible. You're slow, stupid, and ugly. That's why you're still in the scullery. I can't make your laundry maid, much less a parlour or a chambermaid. You'd embarrass me, understand? Amelia remained quiet. I said, do you understand? 
Yes? Say you're sorry for chipping the plate. I'm sorry for chipping the plate. And you're sorry for lying about it? Yes. Edith roughly patted Amelia's burning cheek. That's a good girl. I'll add the cost to your tally. Now, as for punishment... She let go of Amelia's hair and tore the scrub brush from her hand, measuring its weight. She usually used a belt. The brush would hurt more. Edith would drag her to the laundry where the big cook couldn't see. The head cook had taken a liking to Amelia, and while Edith had every right to discipline her girls, Ibus would not stand for it in his kitchen. Amelia waited for a fat hand to grab her wrist, but instead Edith stroked her head. Such long hair, she said at length. It's your hair that's getting in the way, isn't it? It's making you think too much of yourself. Well, I know just how to fix both problems. You're going to look real pretty when I... The kitchen fell silent. Cora, who had been incessantly plunging her butter churn, paused in mid-stroke. The cooks stopped chopping, and even Nipper, who was stacking wood near the stoves, froze. Amelia followed their gaze to the stairs. A noblewoman, adorned in white velvet and satin, glided down the steps and entered the steamy stench of the scullery. Piercing eyes and razor-thin lips stood out against a powdered face. The woman was tall and, unlike Amelia, who had a hunched posture, stood straight and proud. She moved immediately to the small table along the wall where the baker was preparing bread. Clear this, she ordered with a wave of her hand, speaking to no one in particular. The baker immediately scooped his utensils and dough into his apron and hurried away. Scrub it clean, the lady insisted. Amelia felt the brush thrust back into her hand, and a push sent her stumbling forward. She didn't look up, and went right to work making large swirls of flour-soaked film. Nipper was beside her in an instant with a bucket, and Vella arrived with a towel. Together they cleared the mess while the woman watched with disdain. Two chairs, the lady barked, and Nipper ran off to fetch them. Uncertain what to do next, Amelia stood in place, watching the lady, holding the dripping brush at her side. When the noblewoman caught her staring, Amelia quickly looked down, and a movement caught her eye. A small grey mouse froze beneath the baker's table, trying to conceal itself in the shadows. Taking a chance, it snatched a morsel of bread and disappeared through a small crack. What a miserable creature, she heard the lady say. Amelia thought she was referring to the mouse until she added, You're making a filthy puddle on the floor. Go away. Before retreating to her wash basin, Amelia attempted a pathetic curtsy. A flurry of orders erupted from the woman, each announced with perfect diction. Vella, Cora, and even Edith went about setting the table as if for a royal banquet. Vella draped a white tablecloth, and Edith started setting out silverware, only to be shooed away as the woman carefully placed each piece herself. Soon the table was elegantly set for two, 
complete with multiple goblets and linen napkins. Amelia could not imagine who could be dining there. No one would set a table for the servants, and why would a noble come to the kitchen to eat? Here now, what's all this about? Amelia heard the deep, familiar voice of Ibis Thinley. The old sea cook was a large, barrel-chested man with bright blue eyes and a thin beard that wreathed the line of his chin. He had spent the morning meeting with farmers, yet he still wore his ever-present apron. The grease-stained wrap was his uniform, his mark of office. He barged into the kitchen like a bear returning to his cave to find mischief afoot. When he spotted the lady, he stopped. "'I am Lady Constance,' the noblewoman informed him. "'In a moment I will be bringing Empress Modena here. "'If you are the cook, then prepare food.' "'The lady paused a moment to study the table critically. "'She adjusted the positions of a few items, then turned and left. "'Leaf, get a knife on that roasted lamb,' Ibis shouted. "'Cora, fetch cheese.' Bella, get bread. Nipper, straighten that woodpile. The Empress? Cora exclaimed as she raced for the pantry. What's she doing coming here? Leaf asked. There was anger in his voice, as if an unwelcome, no-account relative was dropping by, and he was the inconvenienced lord of the manor. Amelia had heard of the Empress, but had never seen her, not even from a distance. Few had. She'd been coronated in a private ceremony over half a year earlier on Wintertide, and her arrival in Equesta had changed everything. King Ethelred no longer wore his crown, and was addressed as Regent instead of Your Majesty. He still ruled over the castle, only now it was referred to as the Imperial Palace. The other one, Regent Soldor, had made all the changes— Originally from Melangar, the former bishop had taken up residence and set builders working day and night on the great hall and throne room. Solder had also declared new rules that all the servants had to follow. The palace staff could no longer leave the grounds, unless escorted by one of the new guards, and all outgoing letters were read and needed to be approved. The latter edict was hardly an issue, as few servants could write. The restriction on going outside the palace, however, was a hardship to almost everyone. Many with families in the city or surrounding farms chose to resign, because they could no longer return home each night. Those remaining at the castle never heard from them again. Regent Solder had successfully isolated the palace from the outside world, but inside rumours and gossip ran wild. Speculations flourished in out-of-the-way corridors that giving notice was as unhealthy as attempting to sneak away. The fact that no one ever saw the Empress ignited its own set of speculations. Everyone knew she was the heir of the original legendary Emperor Novron, and therefore a child of the god Meribor. This had been proven when she had been the only one capable of slaying the beast that had slaughtered dozens of a land's greatest knights. That she had previously been a farm girl from a small village confirmed that in the eyes of Meribor all were equal. Rumours concluded 
that she had ascended to the state of a spiritual being, and only the regents and her personal secretary ever stood in her divine presence. That must be who the noblewoman is, Amelia thought. The lady with the sour face and perfect speech was the imperial secretary to the empress. They soon had an array of the best food they could muster in a short time laid out on the table. Nob, the baker, and Leaf, the butcher, disputed the placement of dishes, each wanting his wares in the centre. Cora, Ibis said, put your pretty cake of cheese in the middle. This brought a smile and blush to the dairymaid's face, and scowls from Leaf and Nob. Being a scullion, Amelia had no more part to play and returned to her dishes. Edith was chatting excitedly in the corner near the stack of oak kegs with the tapster and the cup-bearer, and all the servants were straightening their outfits and running fingers through their hair. Nipper was still sweeping when the lady returned. Once more, everyone stopped and watched as she led a thin young girl by the wrist. Sit down, Lady Constance ordered in her brisk tone. Everyone peered past the two women, trying to catch the first glimpse of the god-queen. Two well-armoured guards emerged and took up positions on either side of the table, but no one else appeared. Where is the Empress? Modina, I said, sit down, Lady Constance repeated. Shock rippled through Amelia. Modina? This waif of a child is the Empress? The girl didn't appear to hear Lady Constance and stood limp with a blank expression. She looked to be a teenager, delicate and deathly thin. Once she might have been pretty, but what remained was an appalling sight. The girl's face was white as bone, her skin thin and stretched, revealing the detailed outline of her skull beneath. Her ragged blonde hair fell across her face. She wore only a thin white smock, which added to the girl's ghostly appearance. Lady Constance sighed and forced the girl into one of the chairs at the baker's table. Like a doll, the girl allowed herself to be moved. She said nothing, and her eyes stared blankly. Place the napkin in your lap this way. Lady Constance carefully opened and laid the linen with deliberate movements. She waited, glaring at the Empress, who sat oblivious. As Empress, you will never serve yourself, Lady Constance went on. You will wait as your servants fill your plate. She was looking around with irritation when her eyes found Amelia. You, come here, she ordered. Serve her eminence. Amelia dropped the brush in the washbasin and, wiping her hands on her smock, rushed forward. She lacked experience with serving, but said nothing. Instead, she focused on recalling the times she had watched Leaf cutting meat. Taking up the tongs and a knife, she tried her best to imitate him. Leaf always made it look effortless, but Amelia's fingers betrayed her, and she fumbled miserably, managing to place only a few shredded bits of lamb on the girl's plate. Bread! 
Lady Constance snapped the words like a whip, and Amelia sliced into the long, twisted loaf, nearly cutting herself in the process. Now, eat. For a brief moment, Amelia thought this was another order for her, and reached out in response. She caught herself and stood motionless, uncertain if she was free to return to her dishes. Eat, I said. The Imperial Secretary glared at the girl, who continued to stare blankly at the far wall. Eat, damn you! Lady Constance bellowed, and everyone in the kitchen, including Edith Mon and Ibis Thinley, jumped. She pounded the baker's table with her fist, knocking over the stemware and bouncing the knives against the plates. Eat, Lady Constance repeated, and slapped the girl across the face. Her skin-wrapped skull rocked with the blow and came to rest on its own. The girl didn't wince. She merely continued her stare, this time at a new wall. In a fit of rage, the Imperial Secretary rose, knocking over her chair. She took one of the pieces of meat and tried to force it into the girl's mouth. What's going on? Lady Constance froze at the sound of the voice. An old, white-haired man descended the steps into the scullery. His elegant purple robe and black cape looked out of place in the hot, messy kitchen. Amelia recognized Regent Soldor immediately. What in the world? Soldor began as he approached the table. He looked at the girl, then at the kitchen staff, and finally at Lady Constance, who, at some point, had dropped the meat. What were you thinking, bringing her down here? I... I thought if... Soldor held up his hand, silencing her, then slowly squeezed it into a fist. He clenched his jaw and drew a deep breath through his sharp nose. Once more he focused on the girl. Look at her. You were supposed to educate and train her. She's worse than ever. I... I tried, but... Shut up! The regent snapped, still holding up his fist. No one in the kitchen moved. The only sounds were the faint crackle of the fire in the ovens and the bubbling of broth in a pot. If this is the result of a professional, we may as well try an amateur. They couldn't possibly do worse. The regent pointed at Amelia. You! Congratulations! You are now the Imperial Secretary to the Empress. Turning his attention back to Lady Constance, he said, And as for you, your services are no longer required. Guards, remove her. Amelia saw Lady Constance falter. Her perfect posture evaporated, and she cowered and stepped backward, nearly falling over the upended chair. No, please, no, she cried, as a palace guard gripped her arm and pulled her toward the back door. Another guard took her other arm. She grew frantic, pleading and struggling as they dragged her out. Amelia stood frozen in place, holding the meat tongs and carving knife, trying to remember how to breathe. Once the pleas of Lady Constance faded, Regent Solder turned to her, his face flushed red, his teeth revealed behind taut lips. Don't fail me.
he told her, and returned up the stairs, his cape whirling behind him. Amelia looked back at the girl, who continued to stare at the wall. The mystery of why no one saw the Empress was solved when a soldier escorted the girls to Medina's room. Amelia expected to travel to the Eastern Keep, home of the Regent's officers and the royal residence. To her surprise, the guard remained on the server's side and headed for a curved stair across from the laundry. Chambermaids used this stairwell to service rooms on the upper floors, but here the soldier went down. Amelia didn't question the guard, her thoughts preoccupied with the sword that hung at his side. His dark eyes were embedded in a stone face, and the top of her head reached the bottom of his chin. Each of his hands was the size of two of hers. He wasn't one of the guards who had taken Lady Constance away, but Amelia knew he wouldn't hesitate when her time came. The air turned cool and damp as they descended into the darkness, cut only by three mounted lanterns. The last dripped wax from an unhinged faceplate. At the bottom of the stairs, a wooden door stood open, which led to a tiny corridor with more doors on either side. In one room, Amelia spotted several casks and a rack of bottles dressed in packs of straw. Large locks sealed two other doors, and a third door stood open, revealing a small stone room, empty except for a pile of straw and a wooden bucket. When they reached it, the soldier stood to one side, his back to the wall. I'm sorry, Amelia began, confused. I don't understand. I thought we were going to the Empress's bedchamber. The guard nodded. Are you saying this is where her eminence sleeps? Again, the soldier nodded. As Amelia stared in shock, Modina wandered forward into the room and curled up on the pile of straw. The guard closed the heavy door and began fitting a large lock through the latch. Wait, Amelia said. You can't leave her here. Can't you see she's sick? The guard snapped the lock in place. Amelia stared at the oak door. How is this possible? She's the empress. She's the daughter of a god and the high priestess of the church. You keep the empress in an old cellar? It's better than where she was, the soldier told her. He hadn't spoken until then, and his voice was not what she expected. Soft, sympathetic, and not much louder than a whisper, his tone disarmed her. Where was she? I've said too much already. I can't just leave her in there. She doesn't even have a candle. My orders are to keep her here. Amelia stared at him. She could not see his eyes. The visor of his helm and the way the shadows fell cast darkness on everything above his nose. Fine, she said at last, and walked out of the cellar. She returned a moment later, carrying the wax-laden lantern from the stairwell. May I at least keep her company? Are you sure? He sounded surprised. 
Amelia wasn't, but nodded anyway. The guard opened the door. The Empress was lying huddled on the bed of straw, her eyes open, staring but not seeing. Amelia spotted a blanket wadded up in the corner. She set the lantern on the floor, shook out the wool covering, and draped it over the girl. They don't treat you very well, do they? she said, carefully brushing back the mass of hair that lay across Modena's face. The strands felt as stiff and brittle as the straw that littered them. How old are you? The Empress didn't answer, nor did she stir at Amelia's touch. Lying on her side, the girl clutched her knees to her chest and pressed her cheek against the straw. She blinked occasionally, and her chest rose and fell with each breath, but nothing more. Something bad happened, didn't it? Amelia ran fingers lightly over Medina's bare arm. She could circle the girl's wrist with her thumb and index finger with room to spare. Look, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. I don't expect it'll be too long. See, I'm not a noble lady. I'm just a girl who washes dishes. The regent says I'm supposed to educate and train you. But he made a mistake. I don't know how to do any of that. She petted Medina's hair and let her fingers run lightly over her hollow cheek, still blotchy where Lady Constance had struck her. But I promise I won't ever hurt you. Amelia sat for several minutes, searching her mind for some way to reach the girl. Can I tell you a secret? Now, don't laugh, but I'm really quite afraid of the dark. I know it's silly, but I can't help myself. I've always been that way, my brothers teased me about it all the time. If you could chat with me a bit, maybe it will help. What do you say? There was still no reaction. Amelia sighed. Well, tomorrow I'll bring some candles from my room. I've a whole bunch saved up. That'll make things a bit nicer. You just try to rest now. Amelia had not been lying about her fear of the dark, but that night it had to stand in line behind a host of new fears as she struggled to find sleep huddled beside the Empress. The soldiers did not come for Amelia that night, and she woke when breakfast was brought in, or rather was skipped across the floor on a wooden plate that spun to a stop in the middle of the room. On it were a fist-sized chunk of meat a wedge of cheese, and thick, crusted bread. It looked wonderful and was similar to Amelia's standard meals, courtesy of Ibis. Before coming to the palace, she had never eaten beef or venison, but now it was commonplace. Being friends with the head cook had other advantages as well. People didn't want to offend the man who controlled their diet, so Amelia was generally well treated, except by Edith Mon. Amelia took a few bites and loudly voiced her appreciation. This is so good. Would you like some? The Empress did not respond. Amelia sighed. No, I don't suppose you would. What would you like? I can get you whatever you want. 
Amelia got to her feet, grabbed up the tray, and waited. Nothing. After a few minutes, she rapped on the door, and the same guard opened it. Excuse me, but I have to see about getting a proper meal for her eminence. The guard looked at the plate, confused, but stepped aside, leaving her to trot up the stairs. The kitchen was still buzzing over the events of the previous night, but it stopped the moment Amelia entered the kitchen. Sent you back, did they? Edith grinned. Don't worry, I done saved your pile of pots. And I haven't forgotten about that hair. Hush up, Edith, Ibis reprimanded with a scowl. Returning his attention to Amelia, he said, Are you all right? Did they send you back? I'm fine, thank you, Ibis. And no, I think I'm still the Empress's secretary, whatever that means. Good for you, lassie. Ibis told her. He turned to Edith and added, And I'd watch what you say now. Looks like you'll be washing that stack yourself. Edith turned and stalked off with a hump. So, my dear, what does bring you here? I came about this food you sent to the Empress. Ibis looked wounded. What's wrong with it? Nothing. It's wonderful. I had some myself. Then I don't see. Her eminence is sick. She can't eat this. When I didn't feel well, my mother used to make me soup. A thin yellow broth that was easy to swallow. I was wondering, could you make something like that? Sure, Ibis told her. Soup is easy. Someone should have told me she was feeling poorly. I know exactly what to make. I call it seasick soup. It's the only thing the new lads kept down their first few days out. Leaf, fetch me the big kettle. Amelia spent the rest of the morning making trips back and forth to Medina's small cell. She removed all her possessions from the dormitory, a spare dress, some underclothing, a nightgown, a brush, and her treasured stash of nearly a dozen candles. From the linen supply, she brought pillows, sheets, and blankets. She even snuck a pitcher, some mild soap, and a basin from an unoccupied guest room. Each time she passed, the guard gave her a small smile and shook his head in amusement. After removing the old straw and bringing in fresh bundles from the stable, she went to Ibis to check on the soup. Well, the next batch will be better when I have more time. But this should put some wind in her sails, he said. Amelia returned to the cell and, setting down the steaming pot of soup, helped the Empress to sit up. She took the first sip to check the temperature, then lifted the spoon to Medina's lips. Most of the broth dribbled down her chin and dripped onto the front of her smock. Okay, that was my fault. Next time I'll remember to bring one of those napkins that lady was all excited about. With her second spoonful, Amelia cupped her hand and caught most of the excess. Aha! she exclaimed. I got some in. It's good, isn't it? She tipped another spoonful and this time saw Modina swallow. When the bowl was empty, Amelia guessed most of the soup was on the floor or soaked into Medina's clothes, 
but she was certain at least some got in. There now, that must be a little better, don't you think? But I see I've made a terrible mess of you. How about we clean you up a bit, eh? Amelia washed Medina and changed her into her own spare smock. The two girls were similar in height. However, Modina swam in the dress until Amelia fashioned a belt from a bit of twine. Amelia continued to chatter while she made two makeshift beds with the straw and purloined blankets, pillows and sheets. I would have liked to bring us some mattresses, but they were heavy. Besides, I didn't want to risk too much attention. People were already giving me strange looks. I think these'll do nicely, don't you? Medina continued her blank stare. When everything was in order, Emilia sat Medina on her newly sheeted bed in the glow of a handful of cheery candles and began gently brushing her hair. So, how does one get to be Empress anyway? she asked. They say you slew a monster that killed hundreds of knights. You know, you really don't look like the monster-slaying type. No offence. Amelia paused and tilted her head. Still not interested in talking? That's okay. You want to keep your past a secret. I understand. After all, we've only just met. So, let's see. What can I tell you about myself? Well, I come from Terran Vale. Do you know where that is? Probably not. It's a tiny village between here and Colnora. Just a little town people sometimes pass through on their way to more exciting places. Nothing much happens in Terran. My father makes carriages and he's really good at it. Still, he doesn't make much money. She paused and studied the girl's face to try to determine if she heard any of what Amelia was saying. What does your father do? I think I heard he was a farmer. Is that right? Nothing. My dad doesn't make much money. My mother says it's because he does too good of a job. He's pretty proud of his work, so he takes a long time. It can take him a whole year to make a carriage. That makes it hard, because he only gets paid when it's done. What with buying the supplies and all, we sometimes run out of money. My mother does spinning, and my brother cuts wood, but it never seems like enough. That's why I'm here, you see. I'm not a very good spinner, but I can read and write. One side of the girl's head was now free of tangles, and Amelia switched to the other. I can see you're impressed. It hasn't done me much good, though. Well, except I guess it did get me a foot in the door, as it were. Hmm. What's that? You want to know where I learned to read and write? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Devon taught me. He's a monk that came to Terran Vale a few years ago. Her voice lowered conspiratorially. I liked him a lot, and he was cute and smart. Very smart. He read books and told me about faraway places and things that happened long ago. Devon thought either my dad or the head of his order would try to split us up. So he taught me so we could write each other. Devon was right, of course. When my da found out, he said, There's no future with a monk. Devon was sent away. 
and I cried for days. Amelia paused to clear a particularly nasty snarl. She tried her best to be gentle, but was sure it caused the girl pain, even if she didn't show it. That was a rough one, she said. For a minute, I thought you might have a sparrow hiding in there. Anyway, when Da found out I could read and write, he was so proud. He bragged about me to everyone who came to the shop. One of his customers, Squire Jenkins Talbert, was impressed and said he could put in a good word for me here in Aquesta. Everyone was so excited when I was accepted. When I found out the job was just to wash dishes, I didn't have the heart to tell my family, so I've not been home since. Now, of course, they won't let me go. Amelia sighed, but then put on a bright smile. But that's okay, because now I'm here with you. There was a quiet knock, and the guard stepped in. He took a minute to survey the changes in the cell and nodded his approval. His gaze shifted to Amelia, and there was a distinct sadness in his eyes. I'm sorry, miss, but Regent Solder has ordered me to bring you to him. Amelia froze, then slowly put the brush down, and with a trembling hand draped a blanket around the young girl's shoulders. She rose, kissed Modena on the cheek, and in a quivering voice managed to whisper, Goodbye. Chapter 2 The Messenger He always feared he would die this way, alone on a remote stretch of road far from home. The forest pressed close from both sides, and his trained eyes recognized that the debris barring his path was not the innocent result of a weakened tree. He pulled on the reins, forcing his horse's head down. She snorted in frustration, fighting the bit. Like him, she sensed danger. He glanced behind him and to either side, scanning the trees standing in summer gowns of deep green. Nothing moved in the early morning stillness. Nothing betrayed the tranquil façade except the pile before him. The deadfall was unnatural, even from this distance he saw the brightly coloured pulp of fresh-cut wood. A barricade. Thieves. A band of highwaymen no doubt crouched under the cover of the forest, watching, waiting for him to draw near. He tried to focus his thoughts as his horse panted beneath him. This was the shortest route north to the Galewar River, and he was running out of time. Brecton was preparing to invade the kingdom of Melangar, and he must deliver the dispatch before the knight launched the attack. Before he had embarked, his commander, as well as the regents, had personally expressed the importance of this mission. They were counting on him. She was counting on him. Like thousands of others, he had stood in the freezing square on Coronation Day just to catch a glimpse of Empress Modena. To the crowd's immense disappointment, she never appeared. An announcement came after many hours explaining she was occupied with the affairs of the new empire. Recently ascended from the peasant class, 
the new ruler obviously had no time for frivolity. He removed his cloak and tied it behind the saddle, revealing the gold crown on his tabard. They might let him pass. Surely they knew the Imperial Army was nearby, and Sir Brecton wouldn't stand for the waylaying of an Imperial messenger. Highwaymen might not fear that fool Earl Ballantyne, but even desperate men would think twice before offending Ballantyne's knight. Other commanders might ignore a bloodied or murdered dispatch rider, but Sir Brecton would take it as a personal assault on his honour, and insulting Brecton's honour was tantamount to suicide. He refused to fail. Brushing the hair from his eyes, he took a fresh grip on the reins and advanced cautiously. As he neared the barricade, he saw movement. Leaves quivered, a twig snapped. He pivoted his mount and prepared to bolt. He was a good rider, fast and agile. His horse was a well-bred three-year-old, and once she was spurred, no one would catch them. He tensed in the saddle and leaned forward, preparing for the lurch, but the sight of imperial uniforms stopped him. A pair of soldiers trudged to the road from the trees and grudgingly peered at him with the dull expression common to foot soldiers. They were dressed in red tabards emblazoned with the crest of Sir Brecton's command. As they approached, the larger one chewed a stalk of rye while the smaller man licked his fingers and wiped them on his uniform. "'You had me worried,' the rider said with a mix of relief and irritation. "'I thought you were highwaymen.' The smaller one smiled. He took little care with his uniform. Two shoulder straps were unfastened, causing the leather tongues to stand up like tiny wings on his shoulders. "'Did you hear that, Will?' He thought we was thieves. Not a bad idea, eh? We should cut us some purses, charge a toll, as it were. At least we'd make a bit of coin standing out here all day. Course, Brecton would skin us alive if an he heard. The taller soldier, most likely a half-wit mute, nodded in silent agreement. At least he wore his uniform smartly. It fit him better, and he took the time to fasten everything properly. Both uniforms were rumpled and stained from sleeping outdoors, but such was the life of an infantryman, one of the many reasons he preferred being a courier. "'Clear this mess. I have an urgent dispatch. I need to get through to the Imperial Army Command at once.' "'Here now. We have orders too, you know. We're not to let anyone pass,' the smaller said. I'm an imperial courier, you fool. Oh, the sentry responded, with all the acumen of a wooden post. He glanced briefly at his partner, who maintained his dim expression. Well, that's a different set of apples now, ain't it? He petted the horse's neck. That would explain the lather you've put on this here girl, eh? She looks like she could use a drink. We got a bucket, and there's a little stream just over. I've no time for that. Just get that pile out of the road and be quick about it. Certainly, certainly. You don't have to be so rough. Just tell us the watchword, and Will and me 
We'll haul it out of your way right fast, he said, as he dug for something caught between his teeth. Watchword? The soldier nodded. He pulled his finger out and sniffed at something with a sour look before giving it a flick. You know, the password. We can't be letting no spies through here. There's a war on, after all. I've never heard of such a thing. I wasn't informed of any password. No? The smaller soldier raised an eyebrow as he took hold of the horse's bridle. I spoke to the regents themselves, and I... The larger of the two pulled him from his horse. He landed on his back, hitting the ground hard and banging his head. A jolt of pain momentarily blinded him. When he opened his eyes, he found the soldier straddling him with a blade to his throat. Who do you work for? The large sentry growled. What you doing, Will? The smaller one asked, still holding his horse. Trying to get this spy to talk, that's what. I... I'm not a spy. I'm an imperial courier. Let me go. Will, our orders say nothing about interrogating them. If and they don't know the watchword, we cuts they's throat and tosses them in the river. Sir Brecton don't have time to deal with every fool we get on this here road. Besides, who you think he works for? The only one's fighting us is Melengar, so he works for Melengar. Now, slit his throat, and I'll help you drag him to the river as soon as I ties up this here horse. But I am a courier, he shouted. Sure ye is. I can prove it. I have dispatches for Sir Brecton in the saddlebag. The two soldiers exchanged dubious looks. The smaller one shrugged. He reached into the horse's bags and proceeded to search. He pulled out a leather satchel containing a wax-sealed parchment, and, breaking the seal, he examined it. Well, if in that don't beat all. Looks like he's telling the truth, Will. This here looks like a real genuine dispatch for his lordship. Oh? the other asked, as worry crossed his face. Sure looks that way. Better let him up. His face downcast, the soldier sheathed his weapon and extended a hand to help the courier to his feet. Uh, sorry about that. We were just following orders, you know. When Sir Brecton sees this broken seal, he'll have your heads, the courier said, shoving past the large sentry and snatching the document from the other. Us? The smaller one laughed. Like Will here said, we was just following his orders. You were the one who failed to get the watchword afore riding here. Sir Brecton, he's a stickler for rules. He don't like it when his orders ain't followed. Course, he'll most likely only lose a hand or maybe an ear for your mistake. If an I was you, I'd see if an I could... Heat the wax up enough to reseal it. That would ruin the impression. You could say it was hot, and what with the sun on the pouch all day, the wax melted in the saddlebag. Better than losing a hand or an ear, I says. Besides, 
busy nobles like Brecton ain't going to study the seal afore opening an urgent dispatch, but he will notice if in the seal is broken. That's for sure. The courier looked at the document flapping in the breeze and felt his stomach churn. He had no choice, but he wouldn't do it here with these idiots watching. He remounted his horse. Clear the road, he barked. The two soldiers dragged the branches aside. He kicked his horse and raced her up the road. Royce watched the courier ride out of sight before taking off his imperial uniform. Turning to face Hadrian, he said, Well, that wasn't so hard. Will? Hadrian asked as the two slipped into the forest. Royce nodded. Remember yesterday you complained that you'd rather be an actor. I was giving you a part. Will, the Imperial Checkpoint Sentry. I thought you did rather well with the role. You know, you don't need to mock all my ideas. Hadrian frowned as he pulled his own tabard over his head. Besides, I think we should consider it. We could travel from town to town, performing in dramatic plays, even a few comedies. Hadrian gave his smaller partner an appraising look. Though maybe you should stick to drama. Perhaps tragedies. Royce glared back. What? I think I would make a superb actor. I see myself as a dashing leading man. We could definitely land parts in the Crown Conspiracy. I'll play the handsome swordsman that fights the villain, and you... Well, you can be the other one. They dodged branches while pulling off their coifs and gloves, rolling them into their tabards. Walking downhill, they reached one of the many small rivers that fed the Great Gale War. Here they found their horses still tied and enjoying the river grass. The animals lazily swished their tails, keeping the flies at bay. You worry me sometimes, Hadrian. You really do. Why not actors? It's safe. Might even be fun. It would be neither safe nor fun. Besides, actors have to travel, and I'm content with the way things are. I get to stay near Gwen, Royce added. See, that's another reason. Why not find another line of work? Honestly, if I had what you do, I would never take another job. Royce removed a pair of boots from a saddlebag. We do it because it's what we're good at, and with the war, Ulrich is willing to pay top fees for information. Hadrian released a sarcastic snort. Sure, top fees for us. What about the other costs? Brechton might work for that idiot Ballantyne, but he's no fool himself. He'll certainly look at the seal and won't buy the story about its softening in the saddlebag. I know, Royce began as he sat on a log, exchanging the imperial boots for his own. But after telling one lie, his second tale about sentries breaking the seal will sound even more outlandish, so they won't believe anything he says. Hadrian paused in his own efforts to switch boots and scowled at his partner. You realise they'll probably execute him for treason? Royce nodded. 
which will neatly eliminate the only witness. You see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Hadrian sighed and shook his head. Royce could see the familiar melancholy wash over his partner. It appeared too often lately. He couldn't fathom his friend's moodiness. These strange bouts of depression usually followed successes and frequently led to a night of heavy drinking. He wondered if Hadrian even cared about the money any more. He took only what was needed for drinks and food and stored the rest. Royce could have understood his friend's reaction if they'd been making a living by picking pockets or robbing homes, but they worked for the king now. Their jobs were almost too clean for Royce's taste. Hadrian had no real concept of filth. Unlike Royce, he hadn't grown up in the muddy streets of Ratibor. Royce decided to try to reason with Hadrian. Would you rather they find out and send a detachment to hunt us down? No, I just hate being the cause of an innocent man's death. No one is innocent, my friend, and you aren't the cause. You're more like... He searched for words. The grease beneath the skids. Thanks. I feel so much better. Royce folded the uniform and placed it, along with the boots, neatly into his saddlebag. Hadrian still struggled to rid himself of his black boots, which were too small. With a mighty tug, he jerked the last one off and threw it down in frustration. He gathered it up and wrestled his uniform into the satchel. Cramming everything as deep as possible, he strapped the flap down and buckled it as tight as he could. He glared at the pack and sighed once more. You know, if you organized your pack a little better, it wouldn't be so hard to fit all your gear, Royce said. Hadrian looked at him with a puzzled expression. What? Oh, no, I'm... It's not the gear. Then what is it? Royce pulled on his black cloak and adjusted the collar. Hadrian stroked his horse's neck. I don't know, he replied mournfully. It's just that I thought by now I'd have done something more. With my life, I mean. Are you crazy? Most men work themselves to death on a small bit of land that isn't even theirs. You're free to do as you choose and go wherever you want. I know, but when I was young... I used to think I was, well, special. I imagined that I would triumph in some great purpose, win the girl and save the kingdom, but I suppose every boy feels that way. I didn't. Hadrian scowled at him. I just had this idea of who I would become, and being a worthless spy wasn't part of that plan. We're hardly worthless. Royce said, correcting him. We've been making a good profit, especially lately. That's not the point. I was successful as a mercenary, too. It's not about money. It's the fact that I survive like a leech. Why is this suddenly coming up now? For the first time in years, we're making good money with a steady stream of respectable jobs. 
We're in the employ of a king, for Meribor's sake. We can actually sleep in the same bed two nights in a row and not worry about being arrested. Just last week, I passed the captain of the city watch, and he gave me a nod. It's not the amount of work. It's the kind of work. It's the fact that we're always lying. If that courier dies, it'll be our fault. Besides, it's not sudden. I've felt this way for years. Why do you think I'm always suggesting we do something else? Do you know why I broke the rules and took that job to steal Pickering's sword, the one that nearly got us executed? For the unusual sum of money offered, Royce replied. No, that's why you took it. I wanted to go because it seemed like the right thing to do. For once, I had the chance to help someone who really deserved to be helped. Or so I thought at the time. And becoming an actor is the answer? Adrian untied his horse. No, but as an actor, I could at least pretend to be virtuous. I suppose I should just be happy to be alive, right? He didn't answer. The nagging sensation was surfacing again. Royce hated keeping secrets from Hadrian, and it weighed heavily on his conscience, which was amazing, because he had never known he had one. Royce defined right and wrong by the moment. Right was what was best for him. Wrong was everything else. He stole, lied, and even killed when necessary. This was his craft and he was good at it. There was no reason to apologize, no need to pause or reflect. The world was at war with him, and nothing was sacred. Telling Hadrian what he had learned ran too great a risk. Royce preferred his world constant, with each variable accounted for. Lines on the map were shifting daily, and power slipped from one set of hands to another. Time flowed too fast, and events were too unexpected. He felt like he was crossing a frozen lake in late spring. He tried to pick a safe path, but the surface cracked beneath his feet. Even so, there were some changes he could still control. He reminded himself that the secret he kept from Hadrian was for his friend's own good. Climbing onto his short grey mare, Mouse, Royce thought a moment. We've been working pretty hard lately. Maybe we should take a break. I don't see how we can, Hadrian replied. With the Imperial Army preparing to invade Melangar, Orig is going to need us now more than ever. You'd think that, wouldn't you? But you didn't read the dispatch. Chapter 3 The Miracle Princess Arista Essendon slouched on the carriage seat, buffeted by every rut and hole in the road. Her neck was stiff from sleeping against the armrest, and her head throbbed from the constant jostling. Rising with a yawn, she wiped her eyes and rubbed her face. An attempt to straighten her hair trapped her fingers in a mass of auburn knots. The ambassadorial coach was showing as much wear as its passenger, 
having travelled too many miles over the past year. The roof leaked, the springs were worn, and the bench was becoming threadbare in places. The driver had orders to push hard to return to Medford by midday. He was making good time, but at the expense of hitting every rut and rock along the way. As Arista drew back the curtain, the morning sun flashed through gaps in the leafy wall of trees lining the road. She was almost home. The flickering light revealed the interior of the coach. Dust entering the windows coated everything. A discarded cheesecloth and several apple cores covered a pile of parchments spilling from a stack on the opposite bench. Soiled footprints patterned the floor where a blanket, a corset, and two dresses nested along with three shoes. She had no idea where the fourth was, and only hoped it was in the carriage and not left in Lancaster. Over the past six months, she had felt as if she had left bits of herself all over Avron. Hilfred would have known where her shoe was. She picked up her pearl-handled hairbrush and turned it over in her hands. Hilfred must have searched the wreckage for days. This one came from Tour del Four. Her father had given her a brush from every city he had travelled to. He had been a private man, and saying, I love you, had not come easy, even when speaking to his own daughter. The brushes were his unspoken confessions. Once she had owned dozens. Now this was the last. When her bedroom tower had collapsed, she had lost them, and it had felt as if she had lost her father all over again. Three weeks later, this single brush appeared. It must have been Hilfred, but he never said a word or admitted a thing. Hilfred had been her bodyguard for years, and now that he was gone, she realized just how much she had taken him for granted. She had a new bodyguard now. Ulrich had personally picked him from his own castle guards. His name began with a T. Tom, Tim, Travis, something like that. He stood on the wrong side of her, talked too much, laughed at his own jokes, and was always eating something. He was likely a brave and skilled soldier, but he was no Hilfred. The last time she had seen Hilfred had been over a year ago in Dahlgren, when he had nearly died from the Gilarabrin attack. That had been the second time he had suffered burns trying to save her. The first had been when she was only twelve, the night the castle caught fire. Her mother and several others had died, but a boy of fifteen the son of a sergeant-at-arms had braved the inferno to pull her from her bed. At Arista's insistence, he went back for her mother. He never reached her, but nearly died trying. He suffered for months afterward, and Arista's father rewarded the boy by appointing him her bodyguard. His wounds back then had been nothing like what he had suffered in Dahlgren. Healers had wrapped him from head to toe, and he had lain unconscious for days. To her shock, he had refused to see her upon awaking, and left in the back of a wagon without saying goodbye. At Hilfred's request, no one would tell her where he had gone. She could have pressed. She could have ordered the healers to talk, 
For months, she looked over her shoulder, expecting to see him, waiting to hear the familiar clap of his sword against his thigh. She often wondered if she had done the right thing in letting him go. She sighed at yet another regret added to a pile that had been building over the past year. Taking stock of the mess around her increased her melancholy. This was what came from refusing to have a handmaid along, but she couldn't imagine being cooped up in the carriage with anyone for so long. She picked up her dresses and laid them across the far seat. When she spied a document crushed into a ball and hanging in the folds of the far window curtain, her stomach churned with guilt. With a frown, she plucked the crumpled parchment and smoothed it out by pressing it in her lap. It contained a list of kingdoms and provinces, with a line slashed through each and the notation I.M.P. scrawled beside them. That the Earl of Chadwick and King Ethelred were the first in line to kiss the Empress's ring was no surprise. But she shook her head in disbelief at the long list. The shift in power had occurred virtually overnight. One day nothing, the next, bang! There was a new empire, and the Averon kingdoms of Warwick, Ghent, Alban, Merinon, Galenon, and Renyard had all joined. They pressured the small holdouts, like Gloucester, then invaded and swallowed them. She ran her finger over the line indicating Dunmore. His Highness King Roswert had graciously decided it was in his kingdom's best interest to accept the imperial offer of extended landholdings in return for becoming part of the new empire. Arista would not be surprised if Roswert had been promised Melangar as part of his payment. Of all the kingdoms of Averon, only Melangar refused to join. It all happened so fast. A year ago, the new empire was merely an idea. She had spent months as ambassador trying to strike alliances. Without support, without allies, Melangar could not hope to stand against the growing colossus. How long do we have before the empire marches north, before... The carriage came to a sudden halt, throwing her forward, jerking the curtains and creaking the tired springs. She looked out the window, puzzled. They were still on the old steward's road. The wall of trees had given way to an open field of flowers, which she knew placed them on the high meadow just a few miles outside Medford. What's going on? she called out. No response. Where in the land is Tim, or Ted, or whatever the blazes his name is? She pulled the latch and, hiking up her skirt, pushed out the door. Warm sunlight met her, making her squint. Her legs were stiff, and her back ached. At only twenty-six, she already felt ancient. She slammed the carriage door and, holding a hand to protect her eyes, glared as best she could up at the silhouettes of the driver and groom. They glanced at her, but only briefly, then looked back down the slope of the road ahead. Daniel, why— she started, but stopped after seeing what they were looking at. The high meadowlands just north of Medford provided an extensive view for several miles south. 
The land sloped gently down, revealing Melangar's capital city, Medford. She saw the spires of Essendon Castle, and Mayor's Cathedral, and, farther out, the Galewar River, marking the southern border of the kingdom. In the days when her mother and father had been alive, the royal family had come here in the summer to have picnics and enjoy the cool breeze and the view. Only that day the sight was quite different. On the far bank, in the clear morning light, Arista saw rows and rows of canvas tents, hundreds of them, each flying the red and white flags of the Nephron Imperial Empire. There's an army, Highness. Daniel found his voice. An army is a stone's throw from Medford. Get me home, Daniel. Beat the horses if you must, but get me home. The carriage had barely stopped when Arista punched open the door, nearly hitting Tommy, or Terence, or whoever he was, in the face when he foolishly attempted to open it for her. The servants in the courtyard immediately stopped their early morning chores to bow reverently. Melissa spotted the coach and rushed over. Unlike Tucker, or Tillman, the small red-headed maid had served Arista for years and knew to expect a storm. How long has that army been there? Arista barked at her, even as she trotted up the stone steps. Nearly a week, Melissa replied, chasing after the princess and catching the travelling cloak as Arista discarded it. A week? Has there been fighting? Yes. His Majesty launched an attack across the river just a few days ago. Ulrich attacked them? Across the river? It didn't go well, Melissa replied in a lowered voice. I should think not. Was he drunk? Castle guards hastily pulled back the big oak doors, barely getting them open before the princess barreled through, her gown whipping behind her. Where are they? In the war room. She stopped. They stood in the northern foyer. A wide gallery of polished stone pillars displayed suits of armour, and hallways led to sweeping staircases. Missy! Fetch my blue audience gown and shoes to go with it, and prepare a basin of water. Oh, and send someone to bring me something to eat. I don't care what. Yes, your highness. Melissa made a curt bow and raced up the stairs. Your highness, her bodyguard called, chasing after her. You almost lost me there. Imagine that. I'll just have to try harder next time. Arista watched as her brother, King Ulrich, stood up from the great table. Normally this would require everyone else to rise as well, but Ulrich had suspended that tradition inside the council chamber, as he had a habit of rising frequently and pacing during meetings. "'I don't understand it,' he said, turning his back on all of them to begin his slow, familiar walk between the table and the window." As he moved, he stroked his short beard the way another man might wring his hands. Ulrich had started the beard just before Arista left on her trip. It still hadn't filled in. She guessed he grew it to look more like their father. King Amrath had worn a dark, full beard, but Ulrich's light brown wisps only underscored his youth. He made matters worse by drawing attention to it with his constant stroking. 
Arista recalled how her father used to drum his fingers during state meetings. Under the weight of the crown, pressures must build up until action sought its own means of escape. Her brother was two years her junior, and she knew he had never expected to wear the crown so soon. For years she had heard Ulrich's plans to roam the wilds with his friend Marvin Pickering. The two wanted to see the world and have grand adventures that would involve nameless women, too much wine, and too little sleep. They had even hoped to find and explore the ancient ruins of Persepolis. She had suspected that when he tired of the road, he would be happy to return home and marry a girl half his age and father several strong sons. Only then, as his temples grayed, and when all of life's other ambitions were accomplished, would he expect the crown to pass to him. All that changed the night their uncle Percy arranged the assassination of their father and left Ulrich king. It could be a trick, your majesty, Lord Valen suggested. A plan to catch you off your guard. Lord Valen, an elderly knight with a bushy white beard, was known for his courage, but not for his strategic skills. Lord Valen, Sir Ecton addressed the noble respectfully, after our failure on the banks of the Galewar, the Imperial Army can overrun Medford with ease, whether we are on or off our guard. We know it, and they know it. Medford is their prize for the taking, whenever they decide to get their feet wet. Ulrich walked to the tall balcony window, where the afternoon light spilled into the royal banquet hall of Essendon Castle. The hall served as the royal war room out of the need for a large space to conduct the defence of the kingdom. Where once festive tapestries hung, great maps now covered the walls, each slashed with red lines illustrating the tragic retreat of Melangar's armies. I just don't understand it, Ulrich repeated. It's so peculiar. The Imperial Army outnumbers us ten to one. They have scores of heavy cavalry, siege weapons, and archers. Everything they need. So why are they sitting across the river? Why stop now? It makes no sense from a military standpoint, sire, Sir Ecton said. A large, powerful man with a fiery disposition, he was Ulrich's chief general and field commander. Ecton was also Count Pickering's most accomplished vassal, and regarded by many as the best knight in Melangar. I would venture it's political, he continued. It's been my experience that the most foolish decisions in combat are the result of political choices made by those with little to no field experience. Earl Kendall, a pot-bellied, fussy man who always dressed in a bright green tunic, glared at Ecton. Careful with your tongue and consider your company. Ecton rose to his feet. I held my tongue, and what was the result? Sir Ecton, Ulrich shouted, I'm well aware of your opinion of my decision to attack the Imperial encampment. It was insanity to attempt an assault across a river without even the possibility to flank, Ecton shot back. Nevertheless, it was my decision. Ulrich squeezed his hands into fists. I felt it was necessary. Necessary? Necessary? 
Ecton spat the word as if it were a vile thing in his mouth. He looked like he was about to speak again, but Count Pickering rose to his feet, and Sir Ecton sat down. Arista had seen this before. Too often Ecton looked to Count Pickering before acting on an order Ulrich had given. He wasn't the only one, and it was clear that although her brother was king, Ulrich had failed to earn the respect of his nobles, his army, or his people. Perhaps Acton is right. Young Marquis Weimar spoke up. About it being political, I mean. He then hastily added, We all know what a pompous fool the Earl of Chadwick is. Isn't it possible that Ballantyne ordered Brecton to hold the final attack until Archibald could arrive? It would certainly raise his standing in the imperial court to claim he personally led the assault that conquered Melangar for the new empire. That would explain the delay in the attack. Pickering replied in his fatherly tone, which he knew Ulrich despised. But our scouts are reporting that large numbers of men are pulling out and by all accounts are heading south. A faint, perhaps? Ulrich asked. Pickering shook his head. As Sir Ecton pointed out, there would be no need. Several of the other advisers nodded thoughtfully. Something must be going on for the Empress to recall her troops like this, Pickering said. But what? Ulrich asked, no one in particular. I wish I knew what kind of person she was. It's impossible to guess the actions of a total stranger. He turned to his sister. Arista, you met Modena, spent time with her in Dahlgren. What's she like? Do you have any idea what would cause her to pull the army back? A memory flashed in Arista's mind of her and a young girl trapped at the top of a tower. Arista had been frozen in fear, but Thrace had rummaged through a pile of debris and human limbs, looking for a weapon to fight an invincible beast. Had it been bravery or had she been too naive to understand the futility? The girl I knew as Thrace was a sweet, innocent child who wanted only the love of her father. The church may have changed her name to Modena, but I can't imagine they changed her. She didn't order this invasion. She wouldn't want to rule her tiny village, much less conquer the world. Arista shook her head. She's not our enemy. A crown can change a person, Sir Ecton said, while glaring at Ulrich. Arista rose. It's more likely that we're dealing with the Church and a council of conservative imperialists. I highly doubt a child from rural Dunmore could influence the archaic attitudes and inflexible opinions of so many stubborn minds who would strive to resist rather than work with a new ruler she said while glaring at Ecton. Over the knight's shoulder, she noticed Ulrich cringe. The door to the hall opened, and Julian, the elderly Lord Chamberlain, entered. With a sweeping bow, he tapped his staff of office twice on the tiled floor. The Royal Protector, Royce Melbourne, Your Majesty. Show him in immediately. Don't get your hopes too high. Pickering said to his king, They're spies, not miracle workers. I pay them enough for miracles. I don't think it unreasonable to get what I pay for. 
Ulrich employed numerous informants and scouts, but none were as effective as the Rayera. Arista had originally hired Royce and Hadrian to kidnap her brother the night her father had been assassinated. Since then, their services had proved invaluable. Royce entered the banquet hall alone. The small man with dark hair and dark eyes, always dressed in layers of black. He wore a knee-length tunic and a long, flowing cloak, and, as always, carried no visible weapons. Carrying a blade in the presence of the king was unlawful, but given he and Hadrian had twice saved Ulrich's life, Arista surmised the royal guards did not thoroughly search him. She was certain Royce carried his white-bladed dagger and regarded the law as merely a suggestion. Royce bowed before the assembly. "'Well?' her brother asked a bit too loudly, too desperately. "'Did you discover anything?' "'Yes, Your Majesty,' Royce replied, but his face remained so neutral that nothing more could be determined for good or ill. "'Well, out with it. What did you find?' Are they really leaving? Sir Brecton has been ordered to withdraw all but a small containment force and march south immediately with the bulk of his army. So, it really is true, Marquis Weimar said. But why? Yes, why? Ulrich added. Because Renyard has been invaded by the Nationalists out of Delgos. A look of surprise circulated the room. Deegan Gaunt's rabble is invading Renyard, Earl Kendall said in bewilderment. And doing quite well from the dispatch I read, Royce informed them. Gaunt has led them up the coast, taking every village and town. He's managed to sack Kilnar and Vernes. He sacked Vernes? Ecton asked, shocked. That's a good-sized city, Weimar mentioned. It's also only a few miles from Ratibor, Pickering observed. From there it's, what, maybe a hard day's march to the imperial capital itself? No wonder the Empire is recalling Brecton. Ulrich looked at the Count. What were you saying about miracles? I can't believe you couldn't find anyone to ally with. Ulrich berated Arista as he collapsed on his throne. The two were alone in the reception hall, the most ornate room in the castle. This room, the grand ballroom, the banquet hall, and the foyer were all that most people generally ever saw. Tolan the Great had built the chamber to be intimidating. The three-story ceiling was an impressive sight, and the observation balcony that circled the walls provided a magnificent view of the parquet floor, inlaid with the royal falcon coat of arms. Double rows of twelve marble pillars formed a long gallery similar to that of a church, yet instead of an altar there was the dais. On seven pyramid-shaped steps sat the throne of Melangar, the only seat in the vast chamber. When they had been children, the throne had always appeared so impressive, but now, with Ulrich slouched in it, Arista realized it was just a gaudy chair. I tried, she offered, sitting on the steps before the throne, as she had once done with her father. 
Everyone had already sworn allegiance to the new empire. Arista gave her brother the demoralizing report on her past six months of failure. But quite a pair, you and I. You've done little as ambassador, and I nearly destroyed us with that attack across the river. Many of the nobles are being more vocal. Soon Pickering won't be able to control the likes of Ecton. I must admit, I was shocked when I heard about your attack. What possessed you to do such a thing? she asked. Royce and Hadrian had intercepted plans drafted by Brecton himself. He was about to launch a three-pronged assault. I had to make a preemptive strike. I was hoping to catch the Imperialists by surprise. Well, it looks like it worked out after all. It delayed their attack just long enough. True, but what good will that do if we can't find more help? What about Trent? Well, they haven't said no, and they haven't said yes either. The Church's influence has never been strong that far north, but they also don't have any ties to us. All they want is to be on the winning side. They're at least willing to wait and watch. They won't join us because they don't think we have a chance, but if we can show them some success, they could be persuaded to side with us. Don't they realize the Empire will be after them next? I said that, but... But what? They really weren't very amenable to what I had to say. The men of Langsteer are brutish and backward. They respect only strength. I would have fared better if I'd beaten their king senseless. She hesitated. I don't think they quite knew what to make of me. I should never have sent you, Ulrich said, running a hand over his face. What was I thinking, making a woman an ambassador? His words felt like a slap. I agree that I was at a disadvantage in Trent, but in the rest of the kingdoms I don't think the fact that I am a woman— A witch, then, Ulrich said, lashing out. Even worse, all those Warwick and Alban nobles are so devoted, and what do I do? I send them someone the church tried for witchcraft. I am not a witch! she snapped. I wasn't convicted of anything, and everyone with a brain between their ears knows that trial was a fabrication of Braga and Saldor to get their hands on our throne. The truth doesn't matter. Everyone believes what the church tells them. They said you're a witch, so that makes it so. Look at Modena. The patriarch proclaims that she's the heir of Novron, so everyone believes. I should have never made an enemy of the church. But between Solder's betrayal and the sentinel-killing Fanon, I just couldn't bring myself to bend my knee. When I evicted the priests and forbade Deacon Thomas from preaching about what happened at Dahlgren, the people revolted. They set shops in Gentry Square on fire. I could see the flames from my window for Meribor's sake. The whole city would have burned. They were calling for my head— people right in front of the castle burning stuffed images of me and shouting, Death to the godless king! Can you imagine that? Just a few years ago they were calling me a hero. People toasted to my health in every tavern. But now, well, it's amazing how fast they can turn on you. 
I had to use the army to restore order. Ulrich reached up and pulled off his crown, turning the golden circlet over in his hands. I was in Alburn, at the court of King Armand, when I heard about that, Arista said, shaking her head. Ulrich laid the crown on the arm of the throne, closed his eyes, and softly banged his head against the back of the chair. What are we going to do, Arista? The imperialists will return. As soon as they deal with Gaunt's rabble, the army will come back. His eyes opened, and his hand drifted absently toward his throat. I suppose they'll hang me, won't they? Or do they use the axe on kings? His tone was one of quiet acceptance, which surprised her. The carefree boy she had once known was vanishing before her eyes. Even if the new empire failed and Melangar stood strong, Ulrich would never be the same. In many ways their uncle had managed to kill him after all. Ulrich looked at the crown sitting on the chair's arm. I wonder what father would do. He'd never had anything like this to deal with. Not since Toland defeated Lothomad at Drondel Fields has any monarch of Melangar faced invasion. Lucky me. Lucky us. Ulrich nodded. At least we've got some time now. That's something. What do you think of Pickering's idea to send the Ellis Far down the coast to Tor del Four and contact the nationalist leader, this gaunt fellow? Honestly, I think establishing an alliance with Gaunt is our only hope. Isolated, we don't stand a chance against the Empire, Arista agreed. But the Nationalists, are they any better than the Imps? They're as opposed to monarchies as much as the Empire. They don't want to be ruled at all. Alone and surrounded by enemies is not the time to be choosy about your friends. We aren't completely alone, Ulrich said, correcting her. Marquis Lenaclin joined us. A lot of good that does. The Empire took his holdings. He's nothing more than a refugee now. He only came here because he has no place else to go. If we get more help like that, we'll go broke just feeding them. Our only chance is to contact Deegan Gaunt and form an alliance. If Delgos joins with us, that may be enough to persuade Trent to side in our favour— if that happens, we could deal a mortal blow to this new Nephron Empire. Do you think Gaunt will agree? Don't know why not, Arista said. It's to our mutual benefit. I'm certain I can talk him into it, and I must say I'm looking forward to the trip. A rolling ocean is a welcome change from that carriage. While I'm away, have someone work on it, or better yet, order a new one and put extra padding. You aren't going, Ulrich told her, as he put his crown back on. What's that? I'm sending Linroy to meet with Gaunt. But I'm the ambassador, and a member of the royal family. He can't negotiate a treaty or an alliance with— Of course he can. Linroy is an experienced negotiator and statesman. He's the royal financier. That doesn't qualify him as a statesman. He's handled dozens of trade agreements, Ulrich interjected. The man's a bookkeeper, she shouted, 
rising to her feet. It may come as a surprise to you, but other people are capable of doing things too. But why? Like you said, you're a member of the royal family. Ulrich looked away, and his fingers reached up to stroke his beard. Do you have any idea what kind of position it would put me in if you were captured? We're at war. I can't risk you being held for ransom. She stared at him. You're lying. This isn't about ransom. You think I can't handle the responsibility. Arista, it's my fault. I shouldn't have... Shouldn't have what? Made your witch sister ambassador? Don't be that way. I'm sorry, your majesty. What way would you like me to be? How should I react to being told I'm worthless and an embarrassment and that I should go sit in my room and... I didn't say that. Stop putting words in my mouth. It's what you're thinking. It's what all of you think. Have you become clairvoyant now, too? Do you deny it? Damn it, Arista. You were gone six months. He struck the arm of the throne with his fist. The dull thud sounded loudly off the walls like a bass drum. Six months and not a single alliance. You barely got a maybe. That's a pretty poor showing. This meeting with Gaunt is too important. It could be our last chance. She stood up. Forgive me, your majesty. I apologize for being such an utter failure. May I please have your royal permission to be excused? Arista, don't. Please, your majesty. My frail feminine constitution can't handle such a heated debate. I feel faint. Perhaps if I retire to my room, I could brew a potion to make myself feel better. While I'm at it, perhaps I could enchant a broom to fly around the castle for fresh air. She pivoted on her heel and marched out, slamming the great door behind her with a resounding boom. She stood with her back against the door, waiting, wondering if Ulrich would chase after her. Will he apologize and take back what he said and agree to let me go? She listened for the sound of his heels on the parquet. Silence. She wished she did know magic, because then no one could stop her from meeting with Gaunt. Ulrich was right. This was their last chance. And she was not about to leave the fate of Melangar to Dilnard Linroy, statesman extraordinaire. Besides, she had failed, and that made it her responsibility to correct the situation. She looked up to see Tim, or Tommy, leaning against the near wall, biting his fingernails. He glanced up at her and smiled. I hope you're planning on heading to the kitchens. I'm starved, practically eating my fingers here. He chuckled. She pushed away from the door and quickly strode down the corridor. She almost didn't see Marvin Pickering sitting on the broad sill of the courtyard-facing window. Feet up, arms folded, back against the frame, he crouched in a shaft of sunlight like a cat. He still wore the black clothes of mourning. "'Troubles with his majesty?' he asked. "'He's being an ass. "'What did he do this time?' "'Replaced me.' with that snivelling little wretch, Linroy. 
He's sending him on the Ellis Far in my place to contact Gaunt. Dilnar Linroy isn't a bad guy. He's... Listen, I really don't want to hear how wonderful Linroy is at the moment. I'm right in the middle of hating him. Sorry. She glanced at his side, and he immediately turned his attention back to the window. Still not wearing it? she asked. It doesn't go with my ensemble. The silver hilt clashes with black. It's been over a year since Fanon died. He turned back sharply. Since he was killed by Luis Guy, you mean? Arista took a breath. She was not used to the new Marvin. Aren't you supposed to be Ulrich's bodyguard now? Isn't that hard to do without a sword? Hasn't been a problem so far. You see, I have this plan. I sit here and watch the ducks in the courtyard. Well, I suppose it's not really so much a plan as a strategy. Or maybe it's more of a scheme. Anyway, this is the one place my father never thinks to look. So I can sit here all day and watch those ducks walking back and forth. There were six of them last year. Did you know that? Only five now. I can't figure out what happened to the other one. I keep looking for him. But I don't think he's coming back. It wasn't your fault, she told him gently. Marvin reached up and traced the lead edges of the window with his fingertips. Yeah, it was. She put her hand on his shoulder and gave a soft squeeze. She didn't know what else to do. First her mother, then her father and Fannin, and finally Hilfred. They were all gone. Marvin was slipping away as well. The boy who loved his sword more than wintertide presents, sweet chocolate cake, or swimming on a hot day, refused to touch it any more. The eldest son of Count Pickering, who had once challenged the sun to a duel because it had rained on the day of a hunt, spent his days watching ducks. "'Doesn't matter,' Marvin replied. "'The world is coming to an end anyway.' He looked up at her. "'You just said Ulrich is sending that bastard Linroy on the Ellis Far. He'll kill us all.' As hard as she tried, she couldn't help laughing. She punched his shoulder, then gave him a peck on the cheek. That's the spirit, Marvin. Keep looking on the bright side. She left him and continued down the hall. As she passed the office of the Lord Chamberlain, the old man hurried out. Your Highness, he called, looking relieved. The Royal Protector Royce Melbourne is still waiting to see if there's something else needed of him. Apparently, he and his partner are thinking of taking some time off. Unless there is something pressing the King requires, can I tell him he's excused? Yes, of course, you... No, wait. She cast a look at her bodyguard. Tommy, you're right, I'm hungry. Be a dear and fetch us both a plate of chicken or whatever you can find that's good in the kitchen, will you? I'll wait here. Sure, but my name is Harry before I change my mind. She waited until he was down the corridor, then turned back to the Chamberlain. 
Where did you say Royce was waiting? Chapter 4 The Nature of Right The Rose and Thorn Tavern was mostly empty. Many of its patrons had left Medford, fearful of the coming invasion. Those who remained were the indentured or those simply too poor, feeble, or stubborn to leave. Royce found Hadrian sitting alone in the diamond room, his feet up on a spare chair, a pint of ale before him. Two empty mugs sat on the table, one lying on its side while Hadrian stared at it with a melancholy expression. "'Why didn't you come to the castle?' Royce asked. "'I knew you could handle it!' Hadrian continued to stare at the mug, tilting his head slightly as he did. "'Looks like our break will have to be postponed.' Royce told him, while pulling over a chair and sitting down. Ulrich has another job. He wants us to make contact with Gaunt and the Nationalists. They're still working out the details. The Princess is going to send a messenger here. Her Highness is back. Got in this morning. Royce reached into his vest, pulled out a bag, and set it in front of Hadrian. Here's your half. Have you ordered dinner yet? I'm not going. Hadrian said, rocking the fallen mug with his thumb. Not going. I can't keep doing this. Royce rolled his eyes. Now don't start that again. If you haven't noticed, there's a war going on. This is the best time to be in our business. Everyone needs information. Do you know how much money... That's just it, Royce. There's a war on. And what am I doing? I'm making a profit off it rather than fighting in it. Hadrian took another swallow of ale and set the mug back on the table a little too heavily, rattling its brothers. I'm tired of collecting money for being dishonourable. It's not how I'm built. Royce glanced around. Three men eating a meal looked over briefly, then lost interest. They haven't all been just for money, Royce pointed out. Thrace, for example. Hadrian displayed a bitter smile. And look how that turned out. She hired us to save her father. Seen him lately, have you? We were hired to obtain a sword to slay a beast. She got the sword, the beast was slain, we did our job. The man is dead. And Thrace, who is nothing but a poor farm girl, is now empress, if only all our jobs ended so well for our clients. You think so, Royce? You really think Thrace is happy? See, I'm thinking she'd rather have a father than the imperial throne, but maybe that's just me. Hadrian took another swallow and wiped his mouth with his sleeve. They sat in silence for a moment. Royce watched his friend staring at a distant point beyond focus. So, you want to fight in this war? Is that it? It'd be better than sitting on the sidelines like scavengers feeding off the wounded. Okay. So tell me, for which side will you be fighting? Ulrich's a good king. Ulrich? Ulrich's a boy still fighting with the ghost of his father. After his defeat at the Gale War, his nobles looked to Count Pickering instead of him. Pickering has his hands full dealing with Ulrich's mistakes, like the riots here in Medford. 
How long before the Count tires of Ulrich's incompetence and decides Marvin would be better suited to the throne? Pickering would never turn an Ulrich, Hadrian said. No, you've seen it happen plenty of times before. Hadrian remained silent. Oh, hell, forget about Pickering and Ulrich. Melangar is already at war with the Empire. Have you forgotten who the Empress is? If you fought with Ulrich and he prevailed, how will you feel the day poor Thrace is hanged in the royal square in Equesta? Would that satisfy your need for an honourable cause? Hadrian's face had turned hard, his jaw clenched stiffly. There are no honourable causes. There is no good or evil. Evil is only what we call those who oppose us. Royce took out his dagger and drove it into the table where it stood upright. Look at the blade. Is it bright or dark? Hadrian narrowed his eyes suspiciously. The brilliant surface of Alverstone was dazzling as it reflected the candlelight. Bright! Royce nodded. Now, move your head over here and look from my perspective. Hadrian leaned over, putting his head on the opposite side of the blade, where the shadow made it black as chimney soot. It's the same dagger, Royce explained, but from where you sat it was light while I saw it as dark. So, who is right? Neither of us, Hadrian said. No, Royce said, that's the mistake people always make. They make it because they can't grasp the truth. Which is? That we're both right. One truth doesn't refute another. Truth doesn't lie in the object, but how we see it. Hadrian looked at the dagger, then back at Royce. There are times when you are brilliant, Royce, and there are times when I haven't a clue as to what you're babbling about. Royce's expression turned to one of frustration as he pulled his dagger from the table and sat back down. In the twelve years we've been together, I've never once asked you to do anything I wouldn't do or didn't do with you. I've never lied or misled you. I've never abandoned or betrayed you. Name a single noble you even suspect you could say the same about twelve years from now. Can I get another round here? Hadrian shouted. Royce sighed. So, you're just going to sit here and drink. That's my plan at the present. I'm making it up as I go. Royce stared at his friend a moment longer, then finally stood up. I'm going to Gwen's. Listen, Hadrian stopped him. I'm sorry about this. I guess I can't explain it. I don't have any metaphors with daggers I can use to express how I feel— I just know I can't keep doing what I've been doing anymore. I've tried to find meaning in it. I've tried to pretend we achieved some greater good, but in the end, I have to be honest with myself. I'm not a thief, and I'm not a spy. So, I know what I'm not. I just wish I knew what I am. That probably doesn't make much sense to you, does it? Do me a favour, at least. Royce purposely ignored the question, noticing how the little silver chain Hadrian wore peeked out from under his collar. Since you're going to be here anyway, keep an eye out for the messenger from the castle while I'm at Gwen's. 
I'll be back in an hour or so. Adrian nodded. Give Gwen my love, will you? Sure, Roy said, heading for the door and feeling that miserable sensation creeping in, the dull weight. He paused and looked back. It won't help to tell him. It'll just make matters worse. It had only been a day and a half, but Royce found himself desperate to see Gwen. While Medford House was always open, it didn't do much business until after dark. During the day, Gwen encouraged the girls to use their free time learning how to sew or spin, skills they could use to make a bit of coin in their old age. All the girls at the brothel, better known as The House, knew and liked Royce. When he came in, they smiled or waved, but no one said a word. They knew he enjoyed surprising Gwen. That night they pointed toward the parlour, where she was concentrating on a pile of parchments, a quill pen in hand, and her register open. She immediately abandoned it all when he walked through the door. She sprang from her chair and ran to him with a smile so broad her face could hardly contain it, and an embrace so tight he could barely breathe. "'What's wrong?' she whispered, pulling back and looking into his eyes. Royce marveled at Gwen's ability to read him. He refused to answer, preferring instead to look at her, drinking her in. She had a lovely face, her dark skin and emerald eyes so familiar yet mysterious. Throughout his entire life, and in all his travels, he had never met anyone else like her. Gwen provided use of a private room at the Rose and Thorn, where he and Hadrian conducted business, and she never blinked at the risks. They no longer used it. Royce was too concerned that Sentinel Luis Guy might track them there. Still, Gwen continued banking their money and watching out for them, just as she had done from the start. They had met twelve years ago. The night soldiers had filled the streets, and two strangers had staggered into the lower quarter, covered in their own blood. Royce still remembered how Gwen had appeared as a hazy figure to his clouding eyes. "'I've got you. You'll be all right now,' she told him, before he passed out. He never understood what had motivated her to take them in when everyone else had shown the good sense in closing their doors. When he had woken, she had been giving orders to her girls like a general marshalling troops. She sheltered Royce and Hadrian from the mystified authorities and nursed them back to health. She pulled strings and made deals to ensure no one talked. As soon as they were able, they left, but he always found himself returning. He had been crushed the day she refused to see him. It didn't take long for him to discover why. Clients often abused prostitutes, and the women of Medford House were not exempt. In Gwen's case, the attacker had been a powerful noble. He had beaten her so badly she didn't want anyone to see. Regardless of whether the client was a gentleman or a thug, the town sheriff never wasted his time on complaints by whores. Two days later, the noble had been found dead. His body hung in the centre of Gentry Square. City authorities had closed Medford House and arrested the prostitutes, they had been told to identify the killer or face execution themselves.
To everyone's surprise, the women spent only one night in jail. The next day, Medford House had reopened, and the sheriff of Medford personally delivered a public apology for their arrest, adding that swift punishment would follow any future abuse of the women, regardless of rank. From then on, Medford House prospered under unprecedented protection. Royce had never spoken of the incident, and Gwen never asked, but he was certain she knew, just as she had known about his heritage before he had told her. When he had returned from Avampartha the previous summer, he had decided to reveal his secret to her, to be completely open and honest. Royce had never told anyone about him being an elf, not even Hadrian. He expected that she would hate him, either for being a miserable mere or for deceiving her. He had taken Gwen for a walk down the bank of the Galewar, away from people to lessen the embarrassment of her outrage. He had braced himself, said the words, and waited for her to hit him. He had decided to let her. She could scratch his eyes out if she wanted. He owed her at least that much. "'Of course you're Elfin,' she had said while touching his hand kindly. "'Was that supposed to be a secret?' How she had known, she never explained. He had been so overwhelmed with joy to bother asking. Gwen just had a way of always knowing his heart. What is it? she asked again now. Why haven't you packed? Gwen paused and smiled. That was her way of letting him know he would not get away with it. Because there's been no need. The Imperial Army isn't attacking us. Royce raised an eyebrow. The king himself has his things packed and his horse at the ready to evacuate the city on a moment's notice, but you know better. She nodded. And how is that? If there was the slightest chance that Medford was in danger, you wouldn't be here asking me why I haven't packed. I'd be on Mouse's back, holding on for dear life, as you spurred her into a run. "'Still,' he said, "'I'd feel better if you moved to the monastery. "'I can't leave my girls. "'Take them with you. "'Myron has plenty of room. "'You want me to take whores to live in a monastery with monks? "'I want you to be safe. "'Besides, Magnus and Albert are there too, "'and I can guarantee you they're not monks.' "'I'll consider it.' "'She smiled at him. But you're leaving on another mission, so it can wait until you get back. How do you know these things? he asked, amazed. Ulrich ought to hire you instead of us. I'm from Calais. It's in our blood, she told him with a wink. When do you leave? Soon. Tonight, perhaps. I left Hadrian at the Rose and Thorn to watch for a messenger. Have you decided to tell Hadrian yet? He looked away. Oh, so that's it. Don't you think you should? No, just because a lunatic wizard... He paused. Listen, if I tell him what I saw, his reason will disappear. If Hadrian were a moth, he'd fly into every flame he could find. He'll sacrifice himself if necessary. And for what? Even if it's true... All that stuff with the air happened centuries ago and has nothing to do with him. 
There's no reason to think that Ezra Hardin wasn't just... Wizards toy with people, okay? It's what they do. He tells me to keep quiet, makes a big stink about how I have to take this secret to my grave, but you know damn well he expects me to tell Hadrian. I don't like being used, and I won't let Hadrian get himself killed at the whim of some wizard's agenda. Gwen said nothing, but looked at him with a knowing smile. What? Sounds like you're trying to convince yourself, and you're not doing very well. I think it might help if you consider you're one kind of person, and Hadrian is another. You are trying to look out for him, but you're using cat's eyes. I'm doing what? Puzzled for a moment, Gwen looked at Royce, then chuckled quietly. Oh, I suppose that must be a common saying only in Calais. Okay, let's say you're a cat, and Hadrian's a dog, and you want to make him happy. You give him a dead mouse, and are surprised when he isn't thrilled. The problem is that you need to see the world through the eyes of a dog to understand what's best for him. If you did, you would see that a nice juicy bone would be a better choice, even though to a cat it's not very appealing. So, you think I should let Hadrian go off and get himself killed? I'm saying that for Hadrian, maybe fighting, even dying, for something or someone is the same as a bone is to a dog. Besides, you have to ask yourself, is keeping quiet really for his sake or yours? First daggers, now dogs and cats, Royce muttered. What? Nothing. He let his hands run through her hair. How did you get so wise? Wise? She looked at him and laughed. I'm a thirty-four-year-old prostitute in love with a professional criminal. How wise can I possibly be? If you don't know, perhaps you should try seeing with my eyes. He kissed her warmly, pulling her tight. He recalled what Hadrian had said, and wondered if he was being stupid for not settling down with Gwen. He had noticed for some time a growing pain whenever he said goodbye, and a misery that dogged him whenever he left. Royce had never meant for it to happen. He always tried to keep her at a distance, for her own good as well as his. His life was dangerous, and only possible so long as he had no ties. Nothing others could use against him. Winters had caused him to crack. Deep snows and brutal cold kept Rhaeira idle in Medford for months. Huddled before the warmth of hearth-fires through the long dark nights, they had grown close. Casual chats had turned into long, intimate conversations, and conversations had changed to embraces and confessions. Royce found it impossible to resist her open kindness and generosity. She was so unlike anyone, an enigma that flew in the face of all he had come to expect from the world. She made no demands, and asked for nothing but his happiness. His feelings for Gwen had led to Royce and Hadrian's longest imprisonment six years earlier. They'd taken a job in the spring, sending them all the way to Alburn. 
The thought of leaving her dragged on him like a weight, especially because she was not feeling well. Gwen had contracted the flu and looked miserable. She claimed it was nothing, but she looked pale and barely ate. He almost didn't go, but she insisted. He could still remember her face with that brave little smile that had quivered oh so slightly at the edges as he had left her. The job had gone badly. Royce's concentration had suffered, mistakes had been made, and they had been left rotting in the dungeons of Blythen Castle. All he could do was sit and think about Gwen and wonder whether she was all right. As the months stretched out, he had begun to realize that if they survived, he would need to end their relationship. He resolved never to see her again, for both of their sakes. But the moment he had returned, the moment he had seen her again, felt her hands and smelled her hair, he knew leaving her would never be possible. Since that time, his feelings had only increased. Even now, the thought of leaving her, even for a week, was agony. Hadrian was right. He should quit and take her away somewhere, perhaps get a small bit of land where they could raise a family, somewhere quiet where no one knew Gwen as a prostitute or him as a thief. They could even go to Avampartha, that ancient citadel of his people. The tower stood vacant, far beyond the reaches of anyone who didn't know its secrets, and would likely remain that way indefinitely. The thought was appealing, but he pushed it back, telling himself he would revisit it soon. For now, he had people waiting, which brought his mind back to Hadrian. I suppose I could look into Ezra Hardin's story. Hadrian would be a fool for dedicating his life to someone else's dream, but at least I'd know it was genuine and not some kind of wizard's trick. How can you find out? Hadrian grew up in Hintendar. If his father was a Teshlor knight, maybe he left behind some indication. At least, then, I would have someone else's word instead of just Ezra Hardin's. Our job is taking us south. I could make a stop in Hintendar and see if I can find something out. By the way, he told her gently, I'll be gone a good deal longer than I have been. I want you to know, so you don't worry needlessly. I never worry about you, she told him. Royce's face reflected his pain. Gwen smiled. I know you'll return safely. And how do you know this? I've seen your hands. Royce looked at her, confused. I've read your palms, Royce, she told him, without a trace of humor. Or have you forgotten I also make a living as a fortune teller? Royce had not forgotten but had assumed it was just a way of swindling the superstitious. Not until that moment did he realize how inconsistent it would be for Gwen to deceive people. You have a long life ahead of you, she went on. Too long? That was one of the clues that you weren't completely human. So, I have nothing to worry about in my future. Gwen's smile faded abruptly. What is it? Nothing. Tell me, he persisted, gently lifting her chin until she met his eyes. It's just that 
You need to watch out for Hadrian. Did you look at his palms, too? No, she said. But your lifeline shows a fork, a point of decision. You'll head either into darkness and despair, or virtue and light. This decision will be precipitated by a traumatic event. What kind of event? The death of the one you love the most. Then shouldn't you be worried about yourself? Gwen smiled warmly at him. If only that were so, I'd die a happy woman. Rice, I'm serious about Hadrian. Please watch out for him. I think he needs you now more than ever. And I'm frightened for you if something were to happen to him. When Royce returned to the Rose and Thorn, he found Hadrian still seated at the same table, only was no longer alone. Beside him sat a small figure hooded in a dark cloak. Hadrian sat comfortably. Either the person sitting next to him was safe, or he was too drunk to care. Take it up with Royce when he gets here, Hadrian was saying, and looking up added, Ah, perfect timing. Are you from... Royce stopped as he sat down and saw the face beneath the hood. I do believe that is the first time I've ever surprised you, Royce, Princess Arista said. Oh, no, that's not true, Hadrian said, chuckling. You caught him way off guard when we were hanging in your dungeon, and you asked us to kidnap your brother. That was much more unpredictable, trust me. Royce was not pleased with meeting the princess in the open tavern room, and Hadrian was speaking far too loudly for his liking. Luckily, the room was empty. Most of the limited clientele preferred to cluster around the bar, where the door hung open to admit the cool summer breeze. That seems a lifetime ago, Arista replied thoughtfully. She has a job for you, Royce, Hadrian told him. For us, you mean. I told you, Hadrian looked at him but allowed a glance at the princess as well. I'm retired. Royce ignored him. What's been decided? Ulrich wants to make contact with Gaunt and his nationalists, Arista began. He feels, as the rest of us do, that if we can coordinate our efforts, we can create a formidable assault. Also, an alliance with the nationalists could very well be the advantage we need to persuade Trent to enter the war on our side. That's fine, Royce replied. I expected as much, but did you have to deliver this information yourself? Don't you trust your messengers? One can never be too careful. Besides, I'm coming with you. What? Royce asked, stunned. Hadrian burst into laughter. I knew you'd love that part, he said, grinning with the delight of a man blessed with immunity. I am the ambassador of Melangar, and this is a diplomatic mission. Events are transpiring rapidly, and negotiations may need to be altered to suit the situation. I've got to go, because neither of you can speak for the kingdom. I can't trust anyone, not even you two, with such an important mission. This meeting will likely determine whether or not Melangar survives another year. I hope you understand the necessity of having me along. Royce considered the proposal for a few minutes. You and your brother understand that I cannot guarantee your safety, 
She nodded. You also understand that between now and the time we reach Gaunt, you'll be required to obey Hadrian and myself, and you won't be provided any special treatment because of your station. I expect none. However, it must also be understood that I'm Ulrich's representative and, as such, speak with his voice. So, where safety and methods are concerned, you're granted authority, and I'll follow your direction, but as far as overall mission goals are concerned, I reserve the right to redirect or extend the mission, if necessary. And do you also possess the power to guarantee additional payment for additional services? I do. I now pronounce you client and escort, Hadrian said with a grin. As for you, Royce told him, you'd better have some coffee. I'm not going, Royce. What's all this about? Arista asked. Royce scowled and shook his head at her. Don't shut her up, Hadrian said. He turned to the princess and added, I've officially resigned from Ryera. We're divorced. Royce is single now. Really? Arista said. What will you do? He's going to sober up and get his gear. Royce, listen to me. I mean it. I'm not going. There is nothing you can say to change my mind. Yes, there is. What? Have you come up with another fancy philosophical argument? It's not going to work. I told you. I'm done. It's over. I'm not kidding. I've had it. Hadrian watched his partner suspiciously. Royce simply looked back with a smug expression. At last, Hadrian asked, Okay, what is it? I'm curious now. What do you think you could possibly say to change my mind? Royce hesitated a moment, glancing uncomfortably at Arista, then sighed. Because I'm asking you to, as a favour. After this mission, if you still feel the same way, I won't fight you and we can part as friends. But I'm asking you now, as my friend, to please come with me just one last time. Just then, the barmaid arrived at the table. Another round? Hadrian did not look at her. He continued to stare at Royce, then sighed. Apparently not. I guess I'll take a cup of coffee. Strong and black. Chapter 5 Sheridan Trapped in her long dress and riding cloak, Arista baked as the heat of summer arrived early in the day. Making matters worse, Royce insisted she travel with her hood up. She wondered at its value, as she guessed she was just as conspicuous riding so heavily bundled as she would be if riding naked. Her clothes stuck to her skin, and it was difficult to breathe, but she said nothing. Royce rode slightly ahead on his grey mare, which, tourist a surprise, they called Mouse. A cute name, not at all what she had expected. As always, Royce was dressed in black and greys, seemingly oblivious to the heat. His eyes scanned the horizon and forest eaves. Perhaps his elven blood made him less susceptible to the hardships of weather. Even after finding out a year ago, she still marvelled at his mixed race.
Why had I never noticed? Hadrian followed half a length behind on her right, exactly where Hilfrid used to position himself. It gave her a familiar feeling of safety and security. She glanced back at him and smiled under her hood. He wasn't immune to the heat. His brow was covered in sweat, and his shirt clung to his chest. His collar lay open. His sleeves were rolled up, revealing strong arms. A noticeable silence marked their travel. Perhaps it was the heat or a desire to avoid prying ears, but the lack of conversation denied her a natural venue to question their direction. After slipping out of Medford before sunrise, they had travelled north, across fields and deer paths, into the highlands, before swinging east and catching the road. Arista understood the need for secrecy, and a roundabout course would help confuse any would-be spies. But instead of heading south, Royce led them north, which made no sense at all. She had held her tongue as hours had passed, and they continued to ride out of Melangar and into Ghent. Arista was certain Royce took this route for a reason, and after she agreed to follow their leadership, it would be imprudent to question his judgment so early in their trip. Arista was back in the high Meadowlands, where only the day before she had caught her first sight of the Imperial troops gathered against Melangar. A flurry of activity was now underway on the far side of the Galewar as the army packed up. Tents collapsed, wagons lined up, and masses of men started forming columns. She was fascinated by the sheer number, and guessed there could be more Imperial soldiers than citizens remaining in the city of Medford. The Meadowlands gave way to forest, and the view disappeared behind the crest. The shade brought little relief from the heat. If only it would rain. The sky was overcast, but rain wasn't certain. Arista knew, however, that it was possible to make rain. She recalled at least two ways. One involved an elaborate brewing of compounds and burning the mixture out of doors. This method should result in precipitation within a day, but was not entirely reliable and failed more often than it succeeded. The other approach was more advanced and instantaneous, requiring great skill and knowledge. It could be accomplished with only hand movements, a focused mind, and words. The first technique she had learned as part of her studies at Sheridan University, where the entire class had attempted it without producing a single drop. The latter... Ezra Hardin had tried to teach her, but because the church had amputated his hands, he could not demonstrate the complex finger movements. This had always been the major obstacle in studying with him. Arista had nearly given up trying when one day, almost by accident, she had made a guard sneeze. Feeling the power of the art for the first time had been an odd sensation, like flipping a tiny lever and sliding a gear into place. She had succeeded, not due to Ezra Hardin's instructions, but rather because she had been fed up with him. To alleviate her boredom during a state dinner, Arista had been running Ezra Hardin's instructions through her head— she purposefully ignored his directions and instead tried something on her own. Doing so had felt easier.
simpler. Discovering the right combination of movements and sounds had been like plucking the perfect note of music at exactly the right time. That sneeze, and a short-lived curse placed on Countess Amaral, had been her only magical successes during her apprenticeship with Ezra Harden. Arista had failed the rain spell hundreds of times. After her father had been murdered, she stopped attempting magic altogether. She had become too busy helping Ulrich with their kingdom to waste time on such childish games. Arista glanced skyward and thought, What else do I have to do? She recalled the instructions, and letting the reins hang limp on her horse's neck, she practiced the delicate weaving patterns in the air. The incantation she recalled easily enough, but the motions were all wrong. She could feel the awkwardness in the movements. There needed to be a pattern to the movement, a rhythm, a pace. She tried different variations and discovered she could tell which motions felt right and which felt wrong. The process was like fitting puzzle pieces together while blindfolded, or working out the notes of a melody by ear. She would simply guess at each note until, by sheer chance, she hit upon the right one. Then, after adding it to the whole, she moved on to the next. Doing it this way was tedious, but it kept her mind occupied. She caught a curious glance from Hadrian, but she didn't explain, nor did he ask. Arista continued to work at the motions as the miles passed until, mercifully, it began to rain on its own. She looked up so that the cool droplets hit her face and wondered if boredom had prompted her recollection of her magical studies or if it was because they had steered off the Stuart's Highway and were now on the road to Sheridan University. Sheridan existed for the sons of merchants and scribes who needed to know mathematics and writing. Nobility rarely attended, and certainly not future rulers. Kings had no need for mathematics or philosophy. For that, he employed advisers. All he needed to know was the correct way to swing a sword, the proper tactics of military maneuvers, and the hearts of men. School couldn't teach these things. While it had been rare for a prince or a duke's son to attend the university, the thought of a princess going there was unheard of. Arista had spent some of her happiest years within the sheltered valley of Sheridan. Here the world had opened up to her, and she had escaped the suffocating vacuum of courtly life. In Melangar, her only purpose had been the same as the statues, an adornment for the castle halls. At Sheridan, she could forget that she would eventually be a commodity, married for the benefit of the kingdom. Arista's father hadn't been pleased with her abnormal interest in books, but he had never forbidden her from reading them. She had kept her habit discreet, which had caused her to spend more and more time alone. She had taken books from the scribe's collection and scrolls from the clergy. Most often, she borrowed tomes from Bishop Soldor, who had left behind stacks of them after visits with her father. She had spent hours reading in the sanctuary of her tower, whisked away to far-off lands where, for a time, she was happy. Books filled her head with ideas, thoughts of a larger world, of adventures beyond the halls, and the dream of a life lived bravely 
heroically. Through these treasures she learned about Sheridan, and later about Gutara prison. Arista remembered the day she'd asked her father for permission to attend the university. At first he had adamantly refused and laughed, patting her head. She'd cried herself to sleep, feeling trapped, all her ideas and ambitions sealed forever in a permanent prison. When her father had changed his mind the next day, it had never occurred to her to ask him why. What are we doing here? It irked her not knowing. Patience was a virtue she still wrestled with. As they descended into the university's veil, she felt a modest inquiry wouldn't hurt. She opened her mouth, but Hadrian beat her to it. Why are we going to Sheridan? he asked, trotting up closer to Royce. Information, Royce replied in his normal, curt manner, which betrayed nothing else. It's your party. I'm just along for the ride. No, 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 she thought. Ask more. Arista waited. Hadrian let his horse drift back. This was her opening. She had to say something. Did you know I attended school there? You should speak to the Master of Law, Arcadius. The Chancellor is a pawn of the Church, but Arcadius can be trusted. He's a wizard, and used to be my professor. He'll know, or be able to find out whatever it is you're interested in. That was perfect. She straightened up in her saddle, pleased with herself. Common politeness would demand Royce reveal his intentions now that she had shown an interest, demonstrated some knowledge on the subject, and offered to help. She waited. Nothing. The silence returned. I should have asked a question, something to force him to respond. Damn! Gritting her teeth, she slumped forward in frustration. Arista considered pressing further, but the moment had passed— and now it would be difficult to say anything more without sounding critical. Being an ambassador had taught her the value of timing and of being conscious of other people's dignity and authority. Since she had been born a princess, it was a lesson not easily learned. She opted for silence, listening to the rain drum on her hood and the horses plod through the mud as they descended into the valley. The stone statue of Glen Morgan, holding a book in one hand and a sword in the other, stood in the centre of the university. Walkways, benches, trees and flowers surrounded the statue on all sides, as did numerous school buildings. A growing enrolment had required the addition of several lecture halls and dormitories, each reflecting the architectural style of its time. In the grey sheets of rain, the university looked like a mirage— a whimsical, romantic dream conceived in the mind of a man who spent his entire life at war. That an institution of pure learning existed in a world of brutish ignorance was more than a dream. It was a miracle, a testament to the wisdom of Glen Morgan. Glen Morgan had intended the school to educate laymen at a time when hardly anyone but ecclesiastics could read. Its success was unprecedented. Sheridan achieved eminence above every other seat of learning, winning the praises of patriarchs, kings, and sages. 
Early on, Sheridan also established itself as a centre for lively controversy, with scholars involved in religious and political disputes. Handel of Rowe, a master of Sheridan, had campaigned for Ghent's recognition of the newly established Republic of Delgos against the wishes of the Nephron Church. Also, the school had been decidedly pro-royalist in the civil wars following the Stuarts' reign. That had come to be an embarrassment to the Church, which had retained control of Ghent. The humiliation led to the heresy trials of the three masters, Cranston, Landonier, and Widley, all burned at the stake on the Sheridan Commons. This quieted the school's political voice for more than a century, until Edmund Hall, professor of geometry and law at Sheridan, claimed to use clues gleaned from ancient texts to locate the runes of Persepolis. He disappeared for a year, and returned with books and tablets revealing arts and sciences long lost, spurring an interest in all things imperial. At this time, a greater orthodoxy had emerged within the church, and it outlawed owning or obtaining holy relics, as all artifacts from the old empire had been deemed. They arrested Hall, and locked him in Irvinon's crown tower, along with his notes and maps. The church later declared that Hall had never found the city, and that the books were clever fakes, but no one ever heard from Edmund Hall again. The traditions of Cranston, Landoner, Widley, and Hall were embodied in the present master of law, Arcadius Finterus Latimer. Arista's old magic teacher had never appeared to notice the boundaries of good taste, much less those of political or religious significance. Chancellor Lambert was the school's head, because the church found his political leanings satisfactory to the task, but Arcadius was Sheridan's undisputed heart and soul. "'Should I take you to Master Arcadius?' Arista asked, as they left their horses in the charge of the stable warden. "'He really is very smart and trustworthy.' Royce nodded, and she promptly led them through the now-driving rain into Glen Hall, as most students refer to the original Grand Imperial College building, in deference to Glen Morgan. An elaborate cathedral-like edifice it embodied much of the grandeur of the Stuarts' reign that was sadly missing from the other university buildings. Neither Royce nor Hadrian said a word as they followed her up the stairs to the second floor, shaking the water from their travel cloaks and their hair. Inside it was quiet, the air stuffy and hot. Because several people could easily recognize her, Arista remained in the confines of her hood. So... As you can see, it would be possible to turn lead into gold, but it would require more than the gold's resulting worth to make the transformation permanent, thus causing the process to be entirely futile, at least using this method. Arista heard Arcadius's familiar voice booming as they approached the lecture hall. There are some, of course, who take advantage of the temporary transformation to dupe the unwary, creating a very realistic fool's gold that hours later reveals itself to be lead. The lecture room was lined with tiers of seats, all filled with identically gowned students. At the podium stood the lawmaster, a thin, elderly man with a blue robe, a white beard, and spectacles perched on the end of his nose. 
The danger here is that once the ruse has been discovered, the victim is often more than mildly unhappy about it. This comment drew laughter from the students. Before you put too much thought into the idea of amassing a fortune based on illusionary gold, you should know that it's been tried. This crime, and it is a crime, usually results in the victim taking out his anger on the perpetrator of the hoax in the form of a rather unceremonious execution. This is why you don't see your master of lore dressed in the finest silks from Vanden, travelling about in an eight-horse carriage with an entourage of retainers. More laughter. Arista was unclear whether the lecture was at the end or if Arcadius spotted the party on the rise and cut the class short. In any case, the lawmaster closed his instruction for the day with reminders about homework and dates of exams. As most of the students filed out, a few gathered around their professor with questions, which he patiently addressed. "'Give me a chance to introduce you,' Arista said as they descended the tears. "'I know Arcadius looks a little... odd, but he's really very intelligent.' "'And the frog exploded, didn't it?' the wizard was saying to a young man wearing a sober expression. "'Made quite a mess too, sir,' his companion offered. "'Yes, they usually do,' Arcadius said in a sympathetic tone. The lad sighed. "'I don't understand. I mixed the nitric acid, sulfuric acid, and the glycerin and fed it to him. He seemed fine. Just as you said in class, the blackmuck frog's stomach held the mixture— but then when he hopped, the boy's shoulders slumped while his friend mimicked an explosion with his hands. The lawmaster chuckled. Next time dissect the frog first and remove the stomach. There's a lot less chance of it jumping then. Now run along and clean up the library before Master Falquin gets back. The two boys scampered off. Royce closed the door to the lecture hall after them, at which point the princess felt it was safe to remove her cloak. Princess Arista! Arcadius exclaimed in delight, walking toward her with his arms wide. The two exchanged a fond embrace. Your Highness, what a wonderful surprise! Let me look at you. He stepped back, still holding her hands. A bit dishevelled, soaking wet, and tracking mud into my classroom. How nice! It's as if you're a student here again. Master Arcadius, the princess began formally, allow me to introduce Royce Melbourne and Hadrian Blackwater. They have some questions for you. Oh, he said, eyeing the two curiously. This sounds serious. It is, Hadrian replied. He took a moment to search the room for any remaining students, while Royce locked the doors. Arista saw the puzzled expression on her instructor's face and explained, You have to understand, they're cautious people by trade. I can see that. So, I'm to be interrogated, is that it? Arcadius asked accusingly. No, she said. I think they just want to ask a few questions. And if I don't answer, will they beat me until I talk? Of course not. Are you so sure? You said that you think they're here to ask questions. 
but I think they're here to kill me. Isn't that right? The fact is, you know too much, Royce told the wizard, his tone abruptly turning vicious. He reached into his cloak and drew out his dagger as he advanced on the old man. It's time we silenced you permanently. Royce! Arista shouted in shock. She turned to Hadrian, who sat relaxed in the front row of the lecture hall, casually eating an apple plucked from the lawmaster's table. Hadrian, do something! she pleaded. The old man shuffled backward, trying to put more distance between him and Royce. Hadrian didn't respond, eating the apple like a man without a worry in the world. Royce! Hadrian! Arista screamed at them. She could not believe what she was seeing. Sorry, princess, Hadrian finally said, but this old man has caused us a great deal of trouble in the past, and Royce is not one to forgive debts easily. You might want to close your eyes. She should leave, Royce said. Even if she doesn't see, she'll hear the screams. So, you're not going to be quick, the old man whispered. Hadrian sighed. I'm not cleaning the mess up this time. But you can't. I... I... Arista stood frozen in terror. Royce closed the distance between him and Arcadius in a sudden rush. Wait. The wizard's voice quavered as he held up a hand to ward him off. I think I'm entitled to ask at least one question before I'm butchered. What is it? Royce asked menacingly, his dagger raised and gleaming. How's your lovely Gwen doing? She's fine, Royce replied, lowering his blade. She told me to be certain to tell you she sent her love. Arista glared at each of them. But what? I... You know each other? Arcadius chuckled as Hadrian and Royce snickered sheepishly. I'm sorry, my dear. The professor held up his hands and cringed slightly. I just couldn't resist. An old man has so few opportunities to be whimsical. Yes, I've known these two surly characters for years. I knew Hadrian's father before Hadrian was born, and I met Royce when he was... The lawmaster paused briefly. Well, younger than he is today. Hadrian took another bite of the apple and looked up at her. Arcadius introduced me to Royce and gave us our first few jobs together. And you've been inseparable ever since. The wizard smiled. It was a sound pairing. You have been a good influence on each other. Left on your own, the two of you would have fallen into ruin. There was a noticeable exchange of glances between Royce and Hadrian. You only say that because you don't know what we've been up to, Hadrian mentioned. Don't assume too much. Arcadius shook a menacing finger at him. I keep tabs on you. So, what brings you here? Just a few questions I thought you would be able to shed some light on, Royce told him. Why don't we talk in your study while Hadrian and Arista settle in and get out of their wet things? Is it all right if we spend the night here? Certainly. I'll have dinner brought up. Although you picked a bad day, the kitchen is serving meat pies. He made a grimace. Arista stood stiffly, feeling her heart still racing. She narrowed her eyes and glared. I hate 
all of you. Barrels, bottles, flasks, exotic instruments, jars containing bits of animals swimming in foul-smelling liquids, and a vast array of other oddities cluttered the small office and spilled out into the hallway. Shelves of web-covered books lined the walls. Aquariums displayed living reptiles and fish. Cages stacked to the ceiling housed pigeons, mice, moles, raccoons, and rabbits, filling the cramped office with the sounds of chirps, chatters, and squeaks, which accompanied the musky scent of books, beeswax, spices, and animal dung. You cleaned up, Royce said with feigned surprise as he carefully entered and stepped around the books and boxes scattered on the floor. Quiet you, the wizard scolded looking over the top of his glasses, which rested at the end of his nose. You hardly ever visit any more, and you don't need to be impertinent when you do. Royce closed the door and slid the bolt, which drew another look from the wizard. Then, from his cloak, he pulled out a silver amulet hanging from a thin chain. What can you tell me about this? Arcadius took the jewellery from him and moved to his desk, where he held it near the flame of a candle. He looked at it only briefly, and then lifted his spectacles. This is Hadrian's medallion, the one his father gave him when he turned thirteen. Are you trying to test me for senility? Did you know Ezra Hardin made it? Did he? Remember when I spoke with him in Dahlgren last summer? I didn't mention it before, but, according to him— the Church instigated a coup against the Emperor nine hundred years ago. He insists that he remained loyal and made two amulets. One he gave to the Emperor's son, and the other to the boy's bodyguard. He claimed to have sent them into hiding while he stayed behind. These amulets are supposed to be enchanted, so only Ezra Hardin could find them. When Arista and I were with him in Avampartha, he conjured images of the people wearing his necklaces. And you saw Hadrian? Royce nodded. As the guardian, or the heir? Guardian. And the heir? Blonde hair, blue eyes, no one I recognized. I see, Arcadius said. But you haven't told Hadrian what you saw. What makes you say that? The wizard let the amulet and the chain fall into his palm. You're here alone. Royce nodded. Hadrian's been moody lately. If I tell him he'll want to fulfill his destiny, go find this long-lost heir and be his whipping boy. He won't even question it, because he'll want it to be true. And I don't think it is. I think Ezra Hardin is up to something— I don't want either of us to be pawns in his effort to bring his choice for emperor to the throne. You think Ezra Hardin is lying? That he conjured false images to manipulate you? That's what I came here to find out. Is it even possible to make enchanted amulets? If so, is it possible to locate the wearers by magic? And you knew Hadrian's father. Did he ever say anything to you about being the guardian to the heir of Novron? Arcadius turned the amulet over in his hand. 
I don't have the art to enchant objects to resist magic, nor can I use magic to seek people. But a lot was lost when the old empire crumbled. Preserving him in that prison for nearly a thousand years makes Ezra Hadden unique in his knowledge, so I can't intelligently say what he is or isn't capable of. As for Danbury Blackwater, I don't recall him ever telling me he was the guardian of the air. That isn't the kind of thing I would likely forget. So, I'm right. This is all a lie. It may not be a lie per se. You realize it's possible, even likely, that Danbury could have the amulet and not be anyone special. Nine hundred years is a long time to expect an heirloom to stay in the possession of one family. The odds are weighed heavily against it. Personal effects are lost every day. This is made of silver, and a poor man in a moment of desperation and convinced any story he was told is just a myth could be tempted to sell it for food. Moreover, what should happen if the owner died, killed in an accident, and this medallion was taken from the dead body and sold. This has likely passed through hundreds of hands before ever reaching Danbury. If what you say is true, Ezra Hardin's incantation merely revealed the wearer of the amulet and not the identity of the original owner's descendants, so it's possible Ezra Hardin may be sincere and still be wrong. Even if Danbury was the descendant of the last Teshlor, he might not have known any more than Hadrian does. His father, or his father before him, could have failed to mention it because it didn't matter any more. The line of the air may have died out, or the two became separated centuries ago. Is that what you think? Arcadius took off his glasses and wiped them. For centuries people have searched for the descendants of the Emperor Narion, and no one has ever found them. The Empire itself searched for Narion's son, Navrik, with all the power of great wizards and questing knights at a time when they could identify him by sight. They failed, unless you accept the recent declaration that they found the heir in the form of this farm girl from Dolgren. Thrace is not the heir, Royce said simply. The church orchestrated that whole incident as theatrics to anoint their choice for ruler. They botched the job and she accidentally caught the prize. The wizard nodded. So, I think common sense decrees that an heir no longer exists, if he ever existed to begin with. Unless... He trailed off. Unless what? Nothing. Arcadius shook his head. Royce intensified his stare until the wizard relented. Just supposition, really. But, well, it just seems too romantic that the heir and the bodyguard could have lived all alone on the run for so long, managing to hide while the entire world hunted them. What are you suggesting? Royce asked. After the Emperor's death, when Navrik fled with his bodyguard, the Teshlor Jerish, wouldn't they have had friends? 
Wouldn't there have been hundreds of people loyal to the Emperor's son, willing to help conceal him, support him, organize an attempt to put him back on the throne? Of course, this organization would have to act in secrecy, given that the bulk of the dying empire was in the control of the church. Are you saying such a group exists? Royce asked. Arcadius shrugged. I am only speculating here. You are doing more than just speculating. What do you know? Well, I've come across some odd references in various texts to a group known only as the Theorem Eldership. I first discovered them in a bit of historical text from 2465, about the time of the Stuart's reign of Glenmorgan II. Some priest made a brief notation about a sect by that name. Of course, at that time, anyone who opposed the church was considered heretical, so I didn't give it much thought. Then I spotted another reference to the same group in a very old letter sent from Lord Darius Surrett to Patriarch Venlin, dating back to within the first twenty years after the death of the Emperor Narian. Lord Surrett? Royce asked. As in, Surrett Knights? Indeed, Arcadius said. The Duke was commanded by the Patriarch to locate the whereabouts of Navrik, Emperor Narian's missing son. He formed an elite band of knights who swore an oath to find the heir. A hundred years after the death of Darius, the knights adopted their official name, the Order of the Surrett Knights, which was later shortened out of convenience. Quite ironic, actually, as their responsibilities and influence broadened dramatically. You'd hardly know it, as the Surrett work mostly in secret, hidden so they can perform their duties invisibly. They still report directly to the Patriarch. It's really just a matter of perceptive logic. Given that there's a pseudo-invisible order of knights seeking to hunt down the air— doesn't it seem sensible to conclude that there is another unseen group to protect him? Arcadius stood up and, with no trouble navigating his way through the room's debris, reached the far wall. There a slate hung, and with a bit of chalk he wrote, Theorem Eldership. Then he crossed out each letter and, rearranging them underneath, wrote, Shield the Emperor. He returned to his desk and sat back down. If you decide to search for the heir, Arcadius told Royce in a grave tone, be very careful. This is not some bit of jewellery you seek, and he may be protected and hunted by men who will sacrifice their lives and use any means against you. If any of this is true, then I fear you'll be entering into a world of shadows and lies, where a silent, secret war has been waging for nearly a thousand years. There'll be no honour and no quarter given. It's a place where people disappear without a trace, and martyrs thrive. No price will be too great, no sacrifice too awful. What's at stake in this struggle, at least in their eyes? is the very future of Elan. The number of students at Sheridan always diminished in summer, 
so Arcadius arranged for them to sleep in the vacated top floor, known as Glen's Attic. The fourth-floor dormitory in Glen Hall lacked even a single window and was oven-hot in summer. Home to the sons of affluent farmers, the upper dorm was deserted this time of year as students returned home to tend crops. This left the entire loft to them, a single long room with a slanted ceiling so low even Arista had to watch her head or risk hitting a rafter. Cots jutted out from the wall where the ceiling met the floor, each nothing more than a straw mattress on simple wooden frames. Personal belongings were absent, but every inch of wood was etched with a mosaic of names, phrases, or drawings, seven centuries of student memoirs. Arista and Hadrian worked at drying their wet gear. They laid everything made of cloth across the floor, and damp stains spread across the ancient timbers. Everything was soaked and smelled of horse. "'I'll get a drying line up,' Hadrian told her. "'We can use the blankets to create a bit of privacy for you at the same time.' He gave her a quizzical look. "'What?' He shook his head. "'I've just never seen a soaking wet princess before.' You sure you want to do this? It's not too late. We can still head back to Medford, and I'll be fine. She headed for the stairs. Where are you going? To bring up the rest of the bags. It's probably still raining, and I can get those just as soon— Arista interrupted him. You have ropes to tie, and, as you pointed out, I'm already soaked. She descended the steps. Her shoes squished, and her wet dress hung with added weight. No one thinks I can handle this. Arista knew she had led a pampered life. She was no fool, but neither was she made of porcelain. How much fortitude does it take to live like a peasant? She was the princess of Melangar, and daughter of King Amrath Essendon. She could rise to any occasion— they all had her so well defined, but she wasn't like Linnea Pickering. She didn't sit all day considering which dress went best with her golden locks. Arista stroked her still dripping head and felt her flat, tangled hair. Linnea would have fainted by now. Outside, the rain had stopped, which left the air filled with the earthy smell of grass, mud, and worms. Everything glistened, and breezes touched off showers beneath trees. Arista had forgotten her cloak. It lay four flights up. She was going only a short distance and would be quick, but by the time she reached the carriage house, she regretted her decision. Three gown-draped students stood in the shadows, talking about the new horses. They're from Melangar the tallest said, with the confident, superior tone of a young noble speaking to lesser men. You can tell by the Medford brand on that one. So, Lane, you think Melangar has fallen already? The shortest of them asked. Of course. I'll wager Brecton took it last night, or maybe early this morning. That's why the owners of these horses are here. They're probably refugees, cowards fleeing like rats from a sinking ship. Deserters? Maybe, Lane replied. If Melangar really did fall last night, 
It might have been the king himself who fled, the short one speculated. Don't be a rube, the second tallest told him. A king would never ride on nags like these. Don't be too sure of that, Blaine came to the little one's defence. Ulrich isn't much of a real king. They say he and his witch sister killed their father and stole the throne just as he was about to name Percy Braga his successor. I even heard that Ulrich has taken his sister as his mistress, and there's talk of her becoming queen. That's disgusting. The church would never allow that, said the other. Ulrich kicked the church out of Melangar months ago because he knew it would try to stop him, Lane explained. You have to understand that the Melangarians aren't civilized people. They're still mostly barbarians and slip further back into their tribal roots every year. Without the church to watch over them, they'll be drinking the blood of virgins and praying to Uberlin before the year is out. They allow elves to run free in their cities for Meribor's sake. Did you know that? Arista couldn't see their faces as she stood beyond the doorway, carefully keeping herself hidden. So, perhaps this is the nag the King of Melangar escaped on. He could be staying in one of the dorm rooms right now, plotting his next move. Do you think Chancellor Lambert knows? I doubt it, Lane replied. I don't think a good man like Lambert would allow a menace like Ulrich to stay here. Should we tell him? Why don't you tell him, Hinkle? Lane said to the short fellow. Why me? You should do it. After all, you're the one that noticed them. Me? I don't have time. Lady Chastelin sent me another letter today, and I need to work on my reply lest she drives a dagger into her chest for fear I've forgotten her. Don't look at me, said the remaining one. I'll admit it. Lambert scares me. The others laughed. No, I'm serious. He scares the wax out of me. I was sent to his office last semester because of that rabid rat stunt Jason pulled. I'd rather he'd just cane me. Together they walked off, continuing their chatter, which drifted to Lady Chastelin and doubts of her devotion to Lane. Arista waited a moment until she was certain they were gone, then found the bags near the saddles and stuffed one under her arm. She grabbed the other two and quickly, but carefully, returned across the commons and slipped back up the stairs of Glen Hall. Hadrian wasn't in the loft when she returned, but he had the lines up and blankets hanging from them to divide the room. She slipped through the makeshift curtain and began the miserable task of stringing out her wet things. She changed into her nightgown and robe. They'd been near the centre of her bag and only slightly damp. Then she began throwing the rest of her clothes over the lines. Hadrian returned with a bucket of water and paused when he spotted Arista brazenly hanging her petticoats and corset. She felt her face flush as she imagined what he was thinking. Not only did she travel unescorted with two men, but she was bedding down in the same room, albeit a large and segmented hall, and now she hung her undergarments for them to see. She was surprised they hadn't questioned her more intently. She knew the unusual circumstances she travelled under would eventually come up. Royce wasn't the type to miss something as suspicious as a maiden princess travelling alone in the company of two rogues, no matter how highly esteemed by the crown. As for her clothes, 
There was no other way or place to dry them safely, so it was this or wear them wet in the morning. There was no sense being prissy about it. Royce entered the dorm as she finished her work. He was wearing his cloak with the hood up. It dripped a puddle on the floor. We'll be leaving well before dawn, he pronounced. Is something wrong? Hadrian asked. I found a few students snooping around the carriage house when I made my rounds. He does that, Hadrian explained to Arista. Sort of an obsession he has. Can't sleep otherwise. You were there? Royce nodded. They won't be troubling us any more. Arista felt the blood drained from her face. You... you killed them? she asked in a whisper. As she said it, she felt sick. A few minutes earlier, listening to the horrible discussion, she had found herself wishing them harm, but she hadn't meant it. They were little more than children. She knew, however, that Royce might not see it that way. She had come to realize that for him a threat was a threat, no matter the package. I considered it. No tone of sarcasm tempered his words. If they had turned left toward the Chancellor's residence instead of right toward the dormitories. But they didn't. They went straight to their rooms. Nevertheless, we'll not be waiting until morning. We'll be leaving in a few hours. That way, even if they do start a rumor about horses from Melangar, we'll be long gone by the time it reaches the right ears. The Empire spies will assume we're heading to Trent to beg their aid. We'll need to get you a new mount, though, before heading to Colnora. If we're leaving as soon as that, I should go see Arcadius about that meal he promised, Hadrian said. No, Arista told him hastily. They looked at her, surprised. She smiled, embarrassed by her outburst. I'll go. It'll give you two a chance to change out of your wet things without me here. Before they could say anything, she slipped out and down the hallway to the stairs. It had been nearly a year since that morning on the bank of the Nidwalden River, when Ezra Hardin had put a question in her head. The wizard had admitted using her to orchestrate the murder of her father to facilitate his escape, but he had also suggested there was more to the story. This could be her only chance to speak with Arcadius. She took a right at the bottom of the stairs and hurried to his study. Arcadius sat on a stool at a small wooden desk on the far side of the room, studying a page of a massive tome. Beside him was a brazier of hot coals and an odd contraption she had never seen before. A brown liquid hung suspended above the heat of the brazier in a glass vial as a steady stream of bubbles rose from a small stone immersed in the liquid. The steamy vapors rose through a series of glass tubes and passed through another glass container filled with salt crystals. From the end of that tube, a clear fluid slowly dripped into a small flask. A yellow liquid also hung suspended above the flask, and through a valve one yellow drop fell for each clear one. As these two liquids mixed, white smoke silently rose into the air. Occasionally he adjusted a valve, added salt, or pumped bellows, 
causing the charcoal to grow red-hot. At her entrance, Arcadius looked up. He removed his glasses, wiped them with a rag from the desk, and put them back on. He peered at her through squinting eyes. Ah, my dear, come in. Then, as if remembering something important, he hastily twisted one of the valves. A large puff of smoke billowed up, causing several of the animals in the room to chatter. The stone fell to the bottom of the vial, where it lay quietly. The animals calmed down, and the elderly master of law turned and smiled at Arista, motioning for her to join him. This was no easy feat. Arista searched for open floor to step on and, finding little, grabbed the hem of her robe and opted to step on the sturdiest-looking objects in the shortest path to the desk. The wizard waited patiently with a cheery smile, his high, rosy cheeks causing the edges of his eyes to wrinkle like a bedsheet held in a fist. "'You know,' he began as she made the perilous crossing, I always find it interesting what paths my students take to reach me. Some are direct, while others take more of a roundabout approach. Some end up getting lost in the clutter, and others find the journey too much trouble and give up altogether, without even reaching me. Arista was certain he implied more than he said, but she had neither the time nor the inclination to explore it further. Instead, she replied, Perhaps if you straightened up a bit, you wouldn't lose so many students. The wizard tilted his head. I suppose you're right, but where would be the fun in that? Arista stepped over the rabbit cage, around the large pestle and mortar, and stood before the desk on a closed cover of a book no less than three feet in height and two in width. The law master looked down at her feet, pursed his lips, and nodded his approval. That's Glen Morgan II's biography, easily seven hundred years old. Arista looked alarmed. Not to worry, not to worry, he told her, chuckling to himself. It's a terrible book, written by church propagandists. The perfect platform for you to stand on, don't you think? Arista opened her mouth, thought about what she was going to say, and then closed it again. The wizard chuckled some more. Ah, yes, they've gone and made an ambassador out of you, haven't they? You've learned to think before you speak. I suppose that's good. Now tell me, what brings you to my office at this hour? If it's about dinner, I apologize for the delay, but the stoves were out and I needed to fetch a boy to get them fired again. I also had to drag the cook away from a card game, which he wasn't at all pleased about but a meal is being prepared as we speak, and I'll have it brought up the moment it's finished. It's not that, Master. He put a hand up to stop her. You are no longer a student here. You are a princess and ambassador of Melangar. If you call me Arcadius, I won't call you Your Highness. Agreed? The grin of his was just too infectious to fight. She nodded and smiled in return. Arcadius, she began again, I've something on my mind, and I've been meaning to visit you for some time, but so much has been happening. First there was Fanon's funeral, then, of course, Thomas arrived in Melangar. 
Oh, yes, the wandering deacon of Dahlgren. He came here as well, preaching that a young girl named Thrace is the heir of Novron. He sounded very sincere. Even I was inclined to believe him. A lot of people did, and that's part of the reason Melangar's fate is so precarious now. Arista stopped. There was someone at the door, a pretty girl, perhaps six years old. Long, dark hair spilled over her shoulders, and her hands were clasped together, holding a length of thin rope that she played with, spinning it in circles. Ah, there you are. Good, the wizard told the girl, who stared apprehensively at Arista. I was hoping you'd turn up soon. He's starting to cause a fuss. It's as if he can tell time. Arcadius glanced at Arista. Oh, forgive me, I neglected to introduce you. Arista, this is Mercy. How do you do? Arista asked. The little girl said nothing. You must forgive her. She's a bit shy with strangers. A bit young for Sheridan, isn't she? Arcadius smiled. Mercy is my ward. Her mother asked me to watch over her for a while until her situation improved. Until then, I try my best to educate her. But as I learned with you, young ladies can be most willful. He turned to the girl. Go right ahead, dear. Take Mr. Rings outside with you before he rips up his cage again. The girl moved across the room's debris as nimbly as a cat and removed a thin raccoon from his cage. He was a baby by the look of it, and she carried him out the door, giggling as Mr. Rings sniffed her ear. She's cute, Arista said. Indeed she is. Now, you said you had something on your mind. Arista nodded and considered her words. The question Ezra Hardin had planted she now presented to her old teacher. Arcadius, who approved my entrance into Sheridan? The lawmaster raised a bristled eyebrow. Ah, he said. You know, I always wondered why you never asked before. You are, perhaps, the only female to attend Sheridan University in its seven hundred year history, and certainly the only one to study the arcane arts at all, but you never questioned it once. Arista's posture tightened. I'm questioning it now. Indeed. Indeed, the wizard replied. He sat back, removed his glasses, and rubbed his nose briefly. I was visited by Chancellor Ignatius Lambert, and asked if I would be willing to accept a gifted young lady into my instructions on arcane theory. This surprised me. You see, I didn't teach a class on arcane theory. I had wanted to, and I requested to have it added to the curriculum on many occasions, but I was always turned down by the school's patrons. It seemed they didn't feel that teaching magic was a respectable pursuit. Magic uses power not connected to a spiritual devotion to Meribor and Navron. At best, it was subversive and possibly outright evil in their minds. 
The fact that I practiced the arcane arts at all has always been an embarrassment. Why haven't they replaced you? It could be that my reputation as the most learned wizard in Averon lends such prestige to this school that they allow me my hobbies. Or it may be that anyone who has tried to force my resignation has been turned into the various toads, squirrels, and rabbits you see about you. He appeared so serious that Arista looked around the room at the various cages and aquariums, at which point the wizard began to chuckle. She scowled at him, which only made him laugh harder. As I was saying, Arcadius went on, once he regained control of himself, Ignatius was in one sentence offering me my desire to teach magic if I was willing to accept you as a student. Perhaps he thought I would refuse. Little did he know that, unlike the rest of them, I harbor no prejudices concerning women. Knowledge is knowledge, and the chance to instruct and enlighten a princess, a potential leader, with the power to help shape the world around us, was not a deterrent at all. On the contrary, I saw it as a bonus. So you're saying I was allowed entrance because of a plan of the school's headmaster that backfired? Not at all. That is merely how it happened, not why. Why is a much more important question. You see, School Chancellor Ignatius Lambert was not alone in my office that morning. With him was another man. He remained silent and stood over there, just behind and to the left of you where the birdcage is now. The cage wasn't there then, of course. Instead, he chose to stand on a discarded old coat and a dagger. As I mentioned, it's always interesting to see the paths people take when they enter this office and where they choose to stand. Who was he? Percy Braga, the Archduke of Melangar. So it was Uncle Percy. He certainly was involved, but even an Archduke of Melangar wasn't likely to have influence over those running Sheridan University, especially on a matter as volatile as teaching magic to young noble ladies. Sheridan is in the ecclesiastical realm of Ghent, where secular lords have no sway. There was, however, another man with them. He never entered my office, but stood in the doorway, in the shadows. Could you tell who it was? Oh, yes. Arcadius smiled. These are reading glasses, my dear. I can see long distances just fine, but then I can see that is a common mistake people make. Who was it, then? A close friend of your family, I believe. Bishop Maurice Soldor of Melangar's Mayor's Cathedral. But you probably knew that, didn't you? Good to his word, Arcadius sent steaming meat pies and red wine. Arista recalled the pies from her days as a student. They were never very good, even when fresh. Usually they were made from the worst cuts of pork, because the school saved lamb for the holidays. The pies were heavy on onions and carrots and thin on gravy and meat. Students actually gambled on how many paltry shreds of pork they would find in their pies— 
A mere five stood as the record. Despite their complaints, the other students wolfed down their meals, but she never had. Most of the other students' indignation, she guessed, was only bluster. They likely ate no better at home. Arista, however, was accustomed to three or four different meats roasted on the bone, several varieties of cheese, freshly baked breads, and whatever fruits were in season. To get her through the week, she had servants bring deliveries from home, which she had kept in her room. You could have mentioned that you knew Arcadius, Arista told them as they sat down together at the common table, an old bit of furniture defaced like everything else. It wobbled enough to make her glad the wine was in a jug with cups instead of a bottle and stemmed glasses. And ruin the fun, Hadrian replied with a handsome grin. So, Arcadius was your professor? One of them. The curriculum requires you to take several classes, learning different subjects from the various teachers. Master Arcadius was my favorite. He was the only one to teach magic. So you learned magic from Arcadius as well as Ezra Hardin? Royce asked, digging into his pie. Arista nodded, poking her pie with her knife and letting the steam out. That must have been interesting. I'm guessing their teaching styles were a bit different. Like night and day. She took a sip of wine. Arcadius was formal in his lessons— he followed a very structured course, using books and lecturing very professorially, like you saw this evening. His style made the lessons seem right and proper, despite the stigma associated with them. Ezra Hardin was haphazard. He seemed to teach whatever came to his mind. Oftentimes he had trouble explaining things. Arcadius is clearly the better teacher, but... She paused. But... Royce asked. Well, don't tell Arcadius, she said conspiratorially. But Ezra Hardin seems to be the more skilled and knowledgeable. Arcadius is the expert on the history of magic, but Ezra Hardin is the history, if you follow me. She took a bite of pie and got a mouthful of onions and burnt crust. Having learned from both, doesn't that make you the third most skilled mage in Averon? Arista smirked bitterly and washed the mouthful down with more wine. While she suspected Royce was correct, she had cast only two spells since leaving their tutelage. Arcadius taught me many important lessons, yet his classes concerned themselves with using knowledge as a means to broaden his students' understanding of their world. It's his way of getting us to think in new directions, to perceive what is about us in terms that are more sensible. Of course, this didn't make his students happy. We all wanted the secrets to power, the tools to reshape the world to our liking. Arcadius doesn't really give answers, but rather focuses his students to ask questions. For instance, he once asked us what makes noble blood different from a commoner's blood. We pricked our fingers and ran tests, and, as it turns out, there is no detectable difference. This led to a fight on the commons between a wealthy merchant's son and the son of a low-ranking baron. Master Arcadius was reprimanded, and the merchant's son was whipped. Hadrian had finished eating, and Royce was more than halfway through his pie, but he had left his wine untouched after grimacing with the first sip. 
Arista chanced another bite and caught a mushy carrot, still more onions, and a soggy bit of crust. She swallowed with a sour look. Not a fan of meat pie, Hadrian asked. She shook her head. You can have it if you like. She slid it over. So, how was studying with Ezra Hardin? He was a completely different story, she went on after another mouthful of wine. When I couldn't get what I wanted from Arcadius, I went to see him. You see, all of Arcadius's teachings involve elaborate preparations, alchemic recipes that are used to trigger the release of nature's powers and incantations to focus it. He also stressed observation and experimentation to tap the power of the natural world. Arcadius relied on manual techniques to derive power from the elements, but Ezra Hardin explained how the same energy could be summoned through more subtle enticements using only motion, harmonic sound, and the power of the mind. The problem was Ezra Hardin's technique relied on hand movements, which explains why the church cut his off. He tried to talk me through the motions, but without the ability to demonstrate it was very frustrating— Subtle differences can separate success from failure, so learning from him was hopeless. All I ever managed to do was make a man sneeze. Oh, and once I cursed Countess Amrel with boils. Hadrian poured the last of the wine into his and Arista's cups after Royce waved him off. Arcadius was angry when he found out about the curse and lectured me for hours. He was always against using magic for personal gain or for the betterment of just a few. He often said, Don't waste energy to treat a single plague victim. Instead, search to eliminate the illness and save thousands. So, yes, you're right. I'm likely the most tutored mage in all of Avron, but that's really not saying much. I would be hard-pressed to do much more than tickle someone's nose. And you can do that just with hand movements? Royce asked, skeptically. Would you like a demonstration? Sure. Try it on Hadrian. Ah, uh, no. Let's not, Hadrian protested. I don't want to be accidentally turned into a toad or rabbit or something. Didn't you learn anything else? Well, he tried to teach me how to boil water, but I never got it to work. I would get close, but there was always something missing— he used to... She trailed off. What? Hadrian asked. She shrugged. I don't know. It's just that I was practicing gestures on the ride here, and I... She squinted in concentration as she ran through the sequence in her mind. They should be similar. Both the rain and the boiling spell used the same element, water. The same motion should be found in each. Just thinking about it made her heart quicken. That is it, isn't it? That is the missing piece. If I have the rest of the spell correct, then all I need to do is... Looking around for the bucket that Hadrian had brought up, she closed her eyes and took several deep breaths. Boiling water while harder than making a person sneeze, took a short, simple incantation, one she had attempted without success hundreds of times. She cleared her mind, relaxed, then reached out, 
sensing the room. The light and heat emanating from the candles, the force of the wind blowing above the roof, the dripping of water from their wet clothes. She opened her eyes and focused on the bucket and the water inside. Lukewarm, it lay quiet, sleeping. She felt its place in the world, part of the whole, waiting for a change, wanting to please. Arista began to hum, letting the sounds follow the rhythm that spoke to the water. She sensed its attention. Her voice rose, speaking the few short words in a melody of a song. She raised a single hand and made the motions, only this time she added a simple sweep of her thumb. It felt perfect, the whole that evaded her in the past. She closed her hand into a fist and squeezed. The moment she did, she could feel the heat, and across the room steam rose. Hadrian stood up, took two steps, and then stopped. It's bubbling, he said, his voice expressing his amazement. Yeah, and so are our clothes. Royce pointed to the pieces of wet clothing hanging on the line, which were beginning to hiss as steam rose from them. Oops! Arista opened her hand abruptly. The wash water stopped boiling and the clothes quieted. By ma! That's unbelievable! Adrian stood grinning. You really did it! Royce remained silent, staring at the steaming clothes. I know. Can you believe it? she said. What else can you do? Let's not find out, Royce interrupted. It's getting late and we'll be leaving in a few hours, so we should get to sleep. Killjoy, Hadrian replied. But he's probably right. Let's turn in. Arista nodded, walked behind the wall of blankets, and only then allowed herself a smile. It worked. It really worked. Lying on the little cot without bothering with a blanket, she stared at the ceiling and listened to the thieves moving about. You have to admit, that was impressive, she heard Hadrian say. If Royce made a reply, she didn't hear it. She had frightened him. The expression on his face had said more than words ever could. Lying there, looking up the rafters, she realized she had seen that look before the day Arcadius had reprimanded her. She had been leaving his office when he had stopped her. I never taught curses in this class, boils or otherwise. Did you cause them by mixing a draught that she drank? No, she recalled saying. It was a verbal curse. His eyes widened and his mouth gaped, but he said nothing more. At the time... She had thought his look was one of amazement and pride in a student exceeding expectations. Looking back, Arista realized she had seen only what she had wanted to see. Chapter 6 The Word As Amelia watched... The playful flicker of candlelight caught the attention of the Empress, which briefly replaced her blank stare. Is that a sign? Amelia often played this game with herself, looking for any improvement, 
A month had passed since Salder had summoned her to his office to explain her duties. She knew she could never do half of what he wanted, but his main concern was the Empress's health, and Amelia was doing well in that regard. Even in this faint light she could see the change. Modena's cheeks were no longer hollow, her skin no longer stretched. The Empress was now eating some vegetables and even bits of meat hidden in the soup. Still, Amelia feared the progress wouldn't be good enough. Modena still had not said a word, at least not while awake. Often, when the Empress slept, she mumbled, moaned, and tossed about restlessly. Upon awakening, the girl cried, tears running down her cheeks. Amelia held her, stroked her hair, and tried to keep her warm, but the Empress didn't seem to notice her presence. To pass the time, Amelia continued to tell Modena stories, hoping it might prompt her into speaking, perhaps to ask a question. After telling her everything she could think of about her family, she moved on to fairy tales from her childhood. There was Gronbach, the evil dwarf who kidnapped a milkmaid and imprisoned her in his subterranean lair. The maiden solved the riddle of the three boxes, snipped off his beard, and escaped. She even recounted scary stories told by her brothers in the dark of the carriage workshop. She knew they'd been purposefully trying to frighten her, and even now the tales gave Amelia chills. But anything was worth a try to snap Medina back to the land of the living. The most disturbing of these were about elves who put their victims to sleep with music before eating them. When she ran out of fairy tales, she turned to stories she remembered from church, like the epic tale of how, in their hour of greatest need, Meribor sent the divine Novron to save mankind. Wielding the wondrous relicon, he defeated the elves. Thinking Modena would like the similarities to her own life, Emilia told the romantic account of the farmer's daughter Persephone, whom Novron took to be his queen. When she refused to leave her simple village, he built the great imperial capital right there and named the city Persepliquis after her. So, what story shall we have this evening? Amelia asked, as the two girls lay across from each other, bathed in the light of the candles. How about Kyle and the white feather? Our Monsignor used it from time to time when he wanted to make a point about penance and redemption. Have you heard that one? Do you like it? I do. Well, you see, the father of the gods, Erebus, had three sons, Pharaoh, Drome, and Meribor, the gods of elves, dwarves, and men. He also had a daughter, Muriel, who was the loveliest being ever created, and she held dominion over all the plants and animals. Well, one night Erebus became drunk and raped his own daughter. In anger, her brothers attacked their father and tried to kill him, but of course, gods can't die. Amelia saw the candles flicker from a draught. It was always colder at night, and she got up and brought them each another blanket. So, where was I? Modena merely blinked. Oh, I remember. Racked with guilt and grief, Erebus returned to Muriel and begged for her forgiveness. She was moved by her father's remorse, but still couldn't look at him. He pleaded for her to name a punishment. 
Muriel needed time to let the fear and pain pass, so she told him, Go to a land to live, not as a god, but as a man, to learn humility. To repent for his misdeeds, she charged him to do good works. Erebus did as she requested, and took the name of Kyle. It said that he walks the world of men to this day, working miracles. For each act that pleases her, she bestows a white feather to him from her magnificent robe, which he places in a pouch kept forever by his side. On the day when all the feathers have been awarded, Muriel promised to call her father home and forgive him. The legend says that when the gods are reunited, all will be made right, and the world will transform into a paradise. This really was one of Amelia's favourite stories, and she told it hoping for miraculous results. Perhaps the father of the gods would hear her and come to their aid. Amelia waited. Nothing happened. The walls were the same cold stone, the flickering flames the only light. She sighed. Well, maybe we'll just have to make our own miracles, she told Medina, as she blew out all but a single candle, then closed her eyes to sleep. Amelia woke with a newfound purpose. She resolved to free Medina from her room, if only for a short while. The cell reeked of the scent of urine and mildew, which lingered even after scrubbing and fresh straw. She wanted to take Modina outside, but knew that would be asking too much. Amelia tried to convince herself that Lady Constance had been dragged away because of Modina's failing health, and not because she had taken her to the kitchen. But even so, no matter the consequences, Amelia had to try. Amelia changed both herself and Modina into their day clothing, and, taking her gently by the hand, led her to the door and knocked. When it opened, she faced the guard, straight and tall, and announced, I'm taking the Empress to the kitchen for her meal. I was appointed the Imperial Secretary by Regent Salder himself, and I'm responsible for her care. She can't remain in this filthy cell. It's killing her. She waited. He would refuse, and she would argue. She tried to organize her rebuttals, noxious vapors, the healing power of fresh air, the fact that they would kill her if the Empress didn't show improvement. Why that last one would persuade him, she had not worked out, but it was one of the thoughts pressing on her mind. The guard looked from Amelia to Modina and back to Amelia again. She was shocked when he nodded and stepped aside. Amelia hesitated. She hadn't considered the possibility he would relent. She led the Empress up the steps while the soldier followed. She made no announcement like Lady Constance. She simply walked in with the Empress in tow, bringing the kitchen once more to a halt. Everyone stared. No one said a word. The Empress would like her meal, Amelia told Ibis, who nodded. Could you please put some extra bread at the bottom of the bowl, and could she get some fruit today? Aye, aye, the big man acknowledged. Leaf, get on it. Nipper, go to the storage and bring up some of those berries. The rest of you back to work, nothing to see here. Nipper bolted outside, leaving the door open. 
Red, one of the huntsman's old dogs, wandered in. Modena dropped Amelia's hand. Leaf, get that animal out of here, Ibis ordered. Wait, Amelia said. Everyone watched as the Empress knelt down next to the elk hand. The dog, in turn, nuzzled her. Red was old, and his muzzle had gone grey, and his eyes clouded with blindness. Why the huntsman kept him was a mystery, as all he did was sleep in the courtyard and beg for handouts from the kitchen. Few took notice of his familiar presence, but he commanded the Empress's attention. She scratched behind his ears and stroked his fur. I guess Red gets to stay, Ibis chuckled. Dog's got important friends. Edith Mon entered the kitchen, halting abruptly at the sight of Amelia and the Empress. She pursed her lips, narrowed her eyes, and without a word pivoted and exited the way she had come. Amidst the sound of pounding hammers, Regent Maurice Soldor strode through the palace reception hall, where artisans were busy at work. A year ago this had been King Ethelred's castle, the stark stone fortress of Averon's most powerful monarch. Since the coronation of the Empress, it had become the imperial palace of the Nephron Empire and the home of the daughter of Meribor. Soldor had insisted on the renovations— a grand new foyer, complete with the crown seal etched in white marble on the floor, several massive chandeliers to lighten the dark interior, a wider, ornate balcony from which her eminence could wave to her adoring people, and, of course, a complete rework of the throne room. Ethelred and the Chancellor had balked at the expense. The new throne cost almost as much as a warship— but they didn't understand the importance of impressions the way Soldor did. He had an illiterate, nearly comatose child for an empress, and the only thing preventing disaster was that no one knew. Soldor's edict restricting servants from leaving the castle had been issued to contain most of the gossip. Brute force opulence would further the misdirection. How much silk! Gold and marble does it take to blind the world? More than he had access to, he was certain, but he would do what he could. These past few weeks, Soldor had felt as if he had been balancing teacups on his head while standing on a stool strapped to the back of a runaway horse. The new empire had manifested itself in just a matter of weeks. Centuries of planning had finally coalesced, but as with everything, there were mistakes and circumstances for which they could not possibly account. The whole fiasco in Dolgren had been only the start. The moment they had declared the establishment of the new empire, Gloucester had gone into open revolt. Alburn had decided to haggle over terms, and, of course, there was Melengar. The humiliation was beyond words. Every other Averon kingdom had fallen in step as planned, all except his. He had been Bishop of Melangar and close personal adviser to the king, as well as the king's son, and yet Melangar remained independent. Soldor's clever solution to the Dahlgren problem had kept him from fading into obscurity. He had drawn victory from ashes, and for that the patriarch had appointed him the church's representative, 
making him co-regent alongside Ethelred. The old king of Warwick maintained the existing systems, but Solder was the architect of the new world order. His vision would define the lives of thousands for centuries to come. Although it was a tremendous opportunity, Solder felt as if he were rolling a massive boulder up a hill. If he should trip or stumble, the rock would roll back and crush him, and everything else with it. When Solder reached his office, he found Louis Skye waiting. The church sentinel had just arrived, hopefully with good news. The knight of Nephron waited near the window, as straight and impeccable as ever. He stood looking out at some distant point with his hands clasped behind his back. As usual, he wore the black and scarlet of his order, each line clean, his beard neatly trimmed. "'I assume you've heard,' Solder said, closing the door behind him and ignoring any greeting. Guy was not the type to bother with pleasantries, something Solder appreciated about the man. Over the past several months he had seen little of Guy, whom the Patriarch kept occupied searching for the real heir of Novron, and the wizard, Ezra Hardin. This was also to his liking— as Guy, who was one of only two men in the world with direct access to the Patriarch, could be a formidable rival. Strangely, Guy appeared to have little interest in carving out a place for himself in the new empire, something else to be grateful for. "'About the Nationalists? Of course,' Guy responded, turning away from the window. "'And?' "'And what?' "'And I would like to know what—' Solder halted when he noticed another man in the room. The office was comfortable in size, large enough to accommodate a desk, bookshelves, and a table with a chessboard between two soft chairs, where the stranger sat. Oh, yes. Guy motioned to the man. This is Merrick Marius. Merrick, meet Bishop. Forgive me. Regent Solder. So this is him, Solder muttered, annoyed that the man did not rise. He remained sitting comfortably, leaning back with casual indifference, staring in a manner too direct, too brazen. Merrick wore a thigh-length coat of dark red suede, an awful shade, Solder thought, the color of dried blood. His hair was short, his face pale, and aside from his coat, his attire was simple and unadorned. "'Not very impressive, are you?' Solder observed. The man smiled at this. "'Do you play chess, Your Grace?' Solder's eyebrows rose, and he glanced at Guy. This was his man, after all. Guy had been the one who dug him up, unearthing him from the fetid streets, and praised his talents.' The sentinel said nothing and showed no outward sign of outrage or discontent with his pet. "'I'm running an empire, young man,' Solder replied dismissively. "'I don't have time for games.' "'How strange,' Merrick said. "'I've never thought of chess as a game. "'To me, it's really more of a religion. "'Every aspect of life, distilled into sixteen pieces,' with sixty-four black and white squares, 
which from a distance actually appear grey. Of course, there are more than a mere sixty-four squares. The smaller squares taken in even numbers form larger ones, creating a total of two hundred and four. Most people miss that. They see only the obvious. Few have the intelligence to look deeper, to see the patterns hidden within patterns. That's part of the beauty of chess. It's much more than it first appears. More complicated. More complex. The world at your fingertips, so manageable, so defined. It has such simple rules, a near infinite number of possible paths, but only three outcomes. I've heard some clergy base sermons on the game, explaining the hierarchy of pieces and how they represent the classes of society. They correlate the rules of movement to the duties that each man performs in his service to Meribor. Have you ever done that? Your Grace, Merrick asked, but he did not wait for an answer. Amazing idea, isn't it? He leaned over the board, his eyes searching the field of black and white. The bishop is an interesting piece. He plucked one off the board and held it in his hand, rolling the polished stone figure back and forth across his open palm. It's not a very well-designed piece, not as pretty, perhaps, as say, the knight. It's often overlooked, hiding in the corners, appearing so innocent, so disarming. But it's able to sweep the length of the board at sharp, unexpected angles, often with devastating results. I've always thought that bishops were underutilized through a lack of appreciation for their talents. I suppose I'm unusual in this respect, but then I'm not the type of person to judge the value of a piece based on how it looks. You think you're a very clever fellow, don't you? Soldor challenged. No, Your Grace, Merrick replied. Clever is the man who makes a fortune selling dried-up cows, explaining how it saves the farmers the trouble of getting up every morning to milk them. I'm not clever. I'm a genius. At this, Guy interjected. Regent, at our last meeting, I mentioned a solution to the nationalist problem. He sits before you. Mister Marius has everything worked out. He merely needs approval from the regents. And certain assurances of payment, Merrick added. You can't be serious, Soldo whirled on Guy. The nationalists are sweeping north on a rampage. They've taken Kilnar. They're only miles from Ratibor. They'll be marching on this palace by winter tide. What I need are ideas, alternative solutions, not some irreverent popinjay. You have some interesting ideas, Your Grace," Merrick told Saldo, his voice calm and casual, as if he hadn't heard a word. "I like your views on a central government, the benefits of standardizations in trade, laws, farming, even the widths of roads or 
excellent. It shows clarity of thought that I wouldn't expect from an elderly church bishop. How do you know anything of my... Merrick raised his hand to halt the region. I should explain, right away, that how I obtain information is confidential and not open for discussion. The fact is, I know it. What's more, I like it. I can see the potential in this new empire you're struggling to erect. It may well be exactly what the world needs to get beyond the petty warfare that weakens our nations and mires the common man in hopeless poverty. At present, however, this is still a dream. That is where I come in. I only wish you came to me earlier. I could have saved you that embarrassing and now burdensome problem of her eminence. That was the result of an unfortunate error on the part of my predecessor, the Archbishop. Something he paid for with his life. I was the one who salvaged the situation. Yes, I know. Some idiot named Rufus was supposed to slay the mythical beast and thereby prove he was the fabled heir of Novron, the descendant of the god Meribor himself. Only instead... Rufus was devoured, and the beast laid waste to everything in the vicinity. Everything except a young girl who somehow managed to slay it, and in front of a church deacon, no less. Oops. But you're right. That wasn't your fault. You were the smart one, with the brilliant idea to use her as a puppet. A girl so bereft from losing everything and everyone that she went mad. Your solution is to hide her in the depths of the palace and hope no one notices. In the meantime, you and Ethelred run a military campaign to take over all of Averon, sending your best troops north to invade Melangar, just as the nationalists invade from the south. Brilliant. I must say... With things so well in hand, it's a wonder I was contacted at all. I am not amused, Solda told him. Nor should you be, for at this moment, King Ulrich of Melangar is setting into motion plans to form an alliance with the Nationalists, trapping you in a two-front war and bringing Trent into the conflict on their side. You know this? It is what I do. And with the wealth of Delgos and the might of Trent, your fledgling empire, with its insane empress, will crumble as quickly as it rose. More impressed now? Guy asked. And what would you have us do to stave off this impending cataclysm? Merrick smiled. Pay me. The Grand Exalted Empress Modina Novronian, ruler of Avron, and High Priestess of the Church of Nephron, sat sprawled on the floor, feeding her bowl of soup to Red, who expressed his gratitude by drooling on her dress. He rested his head on her lap and slapped his tail against the stone, his tongue sliding lazily in and out. 
the Empress curled up beside the dog and laid her head on the animal's side. Amelia smiled. She was encouraged by seeing Modena interact with something, anything. Get that disgusting animal out of here and get her off the floor! Amelia jumped and looked up, horrified. Regent Soldor entered the kitchen with Edith Mon, wearing a sinister smile. Amelia couldn't move. Several scullery maids rushed to the Empress's side and gently pulled her to her feet. The very idea! He continued to shout as the maids busied themselves with smoothing out Modena's dress. You! The Regent growled, pointing at Amelia. This is your doing! I should have known. What was I expecting when I put a common street urchin in charge of... of... He trailed off, looking at Modena with an exasperated expression. At least your predecessors didn't have her groveling with animals. Your Grace, Amelia was... Ibis thinly began, Shut up, you oaf! Soldor snapped at the stocky cook, and then returned his attention to Amelia. Your service to the Empress has ended, as well as your employment at this palace. Soldor motioned to the Empress's guard and then said, Take her out of my sight. The guard approached Amelia, unable to meet her eyes. Amelia breathed in short, stifled gasps and realized she was trembling as the soldier approached. Not normally given to crying, Amelia couldn't help it and tears began streaming down her cheeks. No, Modena said. Spoken with no force, barely above a whisper, the single word cast a spell on the room. One of the cooking staff dropped a metal pot, which rang loudly on the stone floor. They all stared. The regent turned in surprise and then began to circle the empress, studying her with interest. The girl had a focused, challenging look as she glared at Soldor. The regent glanced from Amelia to Medina several times. He cocked his head from side to side, as if trying to work out a puzzle. The guard stood by awkwardly. At length, Soldor put him at ease. As the Empress commands, Soldor said without taking his eyes off Modena, it seems that I may have been a bit premature in my assessment of... Soldor glanced at Amelia, annoyed. What's your name? Ah, uh, Amelia. He nodded as if approving the correct answer. Your techniques are unusual, but certainly one can't argue with results. Saldo looked back at Modena as she stood within the circle of maids, who parted at his approach. She does look better, doesn't she? Colors improved, there's emotion toward her face, a fullness to her cheeks. He was nodding. He crossed his arms and, with a final nod of approval, said, Very well, you can keep the position as it seems to please her eminence. The regent turned and headed out of the scullery. He paused at the doorway to look over his shoulder, saying, You know, 
I was really starting to believe she was mute. Chapter 7 The Jewel Arista had always thought of herself as an experienced equestrian. Most ladies had never even sat in a saddle, but she had ridden since childhood. The nobles mocked, and her father scolded, but nothing could dissuade her. She loved the freedom of the wind in her hair, and her heart pounding with the beat of the hooves. Before setting out, she had looked forward to impressing the thieves with her vast knowledge of horsemanship. She knew they would be awed by her skill. She was wrong. In Sheridan, Royce had found her a spirited bay mare to replace her exquisite palfrey. Since setting out, he had forced them over rough ground, fording streams jumping logs and dodging low branches, often at a trot. Clutching white knuckle to the saddle, she had used all her skills and strength just to remain on the horse's back. Gone were her illusions of being praised as a skilled rider, and all that remained was the hope of making it through the day without the humiliation, not to mention the physical pain, of falling. They rode south after leaving the university, following trails only Royce could find. Before dawn, they crossed the narrow headwaters of the Galewar and proceeded up the embankment on the far side. Briars and thickets lashed at them. Unseen dips caught the horses by surprise, and Arista cried out once when her mount made an unexpected lunge across a washed-out gap. Their silence added to her humiliation. If she had been a man, they would have commented. They climbed steadily, reaching such a steep angle that their mounts panted for air in loud snorts, and, on occasion, uttered deep grunts as they struggled to scramble up the dewy slope. At last they crested the hill, and Arista found herself greeting a chilly dawn atop the wind-swept Sinon uplands. The Sinon was a high, barren plateau of exposed rock and shrub bushes, with expansive views on all sides. The horses' hooves clacked loudly on the bare-faced granite until Royce brought them to a stop. His cloak fluttered with the morning breeze. To the east, the sunrise peered at them over the mist-covered forests of Dunmore. From this height, the vast wood looked like a hazy blue lake as it fell away below them, racing toward the dazzling sun. Arista knew that beyond it lay the Nidwalden River, the Partholoran Falls, and the Tower of Avampartha. Royce stared east for several minutes, and she wondered if his elven eyes could see that tiny pinnacle of his people in the distance. In front of them, and to the southwest, lay the Warwick province of Chadwick. Like everything else west of the ridge, it remained submerged in darkness. Down in the deep rolling valley, the pre-dawn sky would only now be separating from the dark horizon. It would have appeared peaceful, a world tucked in bed before the first cock's crow, except for the hundreds of lights flickering like tiny fireflies. Brechton's camp, Hadrian said. The Northern Imperial Army is not making very good time, it seems. We'll descend before Amber Heights and rejoin the road well past Brechton. Royce explained. 
How long do you figure before they reach Colnora? Adrian rubbed the growing stubble of his beard. Another three, maybe four days? An army that size moves at a snail's pace, and I'm guessing Brecton isn't pleased with his orders. He's likely dragging his feet, hoping they'll be rescinded. You sound as if you know him, Arista said. I never met the man, but I fought under his father's banner. I've also fought against him when I served in the ranks of King Armand's army in Alburn. How many armies have you served in? Hadrian shrugged. Too many. They pushed on, traversing the crest into the face of a fierce wind which tugged at her clothes and caused her eyes to water. Arista kept her head down and watched her horse's hooves pick a path across the cracked slabs of lichen-covered rock. She clutched her cloak tight about her neck as the damp of the previous day's rain and sweat conspired with the wind to make her shiver. When they plunged back into the trees, the slow descent began. Once more the animals struggled. This time Arista bent backward, nearly to her horse's flanks to keep her balance. Although it was mercifully cooler than the day before, the pace was faster and more challenging. Finally, several hours after midday, they stopped on the bank of a small stream where the horses gorged themselves on cool water and river grass. Royce and Hadrian grabbed packs and gathered wood. Exhausted, Arista as much fell as sat down. Her legs and backside ached. There were insects and twigs in her hair, and a dusting of dirt covering her gown. Her eyes stared at nothing, losing their focus as her mind stalled, numb from fatigue. What have I gotten myself into? Am I up to this? They were below the gale war, in imperial territory. She had thrown herself into the fire, perhaps foolishly. Ulrich would be furious when he found her missing, and she could just imagine what Acton would say. If they caught her... She stopped herself. This isn't helping. She turned her attention to her escorts. As during the hours on horseback, Royce and Hadrian remained quiet. Hadrian unsaddled the horses and gave them a light brushing, while Royce set up a small cook fire. Watching the two of them was entertaining. Without a word, they would toss tools back and forth. Hadrian blindly threw a hatchet over his shoulder, and Royce caught it just in time to begin breaking up branches for the fire. Just as Royce finished the fire, Hadrian had a pot of water ready to place on it. For Arista, who had lived her life in public, among squabbling nobles and chattering castle staff. Such silence was strange. Hadrian chopped carrots and dropped them into the dented, blackened pot on the coals. Are you ready to eat the best meal you've ever had, Highness? She wanted to laugh, but didn't have the strength. Instead, she said, There are three chefs and eighteen cooks back at Essendon Castle, that would take exception to that remark. They spend their whole lives perfecting elaborate dishes. You'd be amazed at the feasts I've attended, filled with everything from exotic spices to ice sculptures. I highly doubt you'll be able to surpass them. 
Adrian smirked. That might be, he replied, struggling to cut chunks of dry, brine-encrusted pork into bite-sized cubes. But I guarantee this meal will put them all to shame. Arista removed the pearl-handled hairbrush from a pouch that hung at her side, and she tried in vain to untangle her hair. Eventually giving up, she sat and watched Hadrian drop wretched-looking meat into the bubbling pot. Ash and bits of twigs thrown up by the crackling fire landed in the mix. Master Chef, debris is getting into your pot. Hadrian grinned. Always happens. Can't help it. Just be careful not to bite down too hard on anything, or you might crack a tooth. Wonderful, she told him, then turned her attention to Royce, who was busy checking the horse's hooves. We've come a long way today, haven't we? I don't think I've ever travelled so far so quickly. You keep a cruel pace. That first part was over rough ground, Royce mentioned. We'll cover a lot more miles after we eat. After we eat? Arista felt her heart sink. We aren't stopping for the day. Royce glanced up at the sky. It's ours until nightfall. They mean for me to get back into the saddle? She didn't know if she could stand, much less ride. Virtually every muscle in her body was in pain. They could entertain any thoughts they wished, but she wouldn't travel any farther that day. There was no reason to move this fast, or over such rough ground. Why Royce was taking such a difficult course she didn't understand. She watched as Hadrian dished the disgusting soup he had concocted into a tin cup and held it out to her. There was an oily film across the top, through which green meat bobbed, everything seasoned with bits of dirt and tree bark. Most assuredly, it was the worst thing anyone had ever presented her to eat. Arista held the hot cup between her hands, grimacing and wishing she had eaten more of the meat pie back at Sheridan. Is this a... stew? she asked. Royce laughed quietly. He likes to call it that. It's a dish I learned from Thrace, Hadrian explained, with a reminiscent look on his face. She's a much better cook than I am. She did this thing with the meat that... Well, anyway, no, it's not stew. It's really just boiled salt pork and vegetables. You don't get the broth, but it takes away the rancid taste of the salt and softens the meat. And it's hot. Trust me, you're going to love it. Arista closed her eyes and lifted the cup to her lips. The steamy smell was wonderful. Before she realized it, she had devoured the entire thing, eating so quickly she burned her tongue. A moment later, she was scraping the bottom with a bit of hard bread. She looked for more and was disappointed to see Hadrian already cleaning the pot. Lying in the grass, she let out a sigh as the warmth of the meal coursed through her body. So much for eye sculptures, Hadrian chuckled. Despite her early reluctance, she found new strength after eating. The next leg of the trip was over level ground, along the relative ease of a deer trail. 
Royce drove them as fast as the terrain allowed, never pausing or consulting a map. After many hours, Arista had no idea where they were, nor did she care. The food faded into memory, and she found herself once more near collapse. She rode bent over, resting on the horse's neck, and drifting in and out of sleep. She couldn't discern between dream and reality, and would wake in a panic, certain she was falling. Finally, they stopped. Everything was dark and cold. The ground was wet, and she stood shivering once more. Her guides went back into their silent actions. This time, to Arista's immense disappointment, no fire was made, and instead of a hot meal, they handed her strips of smoked meat, raw carrots, an onion quarter, and a triangle of hard, dry bread. She sat on the wet grass, feeling the moisture soak into her skirt and dampen her legs, as she devoured the meal without a thought. "'Shouldn't we get a shelter up?' she asked, hopefully. Royce looked up at the stars. "'It looks clear.' "'But—' She was shocked when he spread out a cloth on the grass. "'They mean to sleep right here, on the ground without even a tent.' Arista had three handmaids who dressed and undressed her daily. They bathed her and brushed her hair. Servants fluffed pillows and brought warm milk at bedtime. They tended the fireplace in shifts, quietly adding logs throughout the night. Sleeping in her carriage had been a hardship. Sleeping on that ghastly cot in the dorm a torment. This was insane. Even peasants had hovels. She wrapped her cloak tight against the night's chill. Will I even get a blanket? Tired beyond memory, she got on her hands and knees and feebly brushed a small pile of dead leaves together to act as a mattress. Lying down, she felt them crunch and crinkle beneath her. Hold on, Hadrian said, carrying over a bundle. He unrolled a canvas tarp. I really need to make more of these. The pitch will keep the damp from soaking through. He handed her a blanket as well. Oh, there's a nice little clearing just above those trees, just in case you need it. Why in the world would I need a... Oh, she said, and managed a nod. Surely they would come upon a town soon. She could wait. Good night, Highness. She didn't reply, as Hadrian went a few paces away and assembled his own bed from pine boughs. Without a tent, there was no choice but to sleep in her dress, which left her trapped in a tight corset. Arista spread out the tarp, removed her shoes, and lay down while pulling the thin blanket up to her chin. Though utterly miserable, she stubbornly refused to show it. After all, common women lived every day under similar conditions, so she could as well. The argument was noble, but gave little comfort. The instant she closed her eyes, she heard the faint buzzing. She was blinded by darkness, but the sound was unmistakable. A horde of mosquitoes descended. 
Feeling one on her cheek, she slapped at it and pulled the blanket over her head, exposing her feet. Curling into a ball, she buried herself under the thin wool shield. Her tight corset made breathing a challenge, and the musty smell of the blanket, long steeped in horse sweat, nauseated her. Arista's frustration overflowed, and tears slipped from her tightly squeezed eyes. What was I thinking coming out here? I can't do this. Oh, dear Meribor, what a fool I am! I always think I can do anything. I thought I could ride a horse. What a joke! I thought I was brave. Look at me. I think I know better than anyone. I'm an idiot. What a disappointment she was to those who loved her. She should have listened to her father and served the kingdom by marrying a powerful prince. Now that she was tarnished with the stain of witchery, no one would have her. Ulrich had stuck his neck out and given her a chance to be an ambassador. Her failure had doomed the kingdom. Now this trip, this horrible trip, was just one more mistake, one more colossal error. I'll go home tomorrow. I'll ask Royce to take me back to Medford, and I'll formally resign as ambassador. I'll stay in my tower and rot until the Empire takes me to the gallows. Tears ran down her cheeks as she lay smothered by more than just the blanket until, mercifully in the cold, unforgiving night, she fell asleep. The songs of birds woke her. Arista opened her eyes to sunlight cascading through the green canopy of leafy trees. Butterflies danced in the brilliant shafts of golden light. The beams revealed a tranquil pond so placid it appeared as if a patch of sky had fallen. A delicate white mist hovered over the pool's mirrored surface like a scene from a fairy story. Circled by sun-dappled trees, cattails, and flowers, the pool was perfect, the most beautiful thing she had ever seen. Where did that come from? Royce and Hadrian still slept under rumpled blankets, leaving her alone with the vision. She got up quietly, fearful of shattering the fragile beauty. Walking barefoot to the water's edge, she caught the warmth of the sun, melting the night's chill. She stretched, feeling the unexpected pride in the ache of a well-worked muscle. Crouching, Arista scooped a handful of water and gently rinsed away the stiff tears of the night before. In the middle of the pond, a fish jumped. She saw it only briefly as it flashed silver, then disappeared with a plop. Another followed, and, delighted by the display, Arista stared in anticipation for the next leap, grinning like a child at a puppet show. The mist burned away before sounds from the camp caught her attention, and Arista walked over to find the clearing Hadrian had mentioned. She returned to camp, brushed out her hair, and ate the cold pork breakfast waiting for her. When finished, she folded the blankets and rolled up the tops, then stowed the food and refilled the water pouches. Arista mounted her mare, deciding at that moment to name her Mystic. 
Only after Royce had led them out of the little glade did she realize that no one had spoken a single word all morning. They reached the road almost immediately, which explained the lack of a fire the night before, and the unusual way Royce and Hadrian were dressed, in doublets and hose. Hadrian's swords were also conspicuously missing, stowed somewhere out of sight. How Royce had known the road was nearby baffled her. As they travelled, with the warm sun overhead and the birds singing in the trees, Arista could scarcely understand what had troubled her the night before. She was still sore, but felt a satisfaction in the dull pain that owed nothing to being a princess. They hadn't gone far when Royce brought Mouse to a stop. A troop of Imperial soldiers came down the road escorting a line of four large grain wagons, tall, solid-side boxes with flat bottoms. Riders immediately rode forward, bringing a cloud of dust in their wake. An intimidating officer in bright armour failed to give his name, but demanded theirs, as well as their destination and reason for travelling. Soldiers of his vanguard swept around behind the three with spears at the ready, horses puffing and snorting. "'This is Mr. Everton of Wyndham Village and his wife, and I am his servant,' Royce explained quickly as he politely dismounted and bowed. His tone and inflections were formal and excessive, his voice nasal and high-pitched. Arista was amazed by how much like her fussy day-steward he sounded— Mr. Everton was, I mean is, a respected merchant. We are on our way to Colnora, where Miss Everton has a brother whom they hope will provide temporary, uh, I mean, they will be visiting. Before they had left the Rose and Thorn, Royce had coached Arist on this story and the part she might have to play. In the safety of the Medford Tavern, it had seemed like a plausible tale. But now that the moment had come and soldiers surrounded her, she doubted its chances of success. Her palms began to sweat, and her stomach churned. Royce continued to play his part masterfully, supplying answers in his non-threatening effeminate voice. The responses were specific-sounding, but vague on crucial details. "'It's your brother in, Colnora!' The officer confronted Arista, his tenor harsh. No one had ever spoken to her in such a tone. Even when Braga had threatened her life, he had been more polite than this. She struggled to conceal her emotion. Yes, she said simply. Arista was remembering Royce's instructions to keep her answers as short as possible and her face blank. She was certain the soldiers could hear the pounding of her heart. His name? Vincent Stapleton, she answered quickly and confidently, knowing the officer would be looking for hesitation. Where does he live? Bridge Street, not far from the Hill District, she replied. This was a carefully rehearsed line. It would be typical for the wife of a prominent merchant to boast about how near the affluent section of the city her family lived. Hadrian now played his part. Look here, I've had quite enough of you and your imperial army. The truth of the matter is, my estate has been overrun, used to quarter a bunch of brigands like you, who I'm sure will destroy my furniture and soil the carpets. I have some questions of my own, like 
"'When will I get my home back?' he bellowed angrily. "'Is this the kind of thing a merchant can expect from the Empress? "'King Ethelred never treated us like this. "'Who's going to pay for damages?' "'To Arista's great relief, the officer changed his demeanour. "'Just as they had hoped, he avoided getting involved in complaints from evicted patrons "'and waved them on their way. "'As the wagons passed, she was revolted.' by the sight visible through the bars on the rear gates. The wagons didn't hold captured soldiers, but elves. Covered in filth, they were packed so tightly they were forced to stand, jostling into each other as the wagon dipped and bounced over the rutted road. There were females and children alongside the males, all slick with sweat from the heat. Arista heard muffled cries, as the wagons crawled by at a turtle's pace. Some reached through the bars, pleading for water and mercy. Arista was so sickened at the sight, she forgot her fear, which only a moment before had consumed her. Then a sudden realization struck her. She looked for Royce. He stood a few feet away on the roadside, holding Mouse's bridle. Hadrian was at his side, firmly gripping Royce's arm and whispering in his ear. Arista couldn't hear what he said, but guessed at the conversation. A few tense moments passed, but then they turned and continued toward Colnora. The street below drifted into shadow as night settled in. Carriages raced to their destinations, noisily bouncing along the cobblestone. Lamplighters made their rounds in zigzag patterns, moving from lamp to lamp. Lights flickered to life in windows of nearby buildings, and silhouettes passed like ghosts behind curtains. Shopkeepers closed their doors and shutters, while cart vendors covered their wares and harnessed horses as another day's work ended. "'How long do you think?' Hadrian asked. He and Royce had donned their usual garb, and Hadrian once more wore his swords. While Arista was used to seeing them this way, their change in appearance and Royce's constant vigilance at the window put her on edge. Soon, Royce replied, not altering his concentration on the street. They waited together in the small room at the Regal Fox Inn, the least expensive of the five hotels in the affluent Hill District. Once they had arrived, Royce had continued to pose as their servant by renting two rooms, one standard, the other small. He avoided inquiries about luggage and arrangements for dinner. The innkeeper had not pursued the matter. When they were upstairs, Royce insisted they all remain in the standard room together. Arista noticed a pause after he said this, as if he expected an argument. This amused her because the idea of sharing a comfortable room was infinitely better than any accommodations she had experienced so far. Still, she had to admit, if only to herself, that a week ago she would have been appalled by the notion. Even the standard room was luxurious by most boarding-house standards. The beds were made of packed feathers and covered in smooth, clean sheets, overstuffed pillows and heavy quilts. There were a full-length mirror, a large dresser, a wardrobe, 
a small writing table and chair, and an adjoining room for the wash basin and chamber pot. The room was equipped with a fireplace and lamps, but Royce left them unlit, and darkness filled the space. The only illumination was from the outside street lamps, which cast an oblong checkerboard image on the floor. Now that they were off the road and in a more familiar setting, the princess gave in to curiosity. I don't understand. What are we doing here? Waiting, Royce replied. For what? We can't just ride into the Nationalists' camp. We need a go-between. Someone to set up a meeting, Hadrian said. He sat at the writing desk across the room from her. In the growing darkness, he was fading into a dim, ghostly outline. I didn't see you send any messages. Did I miss something? No, but the messages were delivered nonetheless, Royce mentioned. Royce is a kind of celebrity here, Hadrian told her. When he comes to town, Royce coughed intentionally. Okay, maybe not a celebrity, but he's certainly well known. I'm sure talk started the moment he arrived. Then we wanted to be seen. Yes, Royce replied. Unfortunately, the diamond wasn't the only one watching the gate. Someone's watching our window. And he's not Black Diamond? Hadrian asked. Too clumsy. Has about the same talent for delicate work as a draft horse. The diamond would laugh if he applied. Black Diamond is the Thieves' Guild? She asked. They both nodded. While supposedly a secret organization, the diamond was nevertheless well known. Arista heard of it from time to time in court and at council meetings. They were always spoken about with disdain by haughty nobles, even though they often used their services. The black market was virtually controlled by the diamond, who supplied practically any commodity for anyone willing to pay the price. Can he see you? Not unless he's an elf. Hadrian and Arista exchanged glances, wondering if he had meant it as a joke. Hadrian joined Royce at the window and looked out. The one near the lamppost, with his hand on his hilt, the guy shifting his weight back and forth, he's an Imperial soldier, a veteran of the Vanguard Scout Brigade, Hadrian said. Royce looked at him, surprised. The light from the street spilled across Hadrian's face as he grinned. The way he's shifting his weight is a technique taught to soldiers to keep from going footsore. That short sword is standard issue for a lightly armed scout, and the gauntlet on his sword hand is an idiosyncrasy of King Ethelred, who insists all his troops wear them. Since Ethelred is now part of the new empire, the fellow below is an imp. You weren't kidding about serving in a lot of armies, were you? Arista asked. Hadrian shrugged. I was a mercenary. It's what I did. I served anywhere the pay was good. Hadrian took his seat back at the table. I even commanded a few regiments. Got a medal once. But I would fight for one army, only to find myself going against them a few years later. Killing old friends isn't fun. So... I kept taking jobs farther away. Ended up deep in Calais, fighting for Tenkin warlords. Hadrian shook his head.
Guess you could say that was my low point. You really know you've... Hadrian was interrupted by a knock. Without a word, Royce crossed the room, taking up position on one side of the door, while Hadrian carefully opened it. Outside, a young boy stood dressed in the typical poor clothing of a waif. "'Evening, sirs. Your presence is requested in room twenty-three,' he said cheerily, and then, touching his thumb to his brow, he walked away. "'Leave her here?' Hadrian asked Royce. Royce shook his head. "'She comes along.' "'Must you speak about me as if I'm not in the room?' Arista asked but only with feigned irritation. She sensed the seriousness of the situation from the look on Royce's face and wasn't about to interfere. She was behind enemy lines. If she was caught, it wasn't certain what would happen. If she tried to claim a diplomatic status, it was doubtful the new empire would honour it. Ransoming Arista for Ulrich's compliance was not out of the question— nor was a public execution. "'We're just going to walk in?' Hadrian asked, sceptically. "'Yes, we need their help, and when one goes begging it's best to knock on the front door.' They lodged in room 19, so it was a short trip down the hall and around a corner to room 23. It was conveniently isolated. There were no other doors off this hall— only a stair, which likely led to the street. Royce rapped twice, paused, then added three more. The door opened. Come in, Duster! The room was a larger, more luxurious suite, with a chandelier brightly lighting the interior. No beds were visible as they entered a parlour. Against the far wall were two doors, which no doubt led to sleeping quarters. Dark green damask fabric adorned the walls, and carpet covered the entire floor, except for the area around the marble fireplace. Four tall windows, each shrouded with thick velvet curtains, decorated the outside wall. Several ornate pieces of furniture lined the room. In the centre stood a gaunt man with sunken cheeks and accusing eyes. Two more men stood slightly behind him, while another two waited near the door. "'Everyone, please take a seat,' the thin man told them. He remained standing until they all had sat. "'Duster, let me get right to the point. I made it clear on your last visit that you are not welcome here, didn't I?' Royce was silent. "'I was unusually patient then, but seeing as how you've returned—' Perhaps politeness is not the proper tack to take with you. Personally, I hold you in the highest regard, but as First Officer, I simply cannot allow you to blatantly walk into this city after having been warned. He paused, but when no reaction came from Royce, he continued. Hadrian and the Princess are welcome to leave. Point of fact, I must insist the Lady leave— as the death of a noblewoman would make things awkward. Shall I assume Hadrian will refuse? Hadrian glanced at Royce, who did not return his look, and then Hadrian shrugged. I would hate to miss whatever show is about to start. 
In that case, your highness, the man made a sweeping hand motion toward the door. If you'll please return to your room, I'm staying, Arista said. It was only two words, but spoken with all the confidence of a princess accustomed to getting her way. He narrowed his eyes at her. Shall I escort her, sir? One of the men near the door offered with a menacing tone. Touch her, and this meeting will end badly, Royce said, barely above a whisper. Meeting? The thin man laughed. This is no meeting. This is retribution, and it'll most assuredly end very badly. He looked back at Arista. I've heard about you. I'm pleased to see the rumours are true. Arista had no idea what he meant, but did not like a thug knowing about her. She was even more disturbed by his approval. Nevertheless, my men will escort you. He clapped his hands and the two doors to the adjoining rooms opened, as did the one behind them leading to the hallway. Many well-armed men poured in. We're here to see the jewel, Royce quietly said. Immediately the thin man's expression changed. Arista watched as, in an instant, his face followed a path from confidence to confusion, then suspicion, and finally curiosity. He ran a bony hand through his thin blonde hair. What makes you think the jewel will see you? Because there's profit in it for him. The jewel is already very wealthy. It's not that kind of profit. Tell me, Price, how long have you had the new gate cards? The one in the Imperial uniforms? For that matter, when did Colnora get a gate? How many others like them are roaming the city? Royce sat back and folded his hands across his lap. I should have been stopped the moment I entered Colnora and under Farmer Oslo's field over two hours ago. Why the delay? Why are there no watchers posted on the arch or Burnham Bridge? Are you really getting that sloppy price? Or are the imps running the show? Now it was the thin man's turn to remain silent. The diamond can't be happy with the new empire flexing its muscle. You used to have full reign, and the jewel his own fiefdom. But not any more. Now he must share. The diamond has been forced back into the shadows, while the new landlord kicks up his heels in front of the fire in the house they built. Tell Cosmos I'm here to help with his little problem. Price stared at Royce, and then his eyes drifted to Arista. He nodded and stood up. You will, of course, remain here until I return. Why not? Hagen remarked, apparently undisturbed by the tension radiating in the room. This is a whole lot better than our room. Are those walnuts over there? During the exchange, and while Price was gone, Royce never moved. Four men, who were the most menacing of those present, watched him intently. There seemed to be a contest of wills going on, each waiting to see who would flinch first. Hadrian, in contrast, casually strode around the room, 
examining the various paintings and furnishings. He selected a chair with a padded footstool, put up his feet, and began eating from a bowl of fruits and nuts. "'This stuff is great,' he said. "'We didn't get anything like this in our room. Anyone else want some?' They ignored him. "'Suit yourself.' He popped another handful of walnuts into his mouth. Finally, Price returned. He'd been gone for quite a while, or perhaps it had just seemed that way to Arista as she'd quietly waited. The jewel had consented to the meeting. A carriage waited for them in front of the regal fox. Arista was surprised when Royce and Hadrian surrendered their weapons before boarding. Price joined them in the carriage, while two of the guild members sat up top with the driver. They rolled south two blocks, then turned west and travelled farther up the hill, past the tradesman's arch, toward the Langdon Bridge. Through the open window, Arista could hear the metal rims of the coach and the horse's hooves clattering on the cobblestone. Across from her, the glare of the tavern lights crawled across the face of Price, who sat eyeing her with a malevolent smile. The man was all limbs, with fingers that were too long and eyes sunk too deep. "'It would seem you're doing better these days, Duster,' he said, with his hands folded awkwardly in his lap, a jackal pretending to be civilised. "'At least your clientele has improved.' The diamond's first officer smiled a toothy grin and nodded at Arista, although Rumour has it that Melengar might not be the best investment these days. No offence intended, Your Highness. The diamond is, as a whole, and I personally am, rooting for you, but as a businessman, one does have to face facts. Arista presented him a pleasant smile. The sun will rise tomorrow, Mr. Price. That is a fact. You have horrid breath and smell of horse manure, that is also a fact. Who will win this war, however, is still a matter of opinion, and I put no weight in yours. Price raised his eyebrows. She's an ambassador, and a woman, Hadrian told him. You'd be cut less fencing with a pickering, and stand a better chance of winning. Price smiled and nodded. Arista was unsure whether it was in approval or resentment. Such was the face of thieves. Who exactly are we going to see, or is that a secret? Cosmos Sebastian de Lure, the wealthiest merchant in Avron, Royce replied. Son of Cornelius de Lure of Delgos, who's probably the richest man alive. Between the two of them, the Delore family controls most of the commerce and lends money to kings and commoners alike. He runs the Black Diamond, and goes by the moniker of The Jewel. Price's hands twitched slightly. As they reached the summit of the hill, the carriage turned into a long private brick road that ascended Burnham Heights, a sharply rising bluff that overlooked the river below. Protecting the palatial Dolores estate was a massive gate wider than three city streets, which opened at their approach. 
elegantly dressed guard stood rigid while a stuffy administrative clerk with white gloves and a powdered wig marked their passing on a parchment. Then the carriage began its long serpentine ascent along a hedge and lantern lined lane. Unexpected breaks in the foliage revealed glimpses of an elegant garden with elaborate sculpted fountains. At the top of the bluff stood a magnificent white marble mansion. Three stories in height, it was adorned with an eighteen-pillar colonnade, forming a half-moon entrance illuminated by a massive chandelier suspended at its centre. This estate was built to impress, but what caught Arista's attention was the huge bronze fountain of three nude women pouring pitchers of water into a pool. A pair of gold doors were opened by two more impeccably dressed servants. Another man, dressed in a long dark coat, led the way into the vestibule, filled with tapestries and more sculptures than Arista had ever seen in one place. They were led through an archway outside, to an expensive patio. Ivy-covered lattices lined an open-air terrace decorated with a variety of unusual plants, and two more fountains, once more of nude women, only these were much smaller and wrought of polished marble. Good evening, Your Highness, gentlemen. Welcome to my humble home. Seated on a luxurious couch, a large man greeted them. He wasn't tall, but of amazing girth. He looked to be in his early fifties and well on his way to going bald. He tied what little hair he had left with a black silk ribbon and let it fall in a tail down his back. His chubby face remained youthful, showing signs of age only at the corners of his eyes when he smiled, as he was doing now. He dressed in a silk robe and held a glass of wine which threatened to spill as he motioned them over. Duster, how long has it been, my old friend? I can see now that I should have made you first officer when I had the chance. It would have saved so much trouble for the both of us. Alas, but I couldn't see it then. I hope we can put all that unpleasantness behind us now. My business was settled the day Hoyt died, Royce replied. Judging from our reception, I would say it was the diamond that was having trouble putting the past behind them. Quite right, quite right, Cosmos chuckled. Arista determined he was the kind of man who laughed the way other people twitched, stammered, or bit their nails. You won't let me get away with anything, will you? That's good. You keep me honest. Well, as honest as a man in my profession can be. He chuckled again. It's that pesky legend that keeps the guild on edge. You're quite the bogeyman. Not that Mr. Price here buys into any of that, you understand, but it's his responsibility to keep the organization running smoothly. Allowing you to stroll about town is like letting a man-eating tiger meander through a crowded tavern. As the tavern-keeper, they expect me to maintain the peace. Cosmos motioned toward Price with his goblet. You knew Mr. Price only briefly when you were still with us, I think. A pity, 
You would like him if you met under different circumstances. Who said I didn't like him? Cosmos laughed. You don't like anyone, Duster, with the exception of Hadrian and Miss Delancey, of course. There are only those you put up with and those you don't. By the mere fact that I'm here, I can at least deduce I'm not on your shortlist. Shortlist? I can't imagine your slate of targets stays full for very long. We both have lists. Names get added, and names get erased all the time. It would appear Price added me to yours. Consider it erased, my friend. Now, tell me, what can I get you to drink? Montemorcy? You always had a fondness for the best. I have a vintage stock in the cellar. I'll have a couple of bottles brought up. That'd be fine, Royce replied. Cosmos gave a slight glance to his steward, who bowed abruptly and left. I hope you don't mind meeting in my little garden. I do so love the night air. Closing his eyes and tilting his head up, he took a deep breath. I don't manage to get out nearly as often as I would like. Now, please sit and tell me about this offer you bring. They took seats opposite Cosmos on elaborate cushioned benches, the span between taken up by an ornate table whose legs were fashioned to look like powerful snakes, each different from the next, facing out with fanged mouths open. Behind them, Arista could hear the gurgling of fountains and the late breeze shifting foliage. Below that was the deeper, menacing roar of the Burnham River, hidden from view by the balcony. It's more of a proposition, really, Royce replied. The princess here has a problem you might be able to help with, and you have a problem she may be able to solve. Wonderful, wonderful. I like how this is starting. If you had said you were offering me the chance of a lifetime, I would have been doubtful. But arrangements of mutual benefit show your being straightforward. I like that. But you were always blunt, weren't you, Duster? You could afford to lay your cards on the table, because you always had such excellent cards. A servant with white gloves identical to those worn by the gate clerk arrived, and silently poured the wine, then withdrew to a respectful distance. Cosmos waited politely for them each to take a taste. Montemorcy is one of the finest vineyards in existence, and my cellar has some of their very best. Royce nodded his praise. Hadrian sniffed the dark red liquid skeptically, then swallowed the contents in a single mouthful. Not bad for old grape juice. Cosmos laughed once more. Not a wine drinker. I should have known. Wine is no potable for a warrior. Gibbons, bring Hadrian a pull from the oak cask and leave the head on it. That should be more to your liking. Now, Duster, tell me about our mutual problems. Your problem is obvious. You don't like this new empire crowding you. Indeed I do not. They're everywhere, and spreading. For each one you see in uniform, 
you can expect three more you don't. Tavern keepers and blacksmiths are secretly working for the imperialists, passing information. It's impossible to run a proper guild as extensive and elaborate as the Black Diamond in such a restrictive environment. There is even evidence they have spies in the diamond itself, which is most unsettling. I also happen to know that Deegan Gaunt is your boy. Well, not mine, per se. Your father's, then. Gaunt is supported by Delgos, Tordelfour is the capital of Delgos, and your father is the ruler of Tordelfour. Cosmos laughed again. No, not the ruler. Delgos is a republic, remember? He's but one of a triumvirate of businessmen elected to lead the government. Uh-huh. You don't sound convinced. It doesn't matter. The Delors are backing Gaunt in the hopes of breaking the Empire, so something that might help Gaunt would help you as well. True, true. And what are you bringing me? An alliance with Melangar. The princess here is empowered to negotiate on behalf of her brother. Word has it, Melangar is helpless and about to fall to Ballantyne's northern imperial army. Word is mistaken. The Empress recalled the Northern Army to deal with the Nationalists. We passed it near Fallon Mire. Only a token force remains to watch the Galewar River. The Army moves slowly, but it'll reach Equesta before Gaunt does. That will tip the scales in favor of the Empire. What are you suggesting? Royce looked at Arista, indicating that she should speak now. Arista set down her glass and gathered her thoughts as best she could. She was still befuddled from the day's ride, and now the wine on an empty stomach caused her head to fog. She took a short breath and focused. Melangar still has a defensive force, the princess began. If we use it to attack across the river and break into Chadwick, there would be nothing to stop us from sweeping across to Gloucester. Once there, Marquis Lanaklin would raise an army from his loyal subjects, and together we could march on Colnora. We can catch the Empire in a vice, with Melangar pushing from the north and the Nationalists from the south. The Empire would have to either recommit the northern army, leaving the capital to Gaunt, or let us sweep across northern Warwick unopposed. Cosmos said nothing, but there was a smile on his face. He took a drink of his wine and sat back to consider their words. All we need you to do, Royce spoke again, is to set up a meeting between Gaunt and the princess. Once a formal agreement is struck between the Nationalists and Melangar, Arista explained, I can take that to Trent. With the Nationalists on Equesta's doorstep and my brother ravaging northern Warwick, Trent will be more than happy to join us. And, with their help, the new empire will be swept back into history, where it belongs. You paint a lovely picture, your highness, Cosmos said. But is it possible for Melangar to break out of Medford? Will Lenaklin be able to raise a force quickly enough to fend off any counterattack the empire sends? 
I suspect you would say yes to both, but without the conviction that comes from knowing. Fortunately, these are not my concern so much as they're yours. I'll contact Gaunt's people and arrange a meeting. It'll take a few days, however, and in the meantime it's not safe for you to stay and call Nora. What do you mean? Royce asked. As I said, I fear it's possible the Guild has been compromised. Mr. Price tells me Imperial Scouts were on hand when you passed through the gate, so it would only be wishful thinking to suppose your visit here was not observed. Given the situation, it'll not take a genius to determine what's happening. The next logical step will be to eliminate the threat. And, Duster, you're not the only Diamond alumnus passing through Warwick. Royce's eyes narrowed as he stared at Cosmos and studied the fat man carefully. Cosmos said nothing more on the subject, and strangely, Royce did not inquire further. We leave immediately, Royce said abruptly. We'll head south into Renyard, which will carry us closer to Gaunt. I'll expect you to contact us with the meeting's place and time in three days. If, by the morning of the fourth day, we don't hear from you, we'll find our own way to Gaunt. If you don't hear from me by then, things will be very bad indeed, Cosmos assured them. Gibbons, see that they have whatever is needed for travel. Price, arrange for them to slip out of town unnoticed and get that message to Gaunt's people. Will you need to send a message back to Medford? Cosmos asked the princess. She hesitated briefly. Not until I've reached an agreement with Gaunt. Ulrich knows the tentative plan and has already begun preparing the invasion. Excellent, Cosmos said, standing up and draining his glass. What a pleasure it is to work with professionals— Good luck to all of you, and may fortune smile upon us. Just remember to watch your back, Duster. Some ghosts never die. Your horses and gear will be taken to Finland's windmill by morning, Price told them, as he rapidly led them out through the rear patio. His long, gangly legs gave him the appearance of a wayward scarecrow fleeing across a field. Noticing Arista had trouble keeping up, he paused for her to catch her breath. However, you three will be leaving by boat down the Burnham tonight. There'll be a watch on the Langdon and the South Bridge, Royce reminded him. Armed with crossbows and hot pitch, I imagine, Price replied, grinning. His face looked even more skull-like in the darkness. But no worries. Arrangements have been made. The Burnham started as a series of tiny creeks that cascaded from amber heights and the Sinon uplands. They converged, creating a swift-flowing river that cut through a limestone canyon, forming a deep gorge. Eventually, it spilled over Amber Falls. The drop took the fight out of the water, and from there on the river flowed calmly through the remaining ravine that divided the city. This put Colnora at the navigable headwater of the Burnham, the last stop for goods coming up the river, and a gateway for anyone travelling to Dagestan Bay.
After Arista had regained her breath, Price resumed rushing them along at a storm's pace. They ducked under a narrow, ivy-covered archway and passed through a wooden gate which brought them to the rear of the estate. A short stone wall, only a little above waist-high, guarded the drop to the river gorge. Looking down, she could see only darkness, but across the expanse she could make out points of light and the silhouette of buildings. Price directed them to an opening and the start of a long wooden staircase. Our neighbour, Bocant, the pork mogul, has his six oxen hoist, Price said, motioning to the next mansion over. Arista could just make out a series of cables and pulleys connected to a large metal box. Two lanterns, one hung at the top and another at the bottom, revealed the extent of the drop, which appeared to be more than a hundred feet. But we have to make do with our more traditional, albeit more dangerous, route. Try not to fall. The steps are steep, and it's a long way down. The stairs were indeed frightening. A plummeting zigzag of planks and weathered beams bolted to the cliff's face. It looked like a diabolical puzzle of wood and rusting metal which quaked and groaned the moment they stepped on it. Arista was certain she felt it sway. Memories of a tower collapsing while she clutched onto Royce flooded back to her. Taking a deep breath, she gripped the handrail with a sweaty palm and descended, sandwiched between Royce and Hadrian. A narrow dock sat at the bottom, and a shallow-draft rowboat banged dully against it with the river's swells. A lantern mounted on the bow illuminated the area with a yellow flicker. "'Put that damn light out, you fools!' Price snapped at the two men readying the craft. A quick hand snuffed out the lantern, and Arista's eyes adjusted to the moonlight. From previous trips to Colnora, she knew that the river was as congested as Main Street on Hospitality Road during the day, but in the dark it lay empty, the vast array of watercraft bobbing at various piers. When the last of the supplies were aboard, Price returned their weapons. Hadrian strapped his on, and Royce's white-bladed dagger disappeared into the folds of his cloak. "'In you go,' Price told them putting one foot on the gunwale to steady the boat. A stocky, shirtless boatman stood in the centre of the skiff and directed them to their seats. "'Which one of you might be handy with a tiller?' he asked. "'Etcher,' Price said. "'Why don't you take the tiller?' "'I'm now good with a boat,' the wiry youth with a thin moustache and goatee replied as he adjusted the lay of the gear. "'I'll take the rudder.' Hadrian said. "'I'm grateful I am to you, sir,' the boatman greeted him cheerily. "'Name's Wally. You shouldn't need to use it much. I can steer fine with just the oars, but in the current it's sometimes best not to paddle at all. All you needs to do is keep her in the centre of the river.' Hadrian nodded. "'I can do that. But of course you can, sir.' Royce held Arista's hand as she stepped aboard and found a seat beside Hadrian on a shelf of worn planking. Royce followed her and took up position near the bow next to Etcher. "'When did you order the supplies brought down?' Royce asked Price, 
who still stood with his foot on the rail. Before returning to pick you up at the Regal Fox, I like to stay ahead of things, he winked. Duster, you might remember Etcher here from the Langdon Bridge last time you were in Colnora. Don't hold that against him. Etcher volunteered to get you safely to the mills when no one else cared for the idea. Now, off you go. Price untied the bowlin and shoved them out into the black water. Stow those lines, Mr. Etcher, sir, Wally said as he waited until they cleared the dock to lock the two long oars into place. With each stroke, the oars creaked quietly, and the skiff glided into the river's current. The boatman sat backward as he pulled on the oars. Little effort was required as the current propelled them downstream. Wally pulled on one side or the other, correcting their course as needed. Occasionally he stroked both together to keep them moving slightly faster than the water's flow. Blast! Wally cursed softly. What is it? Hadrian asked. The lantern went out on the bulk and dock. I used it to steer by... Just my luck. Any other night they leave it on. They use that hoisting contraption to unload boats. Sometimes the barges are late rounding the point, and in the darkness that lantern is their marker. They never know when the barges will arrive, so they usually just leave it on all night and... Oh, wait. It's back. Must have just blown out or something. Quiet down, Etcher whispered from the bow. This is no pleasure, Cruz. You're being paid to row, not be a river guide. Royce peered into the dark wake. Is it normal for small boats to be on the river at night? Not unless you're smuggling, Wally said in a coy tone that made Arista wonder if he had first-hand experience. If you don't keep your traps shut, someone will notice us, Etcher growled. Too late, Royce replied. What's that? Behind us. There's at least one boat following. Arista looked, but could see nothing except the line the moon drew on the black surface of the water. You've got a fine pair of eyes, you do, Wally said. You're the one that saw them, Royce replied. The light on the dock didn't go out. The other boat blocked it when they passed in your line of sight. How many? Hadrian asked. Six, and they're in a hurry. They'll be able to catch us then, won't they? Arista questioned. Hadrian nodded. They race wherries down on the Gale War and here on the Burnham for prize money. No one races skiffs. Despite this, Wally stroked noticeably harder, which, combined with the current, moved the skiff along at a brisk pace, raising a breeze in their faces. Langdon Bridge approaching, Etcher announced. Arista saw it towering above them as they rushed toward it. Massive pillars of stone blocks formed the arches supporting the bridge, whose broad span straddled the river eight stories above. She could barely make out the curved heads of the decorative, swan-shaped street lamps that lit the bridge, creating a line of lights against the starry sky. There are men up there, Royce said, and Price wasn't kidding about them having crossbows. Wally glanced over his shoulder and peered up at the bridge before regarding Royce curiously. 
What are you? Part owl? Stop paddling and shut up, Etcher ordered, and Wally pulled his oars out of the water. They floated silently, propelled by the river's current. In the swan lights, the men on the span soon became visible even to Arista. A dark boat on a black river would be hard, but not impossible, to spot. The skiff started to rotate sideways as the current pushed the stern. A nod from Wally prompted Hadrian to compensate with the tiller, and the boat straightened. Light exploded into the night sky. A bright orange and yellow glow spilled onto the bridge from somewhere on the left bank. A warehouse was on fire. It burst into flame, spewing sparks skyward like a cyclone of fireflies. Silhouetted figures ran the length of the bridge, and harsh shouts cut the stillness of the night. Now paddle, Etcher ordered, and Wally put his back into it. Arista used the opportunity to glance aft, and now she also saw the wherry, illuminated by the fire from above. The approaching boat was a good fifteen feet in length, and she guessed barely four feet across. Four men sat in two, side-by-side -side pairs, each manning an oar. Besides the oarsman, there were a man sitting in the stern and another at the bow with a grappling hook. I think they mean to board us, Arista whispered. No, Roy said. They're waiting. For what? I'm not sure, but I don't intend to find out. Give us as much distance as you can, Wally. Slide over, pal. Let me give you a hand, Hadrian told the boatman as he took up a seat beside him. Arista, take the tiller. The princess replaced Hadrian, grabbing hold of the wooden handle. She had no idea what to do with it, and opted for keeping it centred. Hadrian rolled up his sleeves and, bracing his feet against the toggles, took one of the oars. Royce slipped off his cloak and boots and dropped them onto the floor of the boat. "'Don't do anything stupid,' Etcher told him. "'We've still got another bridge to clear.' "'Just make sure you get them past the south bridge and we'll be fine.' Roy said. Now, gentlemen, if you could put a little distance between us. On three, Wally announced, and they began stroking together, pulling hard and fast, so that the bow noticeably rose and a wake began to froth. Caught by surprise, Etcher stumbled backward and nearly fell. What the blazes are— Etcher started, when Royce leapt over the gunwale and disappeared. Damn fool! What does he expect us to do, wait for him? Don't worry about Royce, Hadrian replied as he and Wally stroked in unison. To Arista, the wherry did seem to drop farther back, but perhaps that was only wishful thinking. South Bridge, Etcher whispered. As they approached, Arista saw another fire blazing. This time it was a boat dock, burning like well-aged kindling. The old South Bridge, which marked the city's boundary, wasn't nearly as high as the Langdon, and Arista could easily see the guards. They aren't going for it this time, Hadrian said. They're staying at their posts. Quiet. We might slip by, Etcher whispered. With oars held high, they all sat as still as statues. Arista found herself in command of the skiff as it floated along in the current. She quickly learned how the rudder affected the boat. The results felt backward to her. Pulling right made the bow swing left. 
Terrified of making a mistake, she concentrated on keeping the boat centered and straight. Up ahead, something odd was being lowered from the bridge. It looked like cobwebs or tree branches dangling. She was going to steer around it when she realized it stretched the entire span. They draped a net, Etcher said a little too loudly. Wally and Hadrian backpaddled, but the river's current was the victor, and the skiff flowed helplessly into the fishnet. The boat rotated, pinning itself sideways. Water frothed along the length, threatening to tip them. Shore your boat and don't move from it, a shout echoed down from above. A lantern lowered from the bridge revealed their struggles to free themselves from the mesh. Etcher, Wally, and Hadrian slashed at the netting with knives, but before they could clear it, two imperial soldiers descended and took up position on the bank. Each was armed with a crossbow. Stop now, or we'll kill you where you stand, the nearest soldier ordered with a harsh, anxious voice. Hadrian nodded, and the three dropped their knives. Arista couldn't take her eyes off the crossbows, she knew those weapons. She had seen Essendon soldiers practicing with them in the yard. They pierced old helms placed on dummies, leaving huge holes through the heavy metal. These were close enough for her to see the sharp iron heads of the bolts, the power to pierce armor held in check by a small trigger and pointed directly at them. Wally and Hadrian maneuvered the boat to the bank, and one by one they exited. Hadrian offering Arista his hand as she climbed out. They stood side by side, Arista and Hadrian in front, Wally and Etcher behind. Remove your weapons, one of the soldiers ordered, motioning toward Hadrian. Hadrian paused, his eyes shifting between the two bowmen before slipping off his swords. One of the soldiers approached, while the other stayed back, maintaining a clear line of sight. "'What are your names?' the foremost soldier asked. No one answered. The lead guard took another step forward and intently studied Arista. "'Well, well, well,' he said. "'Look what we have here, Joss. "'We done caught ourselves a fine fish we have.' "'Who is it?' Joss asked. "'This here is that Princess of Melangar,' The one they say is a witch. How do you know? I recognise her. I was in Medford the year she was on trial for killing her father. What's she doing here, you think? Don't know. What you doing here? She said nothing. Her eyes locked on the massive bolt heads. Made of heavy iron, the points looked sharp. Night killers, Sir Ecton called them. What will they do to me? The captain will have to find out, the soldier said. I recognise these two as well. He motioned to Wally and Etcher. I've seen them round the city afore. Course you have, Wally spoke up. I've piloted this river for years. We weren't doing nothing wrong. If you've been on this river afore, then you knows we don't allow transport at night. Wally didn't say anything. I don't know that one, though. What's your name? Adrian, he said, 
taking the opportunity to step forward as if to shake hands. Back, back! The guard shouted, bringing his bow to bear at Hadrian's chest. Hadrian immediately stopped. Take one more step, and I'll punch a hole clear through you. So, what's your plan? Hadrian asked. You and your pals just sit tight. We sent a runner to fetch a patrol. We'll take you over to see the captain. He'll know what to do with the likes of you. I hope we don't have to wait long, Hadrian told them. This damp night air isn't good. You could catch a cold. Looks like you have already. What do you think, Arista? I ain't got no cold. Are you sure? Your eyes and nose look red. Arista, you agree with me, don't you? What? Arista said, still captivated by the crossbows. She could feel her heart hammering in her chest, and barely heard Hadrian addressing her. I bet you two been coughing and sneezing all night, haven't you? Hadrian continued. Nothing worse than a summer cold, right, Arista? Arista was dumbfounded by Hadrian's blathering and his obsession with the health of the two soldiers. She felt obligated to say something. I... I suppose... Sneezing. That's the worst. I hate to sneeze. Arista gasped. Just shut up, the soldier ordered. Without taking his eyes off Hadrian, he called to Juss behind him. See anyone coming yet? Not yet, Juss replied. All of them off dealing with that fire, I suspect. Arista had never tried this under pressure before. Closing her eyes, she fought to remember the concentration technique Ezra Hardin had taught her. She took deep breaths, cleared her mind, and tried to calm herself. Arista focused on the sounds around her, the river lapping against the boat, the wind blowing through the trees, and the chirping of the frogs and crickets. Then, slowly, she blocked each out, one by one. Opening her eyes, she stared at the soldiers. She saw them in detail now, the three-day-old whiskers on their faces, their rumpled tabards, even the rusted links in their hauberks. Their eyes showed their nervous excitement, and Arista thought she even caught the musky odor of their bodies. Breathing rhythmically, she focused on their noses as she began to hum, then mutter. Her voice slowly rose as if in song. I said no! The soldier stopped suddenly, wrinkling his nose. His eyes began to water, and he shook his head in irritation. I said no! He began again and stopped once more, gasping for air. At the same time, Juss was having similar problems, and the louder Arista's voice rose, the greater their struggle. Raising her hand, she moved her fingers as if writing in the air. I said, I, I... Arista made a sharp clipping motion with her hand, and both of them abruptly sneezed in unison. In that instant, Hadrian lunged forward and broke the closest guard's leg with a single kick to his knee. He pulled the screaming guard in front of him just as the other fired. The crossbow bolt caught the soldier square in the chest, piercing the metal ringlets of his hauberk and staggering both of them backward.
Letting the dead man fall, Hadrian picked up his bow as the other guard turned to flee. Snap! The bow launched the bolt. The impact made a deep resonating thwack and drove the remaining guard to the ground where he lay dead. Hadrian dropped the bow. Let's move! They jumped back in the skip just as the wherry approached. It came out of the darkness, its long, pointed shape no longer slicing through the water. Instead, it drifted aimlessly, helpless to the whims of the current. As it approached, it became apparent why. The wherry was empty. Even the oars were gone. As the boat passed by, a dark figure crawled out of the water. "'Why have you stopped?' Royce admonished, wiping his wet hair away from his face. I would have caught up. Spotting the bodies halted his need for explanation. Hadrian pushed the boat into the river, leaping in at the last instant. From above, they could hear men's voices. They finished cutting loose the net and, once free, slipped clear of the bridge. The current, combined with Wally's and Hadrian's pulling hard on the oars, sent them flying downriver in the dark of night leaving the city of Colnora behind them. Chapter 8 Hintendar Arista woke, feeling disoriented and confused. She'd been dreaming about riding in her carriage. She sat across from both Soli and Ezra Hardin. Only, in her dream, Ezra Hardin had hands— and Sawley was wearing his bishop's robes. They were trying to pour brandy from a flask into a cup, and were discussing something, a heated argument, but she could not recall it. A bright light hurt her eyes, and her back ached from sleeping on something hard. She blinked, squinted, and looked around. Her memory returned as she realized she was still in the skiff, coasting down the Burnham River. Her left foot was asleep, and dragging it from under a bag started the sensation of pins and needles. The morning sun shone brightly. The limestone cliffs were gone, replaced by sloping farmlands. On either side of the river, lovely green fields swayed gently in the soft breeze. The tall, spiked grass might have been wheat, although it could just have easily have been barley. Here the river was wider and moved slower. There was hardly any current, and Wally was back to rowing. "'Morning, my lady,' he greeted her. "'Morning,' Adrian said from his seat at the tiller. "'I guess I dozed off,' she replied, pulling herself up and adjusting her gown. "'Did anyone else get any sleep?' I'll sleep when I get downriver, Wally replied, hauling on the oars, rocking back, then sitting up again. The paddle blades dripped and plunged. After I drop you fine folks off, I'll head down to Evelyn, catch a nap and a meal, then try to pick up some travellers or freight to take back up. No sense in fighting this current for nothing. Arista looked toward Hadrian, some, he told her. Royce and I took turns. Her hair was loose and falling in her face. 
Her blue satin ribbon had been lost somewhere during the night's ride from Sheridan. Since then, she had been using a bit of rawhide provided by Hadrian. Even that was missing now, and she poked about her hair and found the rawhide caught in a tangle. While she worked to free it, she said, You should have woken me. I would have taken a shift at the tiller. We actually considered it when you started to snore. I don't snore. I beg to differ, Hadrian chided while chewing. She looked around the skiff, as each of them, even Etcher, nodded. Her face flushed. Hadrian chuckled. Don't worry about it. You can't be held accountable for what you do in your sleep. Still, she said, it's not very ladylike. Well, if that's all you're worried about, you can forget it. Hadrian informed her with a wicked smirk. We lost all illusions of you being prissy back in Sheridan. How much better it was when they were silent. That's a compliment, he added hastily. You don't have much luck with the ladies, do you, sir? Wally asked, pausing briefly and letting the paddles hang out like wings, leaving a tiny trail of droplets on the smooth surface of the river. I mean, with compliments like that and all. Hadrian frowned at him, then turned back to her with a concerned expression. I really did mean it as a compliment. I've never met a lady who would... Well, without complaining, you've been... He paused in frustration, then added, That little trick you managed back there was really great. Arista knew Hadrian only brought up the sneezing spell to try to smooth things over, but she had to admit a sense of pride that she had finally contributed something of value to their trip. That was the first practical application of hand magic I've ever performed. I really wasn't sure you could do it, Hadrian said. Who would have thought such a silly thing would come in handy? Travel with us long enough, and you'll see we can find a use for just about anything. Hadrian extended his hand. Cheese? he asked. It's really quite good. Arista took the cheese and offered him a smile, but was disappointed he didn't see it. His eyes had moved to the river bank, and her smile faded as she ate self-consciously. Wally continued to paddle in even strokes, and the world passed slowly by. They rounded bend after bend, skirting a fallen tree, then a sandy point. It took Arista nearly an hour with her brush to finally work all the knots out of her hair. She retied its length with the rawhide into a respectable ponytail. Eventually a gap opened in the river reeds to reveal a small sandy bank that showed signs of previous boat landings. "'But in here,' Etcher ordered, and Wally deftly spun the boat to land beneath the shadow of a massive willow tree. Etcher leapt out and tied the bowline. "'This is our stop. Let's get the gear off.' "'Not yet,' Royce said. "'You want to check the mill sails first. "'Oh, yeah!' Etcher nodded, looking a little embarrassed and a tad irritated. Wait here, he said, before trotting up the grassy slope. Sails? Hadrian asked. Just over this rise is the millwright Ethan Finland's windmill, Royce explained. Finland is a member of the Diamond. His windmill is used to store smuggled goods, and also serves as a signal that can be seen from the far hills. If the mill's sails are spinning, then all is clear 
If furled, then there's trouble. The position of the locked sails indicates different things. If straight up and down, like a ship's mast, it means he needs help. If the sails are cockeyed, it means stay away. There are other signals as well, but I'm sure they've changed since I was a member. All clear, Etcher notified them as he strode back down the hill. They each took a pack, waved goodbye to Wally, and climbed up the slope. Finland's mill was a tall, weathered tower that sat high on the crest of a grassy knoll. The windmill's cap rotated and currently faced into the wind, which blew steadily from the northeast. Its giant sails of cloth-covered wooden frames rotated slowly, creaking as they turned the great mill's shaft. Around the windmill were several smaller buildings, storage sheds and wagons. The place was quiet and absent of customers. They found their horses, as well as an extra one for Etcher, along with their gear in a nearby barn. Finland briefly stuck his nose out of the mill and waved. They waved back, and Royce had a short talk with Etcher as Hadrian saddled for their animals and loaded the supplies. Arista threw her own saddle on her mare, which garnered a smile from Hadrian. "'Saddle your own horse often, do you?' he asked as she reached under the horse's belly for the cinch. The metal ring at the end of the wide band swung back and forth, making catching it a challenge without crawling under the animal. "'I'm a princess, not an invalid.' She caught the cinch and looped the leather strap through it, tying what she thought was a fine knot, exactly like the one she used to tie her hair. "'Can I make one minor suggestion?' She looked up. "'Of course.' You need to tie it tighter and use a flat knot. That's two suggestions. Thanks, but I think it'll be fine. He reached up and pulled on the saddle's horn. The saddle easily slid off and came to rest between the horse's legs. But it was tight. I'm sure it was. Hadrian pulled the saddle back up and undid the knot. People think horses are stupid. Dumb animals, they call them, but they're not. This one, for instance, just outsmarted the Princess of Melengar. He pulled the saddle off, folded the blanket over, and returned the saddle to the animal's back. You see, horses don't like to have a saddle bound around their chest any more than I suspect you enjoy being trussed up in a corset. The looser the better, they figure, because they don't really mind if you slide off. He looped the leather strap through the ring in the cinch and pulled it tight. So, what she's doing right now is holding her breath, expanding her chest and waiting for me to tie the saddle on. When she exhales, it'll be loose. Thing is, I know this. I also know she can't hold her breath forever. He waited with two hands on the strap, and the moment the mare exhaled, he pulled gaining a full four inches. See? She watched as he looped the strap across, then through and down, making a flat knot that laid comfortably against the horse's side. Okay, I admit it. This is the first time I've saddled a horse, she confessed. And you're doing wonderfully, he mocked. You are aware I can have you imprisoned for life, right? Royce and Etcher entered the barn.
The younger thief grabbed his horse and left without a word. Friendly sorts, those diamonds are, Hadrian observed. Cosmos seemed hospitable, Arista pointed out. Yeah, but that's how you might expect a spider to talk to a fly as she wraps him up. What an interesting metaphor, Arista noted. You could have a future in politics, Hadrian. He glanced at Royce. We never considered that as one of the options. I'm not sure how it differs from acting. He never likes my ideas, Hadrian told her, then turned his attention back to Royce. Where to now? Hintendar, Royce replied. Hintendar? Are you serious? It's out of the way and a good place to disappear for a while. Problem? Hadrian narrowed his eyes. You know darn well there's a problem. What's wrong? Arista asked. I was born in Hintendar. I've already told Etcher that's where we'll wait for him, Royce said. Nothing we can do about it now. But Hintendar is just a tiny manorial village. Some farms and trade shops. There's no place to stay. Even better. After Colnora, lodging in a public house might not be too smart. There must be a few people there that still know you. I'm sure someone will lend a hand and put us up for a while. We need to go somewhere off the beaten track. You don't honestly think anyone is still following us? I know the Empire would want to stop Arista from reaching Gaunt, but I doubt anybody recognized her in Colnora. At least no one's still alive. Royce didn't answer. Royce? I'm just playing it safe, he snapped. Royce, what did Cosmos mean back there about you not being the only ex-diamond in Warwick? What was that talk of ghosts all about? Royce remained silent. Hadrian glared at him. I came along as a favour to you, but if you're going to keep secrets... Royce relented. It's probably nothing, but then again... Merrick could be after us. Hadrian lost his look of irritation and replied with a simple, Oh. Anyone going to tell me who Merrick is? Arista asked. Or why Hadrian doesn't want to go home? I didn't leave under the best of circumstances, Hadrian answered, and haven't been back in a long time. And Merrick? Merrick Marius, also known as Cutter was Royce's friend once. They were members of the Diamond together, but they... He glanced at Royce. Well, let's just say they had a falling out. So? Hadrian waited for Royce to speak, and, when he did not, answered for him. It's a long story, but the gist of the matter is that Merrick and Royce seriously don't get along. He paused then added, Merrick is an awful lot like Royce. Arista continued to stare at Hadrian until the revelation dawned on her. Still, that doesn't mean Merrick is after us, Hadrian went on. It's been a long time, right? Why would he bother with you now? He's working for the Empire, Royce said. That's what Cosmos meant. And if there's an Imperial Mole in the Diamond, Merrick knows all about us by now. Even if there isn't a spy, Merrick could still find out about us from the diamond. There are plenty who think of him as a hero for sending me to Manzant. 
I'm the evil one in their eyes. You were in Mansand? Arista asked, stunned. It's not something he likes to talk about, Hadrian again answered for him. So, if Merrick is after us, what do we do? What we always do, Royce replied. Only better. The village of Hintendar lay nestled in a small, sheltered river valley, surrounded by gentle hills. A patchwork of six cultivated fields, outlined by hedgerows and majestic stands of oak and ash, decorated the landscape in a crop mosaic. Horizontal lines of mounded green marked three of the fields with furrows, sown in strips, to hold the runoff. Animals grazed in the fourth field, and the fifth was cut for hay. The last field lay fallow. Young women were in the fields, cutting flax and stuffing it in sacks thrown over their shoulders, while men weeded crops and threw up hay. The centre of the village clustered along the main road near a little river, a tributary of the Burnham. Wood, stone, and wattle and daub buildings, with shake or grass-thatched roofs, lined the road, beginning just past the wooden bridge and ending halfway up the hillside toward the manor house. Between them were a variety of shops. From several buildings smoke rose, the blackest of which came from the smithy. Their horses announced their arrival with a loud, hollow clop-clip-clop as they crossed the bridge. Heads turned, each villager nudging the next, fingers pointing in their direction. Those they passed stopped what they were doing to follow, keeping a safe distance. "'Good afternoon,' Adrian offered, but no one replied. No one smiled. Some whispered in the shelter of doorways. Mothers pulled children inside, and men picked up pitchforks or axes. Is this where you grew up? Arista whispered to Hadrian. Somehow it seems more like how I would imagine Royce's hometown to be. This brought a look from Royce. They don't get too many travellers here, Hadrian explained. I can see why. They passed the mill, where a great wooden wheel turned with the power of the river. The town also had a leather worker's shop, a candle-maker, a weaver, and even a shoemaker. They were halfway up the road when they reached the brewer. A heavy-set matron with grey hair and a hooked nose worked outside beside a boiling vat next to a stand of large wooden casks. She watched their slow approach, then walked to the middle of the road, wiping her hands on a soiled rag. "'That'll be fair enough,' she told them with a heavy South Province accent. She wore a stained apron tied around her shapeless dress and a kerchief tied over her head. Her feet were bare and her face was covered in dirt and sweat. Who are you and what's your business here? And be quick afore the hue and cry is called and you're carried to the bailiff. We don't stand for troublemakers here. Hue and cry? Arista softly asked. Hadrian looked over. It's an alarm that everyone in the village responds to. Not a pretty sight. His eyes narrowed as he studied the woman. Then he slowly dismounted. 
The woman took a step back and grabbed hold of a mallet used to tap the kegs. I said I'd call the hue and cry, and I meant it. Hadrian handed his reins to Royce and walked over to her. If I remember correctly, you were the biggest troublemaker in the village, Armagill. And in close to twenty years, it doesn't seem much has changed. The woman looked surprised, then suspicious. Haddy, she said in disbelief, that can't be, can it? Hadrian chuckled. No one's called me Haddy in years. Dear Meribor, how you've grown, lad. When the shock wore off, she set the mallet down and turned to the spectators now lining the road. This here is Haddy Blackwater, the son of Danbury the smithy. Come back home. How are you, Armagill? Hadrian said with a broad smile, stepping forward to greet her. She replied by making a fist and punching him hard in the jaw. She had put all her weight into it and winced, shaking her hand in pain. Ow! Damned if you haven't got a hard, bloody jaw! Why'd you hit me? Hadrian held his chin, stunned. That's for running out on your father and leaving him to die alone. I've been waiting to do that for nearly twenty years. Hadrian licked blood from his lip and scowled. Oh, get over it, you baby. And you better keep your eyes out for more round here. Dunbury was a damn fine man and you broke his heart the day you left. Hadrian continued to massage his jaw. Armagill rolled her eyes. Come here, she ordered, and grabbed hold of his face. Hadrian flinched as she examined him. You're fine for Meribor's sake. Honestly, I thought your father made you tougher than that. If I had a sword in me hand, your shoulders would have less of a burden to carry, and the wee ones would have a new ball to kick round, eh? Here, let me get your mug of ale. This batch came of age this morning. That'll take the sting out of a warm welcome, it will. She walked to a large cask, filled a wooden cup with a dark amber draught, and handed it to him. Adrian looked at the drink dubiously. How many times have you filtered this? Three, she said unconvincingly. Has his lordship's taster passed this? Of course not, you darn fool. I just told you it got done fermenting this morning. Brewed it day afore yesterday, I did. A nice two days in the keg. Most of the sediment ought to have settled, and it should have a nice kick by now. Just don't want to get you into trouble. I ain't selling it to you now, am I? So drink it and shut up or I'll hit you again for being daft. Haddy, is it really you? A thin man about Hadrian's age approached. He had shoulder-length blonde hair and a soft, doughy face. He was dressed in a worn grey tunic and a faded green cowl, his feet wrapped in cloth up to his knees. A light brown dust covered him, 
as if he had been burrowing through a sandhill. Dunstan? The man nodded, and the two embraced, clapping each other on the shoulders. Wherever Hadrian patted Dunstan, a puff of brown powder arose, leaving the two in a little cloud. You used to live here? A little girl from the gathering crowd asked, and Hadrian nodded. This touched off a wave of conversations among those gathering in the street. More people rushed over, and Hadrian was enveloped in their midst. Eventually he was able to get a word in, and a motion toward Royce and Arista. Everyone, this is my friend, Mr. Everton and his wife, Irma. Arista and Royce exchanged glances. Vince, Irma, this is the village brewmistress, Armagill, and Dunstan here is the baker's son. Just the baker, Hattie. Dad's been dead five years now. Oh, sorry to hear that, Dun. I've nothing but fond memories of trying to steal bread from his ovens. Dunstan looked at Royce. Hattie and I were best friends when he lived here. Until he disappeared, he said with a note of bitterness. Will I have to endure a swing from you too? Hadrian feigned fear. You should, but I remember all too well the last time I fought you. Hadrian grinned wickedly as Dunstan scowled back. If my foot hadn't slipped, Dunstan began, and then the two broke into spontaneous laughter at a joke no one else appeared to understand. It's good to have you back, Haddie, he said sincerely. He watched Hadrian take a swallow of beer, and then to Armagill he said, I don't think it fair that Haddie gets a free pint, and I don't. Let me give you a bludgy lip, and you can have one too. She smiled at him. Break it up! Break it up! bellowed a large, muscular man, making his way through the crowd. He had a bull neck, a full dark beard, and a balding head. Back to work, all of you! The crowd groaned in displeasure, but quickly quieted down as two horsemen approached. They rode down the hill, coming from the manor at a trot. "'What's going on here?' the lead rider asked, reining his horse. He was a middle-aged man with weary eyes and a strong chin. He dressed in light, tailored linens, common to a favoured servant, and on his chest was an embroidered crest of crossed daggers in gold threading. "'Strangers, sir,' the loud, bull-necked man replied. "'They ain't strangers, sir,' Armigal spoke up. "'This here's Haddy Blackwater, son of the old village smith. Come for a visit.' "'Thank you, Armigal,' he said. "'But I wasn't speaking to you. I was addressing the Reeve.' He looked down at the bearded man. "'Well, Osgar, out with it.' The burly man shrugged his shoulders and stroked his beard, looking uncomfortable. "'She might be right, sir. I haven't had a chance to ask, what with getting the villains back to work and all.' "'Very well, Osgar. See to it that they return to work, or I'll have you in stocks by nightfall.' "'Yes, sir. Right away, sir.' He turned, bellowing at the villagers, until they moved off. Only Armagill and Dunstan quietly remained behind. 
"'Are you the son of the old smithy?' the rider asked. "'I am,' Hadrian replied. "'And you are?' "'I'm his lordship's bailiff. "'It's my duty to keep order in this village, "'and I don't appreciate you disrupting the villain's work. "'My apologies, sir,' Hadrian nodded respectfully. "'I didn't mean, if you're the smithy's son, where have you been?' The other rider spoke this time. Much younger-looking, he was better dressed than the bailiff, wearing a tunic of velvet and linen. His legs were covered in opaque hose, and his feet in leather shoes with brass buckles. "'Are you aware of the penalty for leaving the village without permission?' "'I'm the son of a freeman, not a villain,' Hadrian declared. "'And who are you?' The rider sneered at Hadrian. I'm the imperial envoy to this village, and you would be wise to watch the tone of your voice. Freemen can lose that privilege easily. Again, my apologies, Adrian said. I'm only here to visit my father's grave. He died while I was away. The envoy's eyes scanned Royce and Arista, then settled on Hadrian, looking him over carefully. Three swords?' he asked the bailiff. "'In this time of war, an able-bodied man like this should be in the army, fighting for the Empress. He's likely a deserter or a rogue. Arrest him, Seward, and take his associates in for questioning. If he hasn't committed any crimes, he will be properly pressed into the Imperial Army.' The bailiff looked at the envoy with annoyance. "'I don't take my orders from you, Loret.' You forget that all too frequently. If you have a problem, take it up with the steward. I'm certain he will speak to his lordship the moment he returns from loyal service to the Empire. In the meantime, I'll administer this village as best I can for my lord, not for you. Lorit jerked himself upright in indignation. As Imperial Envoy, I am addressed as Your Excellency— and you should understand that my authority comes directly from the Empress. I don't care if it comes from the good Lord Merlebor himself. Unless his lordship or the steward in his absence orders me otherwise, I only have to put up with you. I don't have to take orders from you. We'll see about that. The envoy spun and spurred his horse back toward the manor, kicking up a cloud of dust. The bailiff shook his head with irritation, waiting for the dust to settle. "'Don't worry,' he told them. "'The steward won't listen to him. "'Danbury Blackwater was a good man. "'If you're anything like him, you'll find me a friend. "'If not, you had best make your stay here as short as possible. "'Keep out of trouble. "'Don't interfere with the villain's work, and stay away from Lurit.' "'Thank you, sir.' Hadrian said. The bailiff then looked around the village in irritation. Armagill, where did the reeve get off to? Went to the east field, I think, sir. There is a team he is working on drainage up that way. The bailiff sighed. I need him to get more men working on bringing in the hay. Rain's coming, and it'll ruin what's been cut if he doesn't. I'll tell him, sir, if he comes back this way. 
Thank you, Armigal. Sir? She tapped off a pint of beer and handed it up to him. While you're here, sir. He took one swallow, then poured the rest out and tossed back her cup. A little weak, he said. Set your price at two copper tenants a pint. But, sir, it's got good flavour. At least let me ask three. He sighed. Why must you always be so damn stubborn? Let it be three, but make them brimming pints. Mind you, if I hear one complaint, I'll fine you a silver, and you can take your case to the steward's court. Thank you, sir, she said, smiling. Good day to you all. He nodded and trotted off toward the east. They watched him go, and then Dunstan started chuckling. A fine welcome home you've had so far. A belt in the mouth and threat of arrest. Actually, outside the fact that everything looks a lot smaller, not much has changed here, Hadrian observed. Just some new faces, a few buildings and, of course, the envoy. He's only been here a week, Dunstan said, and I'm sure the bailiff and the steward will be happy when he leaves. He travels a circuit covering a number of villages in the area and has been showing up here every couple of months since the new empire annexed Renyard. No one likes him, for obvious reasons. He's yet to meet Lord Baldwin face to face. Most of us think Baldwin purposely avoids being here when the envoy comes, so Lorit's list of complaints keeps getting longer and longer, and the steward just keeps writing them down. So, are you really here just to see your father's grave? I thought you were coming back to stay. Sorry, Dunn, but we're just passing through. In that case... We had best make the most of it. What say you, Armigil? Roll a keg into my kitchen, and I'll supply the bread and stools for toasts to Danbury, and a proper welcome for Haddie. He don't deserve it, but I think I have a keg round here that is bound to go bad if I don't get rid of it. Hobby! Dunstan shouted up the street to a young man at the livery. Can you find a place for these horses? Dunstan and Hadrian helped Armigal roll a small barrel to the bakery. As they did, Royce and Arista walked their animals over to the stables. The boy cleared three stalls, then ran off with a bucket to fetch water. "'Do you think the envoy will be a problem?' Arista asked Royce, once Hobby had left. "'Don't know,' he said, untying his pack from the saddle. "'Hopefully we won't be here long enough to find out.' How long will we be here? Cosmos will move fast. Just a night or two, I imagine. He threw his bag over his shoulder and crossed to Hadrian's horse. Have you decided what you'll say to Gaunt when you meet him? I hear he hates nobility, so I wouldn't start by asking him to kiss your ring or anything. She pulled her own gear off Mystic and then, holding out her hands, wiggled her bare fingers. Actually... I thought I'd ask him to kidnap my brother. She smiled. It worked for you, and if I can gain the trust and aid of a Royce Melbourne, how hard can it be to win over a Deegan Gaunt? 
They carried the gear across the street to the little whitewashed shop with a signboard portraying a loaf of bread. Inside, a huge brick oven and a large wooden table dominated the space. The comforting scent of bread and wood smoke filled the air, and Arista was surprised the bakery wasn't broiling. The wattle and daub walls and the good-sized windows managed to keep the room comfortable. As Arista and Royce entered, they were introduced to Dunstan's wife, Arbor, and a host of other people whose names Arista couldn't keep up with. Once word spread, freemen, farmers, and other merchants dropped by, grabbing a pint and helping themselves to a hunk of dark bread. There were Alger, the woodworker, Harbert, the tailor, and Harbert's wife, Hester. Hadrian introduced Wilfred, the carter, and explained how he used to rent Wilfred's little wagon four times every year to travel to Ratabor to buy iron ingots for his father's smithy. There were plenty of stories of the skinny kid with pimples who used to swing a hammer beside his father. Most remembered Danbury with kindness, and there were many toasts to his good name. Just as the bailiff had predicted, it started to rain, and soon the villains, released from work due to weather, dropped by to join the gathering. They slipped in, quietly shaking off the wetness. Each got a bit of bread, a pint to drink, and a spot to sit on the floor. Some brought steaming crocks of vegetable pottage, cheese, and cabbage for everyone to share. Even Osgar the Reeve pressed himself inside and was welcomed to share the community meal. The sky darkened, the wind whipped up, and Dunstan finally closed the shutters as the rain poured. They all wanted to know what had happened to Hadrian, where he had gone, and what he had done. Most of them had spent their whole lives in Hindendar, barely crossing the river. In the case of the villains, they were bound to the land and, by law, couldn't leave. For them, generations passed without ever setting foot beyond the valley. Hadrian kept them entertained with stories of his travels. Arista was curious to hear tales of the adventures he and Royce had shared over the years, but none of those came out. Instead, he told harmless stories of distant lands. Everyone was spellbound by stories about the Far East, where the Calean people supposedly interbred with the Baran Gazelle to produce the half-goblin Tenkin. Children gathered close to the skirts of their mothers when he spoke about the Oberdaza, Tenkin who worshipped the dark god Uberlin and blended Calean traditions with gazelle magic. Even Arista was captivated by his stories of far-off Dagestan. With Hadrian the centre of attention, few took notice of Arista, which was fine with her. She was happy just to be off her horse and in a safe place. The tension melted away from her. The hot bread and fresh-brewed beer were wonderful. She was comfortable for the first time in days and revelled in the camaraderie of the bakery. She drank pints of beer until she lost track of the number. Outside, night fell, and the rain continued. They lit candles, giving the room an even friendlier charm. The beer was infecting the group with mirth, and soon they were singing loudly. She didn't know the words, but found herself rocking with the rhythm, humming the chorus, and clapping her hands. 
someone told a bawdy joke, and the room burst into laughter. Where are you from? Although it had been asked three times, this was the first instance that Arista had realized it was meant for her. Turning, she found Arba, the baker's wife, sitting beside her. She was a petite woman with a plain face and short, cropped hair. I'm sorry, Arista apologized. I'm not accustomed to beer. The bailiff said it was weak, but I think I would take exception to that. From your mouth to his ears, darling, Armigal said loudly from across the room. Arista wondered how she had heard from so far away, especially when she had thought she had spoken so softly. Arista remembered Arbor had asked the question. Oh, right. Ah, uh, Colnora, the princess said at length. My husband and I live in Colnora. Well, Actually, we are staying with my brother now because we were evicted from our home in Wyndham Village by the Northern Imperial Army. That's up in Warwick, you know. Wyndham Village, I mean, not the army. Of course, it could be. The army, I mean, this time, not the village, because they could be there. Does that answer your question? The room was spinning slowly, and it gave Arista the feeling she was falling, though she knew she was sitting still. The whole sensation made it difficult for her to concentrate. You were evicted? How awful! Arbor looked stricken. Well, yes, but it's not that great of a hardship, really. My brother has a very nice place in the hill district in Colnora. He's quite well off, you know. She whispered this last part into Arbor's ear. At least she thought she did. But Arbor pulled back sharply. Oh, really? You come from a wealthy family? Arbor asked, rubbing her ear. I thought you did. I was admiring your dress. It's very beautiful. This? Pa! She pulled at the material of her skirt. I got this old rag from one of my servants, who was about to throw it out. You should see my gowns. Now, those are something, but yes, we're very wealthy. My brother has a virtual army of servants, she said, and burst out laughing. Irma, someone said from behind her. What does your brother do? Arbor asked. Hmm? Do? Oh, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't work. Irma, dear. My brother, he calls it work, but it's nothing like what you people do. Did you know I slept on the ground just two nights ago? Not indoors either, but out in the woods. My brother never did that, I can tell you. You probably have, haven't you? But he hasn't. No, he gets his money from taxes. That's how all kings get their money. Well, some can get it from conquest. Glen Morgan got loads from conquest, but not Ulrich. He's never been to war. Until now, of course. He's not doing well at all, I can tell you. Irma! Arista looked up to see Royce standing over her, his face stern. Why are you calling me that? I think my wife has had a little too much to drink, he said to the rest of them. 
Arista looked around to see several faces smirking in an effort to suppress laughter. Is there anywhere I can take her to sleep it off? Immediately, several people offered the use of their homes, some even the use of their beds, saying they would sleep on the floor. Spend the night here, Dunstan said. It's raining out. Do you really want to wander around out there in the dark? You can actually make a fine bed out of the flour sacks in the storeroom. How would you know that, Dunn? Adrian asked, chuckling. The wife's kicked you out a few times. This brought a roar of laughter from the crowd. Haddy, you, my friend, can sleep in the rain. Come along, wife. Royce pulled Arista to her feet. Arista looked up at him and winked. Oh, right. Sorry. Forgot who I was. Don't apologize, honey, Armigal told her. That's why we're drinking in the first place. You just got there quicker than the rest of us is all. The next morning, Arista woke up alone and couldn't decide which hurt more, her head from the drink or her back from the lumpy flower bags. Her mouth was dry, her tongue coated in some disgusting film. She was pleased to discover her saddlebags beside her, she pulled them open and grimaced. Everything inside smelled of horse sweat and mildew. She had brought only three dresses, the one worn through the rain, which was a wrinkled mess, the stunning silver receiving gown she planned to wear when she met Deegan Gaunt, and the one she presently wore. Surprisingly, the silver gown was holding up remarkably well and was barely even wrinkled. She had brought it, hoping to impress Gaunt, but, recalling her conversation with Royce about how the nationalist leader felt about royalty, she realized it was a poor choice. She would have been much better off with something simpler. It would, at least, have given her something decent to change into. She pulled off her dirt-stained garment, removed her corset, and pulled on the dress she had worn at Sheridan. She stepped out of the storeroom and found Arbor hard at work kneading dough surrounded by dozens of cloth-covered baskets. Villagers entered and set either a bag of flour or a sackcloth of dough on the counter, along with a few copper coins. Arbor gave them an estimated pick-up time of either midday or early evening. "'You do this every day?' Arista asked. Arbor nodded with sweat glistening on her brow as she used the huge wooden paddle to slide another loaf into the glowing oven. Normally, Dunn is more helpful, but he's off with your husband and Hattie this morning. It's a rare thing, so I'm happy to let him enjoy the visit. They're down at the smithy if you're interested. Or would you rather have a bite to eat? Arista's stomach twisted. No, thank you. I think... I'll wait a bit longer. Arbor worked with a skilled hand born of hundreds, perhaps thousands, of repetitions. How does she do it? She knew the baker's wife got up every morning and repeated the same actions as the day before. Where is the challenge? Arista was certain Arbor couldn't read and probably had few possessions, yet she seemed happy. 
She and Dunstan had a pleasant home, and compared to that of those toiling in the fields, her work was relatively easy. Dunstan seemed a kind and decent man, and their neighbours were good, friendly folk. While not terribly exciting, it was nonetheless a safe, comfortable life, and Arista felt a twinge of envy. What's it like to be wealthy? Hmm. Oh, well, actually, it makes life easier, but perhaps not as rewarding. But you travel and can see the world. Your clothing is so fine, and you ride horses. I'll bet you've even ridden in a carriage, haven't you? Arista snorted. Yes, I've certainly ridden in a carriage. And been to balls in castles where musicians played and ladies dressed in embroidered gowns of velvet. Silk, actually. Silk? I've never heard of that, but never seen it. What's it like? I can show you. Arista went back into the storeroom and returned with the silver gown. At the sight of the dress, Arbor gasped, her eyes wide. I've never seen anything so beautiful. It's like... it's like... Arista waited, but Arbor never found her words. Finally, she said, May I touch it? Arista hesitated, looking first at Arbor, then at the dress. That's okay, Arbor said quickly with an understanding smile. She looked at her hands. I would ruin it. No, no, Arista told her. I wasn't thinking that at all. She looked down at the dress in her arms once more. What I was thinking was it was stupid for me to have brought this. I don't think I'll have a chance to wear it, and it's taking up so much space in my pack. I was wondering, would you like to have it? Arbor looked like she was going to faint. She shook her head adamantly, her eyes wide as if with terror. No, I... I couldn't. Why not? We're about the same size. I think you'd look beautiful in it. A self-conscious laugh escaped Arbor, and she covered her face with her hands, leaving flour on the tip of her nose. Oh, I'd be a sight, wouldn't I? Walking up and down, hinting dar in that. It's awfully nice of you, but I don't go to grand balls or ride in carriages. Maybe one day you will, and then you'll be happy you have it. In the meantime, if you ever have a bad day, you can put it on and perhaps it'll make you feel better. Arba laughed again, only now there were tears in her eyes. Take it, really. You'd be doing me a favour. I do need the space. She held out the dress. Arba reached toward it and gasped at the sight of her hands. She ran off and scrubbed them red before taking the dress in her quivering arms, cradling it as if it were a child. I promise to keep it safe for you. Come back and pick it up any time, all right? Of course, Arista replied, smiling. Oh, and one more thing. Arista handed her the corset. If you would be so kind, 
I never wish to see this thing again. Arbor carefully laid the dress down and put her arms around Arista, hugging her close as she whispered, Thank you. When Arista stepped out of the bakery into the sleepy village, her head throbbed, jolted by the brilliant sunlight. She shaded her eyes and spotted Armigil working in front of her shop, stoking logs under her massive cooker. Morning, Irma, Armigil called to her. You're looking a mite pale, lassie. It's your fault, Arista growled. Armigil chuckled. I try my best. I do indeed. Arista shuffled over. Can you direct me to the well? Up the road, four houses. You'll find it in front of the smithy. Thank you. Following the unmistakable clanging of a metal hammer, Arista found Royce and Hadrian under the sun canopy in the smithy's yard, watching another man beating a bit of molten metal on an anvil. He was muscular and completely bald-headed, with a bushy brown moustache. If he had been in the bakery the previous night, Arista did not remember. Beside him was a barrel of water, and not far away was the well, a full bucket resting on its edge. The bald man dropped the hot metal into his barrel, where it hissed. "'Your father taught me that,' the man said. "'He was a fine smith, the finest.' Hadrian nodded and recited, "'Choke the hammer after the stroke, grip it high when drilling die.' This brought laughter from the smith. "'I learned that one, too. Mr. Blackwater was always making up rhymes.' "'So this is where you were born?' Arista asked, dipping a community cup into the bucket of water and taking a seat on the bench beside the well. "'Not exactly,' Hadrian replied. I lived and worked here. I was actually born across the street there, at Gertie and Abelard's home. He pointed at a tiny wattle-and-daub hovel without even a chimney. Gertie was the midwife back then. My father kept pestering her so much that she took Mum to her house, and Da had to wait outside in the rain during a terrible thunderstorm, or so I was told. Hadrian motioned to the smith. This is Grimbold. He apprenticed with my father after I left. Does a good job, too. You inherited the smithy from Danbury? Royce asked. No, Lord Baldwin owns the smithy. Danbury rented from him just as I do. I pay ten pieces of silver a year, and in return for charcoal I do work for the manor at no cost. Royce nodded. What about personal belongings? What became of Danbury's things? Grimbald raised a suspicious eyebrow. He left me his tools, and if and you're after them, you'll have to fight me before the steward in the manor court. Hadrian raised his hands and shook his head, calming the burly man. No, no, I'm not here for anything. His tools are in good hands. Grimbald relaxed a bit. Ah, okay. Good, then. I do have something for you, though. When Danbury died, he made a list of all his things, and who they should go to. Almost everyone in the village got a little something. I didn't even know the man could write until I saw him scribbling it. There was a letter, and instructions to give it to his son, if he ever returned. 
I read it, but it didn't make much sense. I kept it, though. Grimbold set down his hammer and ducked inside the shop, then emerged a few minutes later with the letter. Hadrian took the folded parchment and, without opening it, stuffed the note into his shirt pocket and walked away. What's going on? Arista asked Royce. He didn't even read it. He's in one of his moods, Royce told her. He'll mope for a while, maybe get drunk. He'll be fine tomorrow. But why? Royce shrugged. Just the way he is lately. It's nothing, really. Arista watched Hadrian disappear around the side of the candlemaker's shop. Picking up the hem of her dress, she chased after him. When she rounded the corner, she found him seated on a fence rail, his head in his hands. He glanced up. Is that annoyance or embarrassment on his face? Biting her lip, she hesitated, then walked over and sat beside him. Are you all right? she asked. He nodded in reply but said nothing. They sat in silence for a while. I used to hate this village, he offered at length, his tone distant and his eyes searching the side of the shop. It was always so small. He lowered his head again. She waited. Does he expect me to say something now? From down the street she heard the rhythmic hammering of metal as Grimbald resumed his work, the blows marking the passage of time. She pretended to straighten her skirt, wondering if it would be better if she left. The last time I saw my father, we had a terrible fight, Adrian said, without looking up. What about? Arista gently asked. I wanted to join Lord Baldwin's men-at-arms. I wanted to be a soldier. He wanted me to be a blacksmith. Hadrian scuffed the dirt with his boot. I wanted to see the world, have adventures, be a hero. He wanted to chain me to that anvil. And I couldn't understand that. I was good with a sword. He saw to that. He trained me every day. When I couldn't lift the sword any more, he just made me switch arms. Why'd he do that if he wanted me to be a smith? A vision swept back to her of two faces in Avampartha. The heir she had not recognized, but Hadrian's face had been unmistakable as the guardian. Royce didn't tell him. Should I? When I told him my plans to leave, he was furious. He said he didn't train me to gain fame or money, that my skills were meant for greater things. But he wouldn't say what they were. The night I left, we had words, lots of them, and none good. I called him a fool. I might even have said he was a coward. I don't remember. I was fifteen. I ran away and did just what he didn't want me to do. I was going to show him. Prove the old man wrong. Only he wasn't. It's taken me this long to figure that out. Now it's too late. You never came back. Hadrian shook his head. By the time I returned from Calais, 
I'd heard he'd died. I didn't see any point in returning. He pulled the letter out. Now there's this. He shook the parchment in his fingers. Don't you want to know what it says? I'm afraid to find out. He continued to stare at the letter as if it were a living thing. She placed her hand on his arm and gave a soft squeeze. She didn't know what else to do. She felt useless. Women were supposed to be comforting, consoling, nurturing, but she didn't know how. She felt awful for him, and her inability to do anything to help just made her feel worse. Hadrian stood up. With a deep breath, he opened the letter and began reading. Arista waited. He lowered his hand slowly, holding the letter at his side. What does it say? Hadrian held out the letter, letting it slip from his fingers. Before she could take it, the parchment drifted to the ground at her feet. As she bent to pick it up, Hadrian walked away. Arista rejoined Royce at the well. What was in the letter? he asked. She held it out to Royce, who read it. What was his reaction? Not good. He walked off. I think he wants to be alone. You never told him, did you? Royce continued to study the letter. I can't believe you never told him. I mean, I know Ezra Hardin told us not to, but I guess I just expected that you would anyway. I don't trust that wizard. I don't want me or Hadrian wrapped up in his little schemes. I couldn't care less who the Guardian is, or the heir for that matter. Maybe it was a mistake coming here. You came here on purpose? You mean this had nothing to do with— You came here for proof, didn't you? I wanted something to confirm Ezra Hardin's claim. I really didn't expect to find anything. He just told me his father trained him night and day in sword-fighting and said his skills were for greater things. Sounds like proof to me. You know, you would have discovered that if you had just talked to him. He deserves the truth, and when he gets back, one of us needs to tell him. Royce nodded, carefully refolding the letter. I'll talk to him. Chapter 9 The Guardian The oak clenched the earth with a massive hand of gnarled roots unchanged by time. In the village, houses were lost to fires, new homes were built to accommodate growing families, and barns were raised on once vacant land, but on this hill time stood still as the depths of Gutara prison. Standing beneath the tree's leaves, Hadrian felt young again. Here, at this tree, Haddie had first kissed Arbor, the shoemaker's daughter. He and Dunstan had been competing for years for her favor, but Haddie kissed her first. That had been what started the fight. Dunn had known better. He had seen Haddie spar with his father, and witnessed Haddie beat the old Reeve for whipping Willie 
a villain friend of theirs. The reeve had been too embarrassed to report to the bailiff that a fourteen-year-old boy had bested him. Paddy's skill was no secret to Dunstan, but rage had overcome reason. When Dunstan found out about Arbor, he had charged at Haddy, who instinctually sidestepped and threw him to the ground. Misfortune landed Dunn's head on a field stone. He had lain unconscious, with blood running from his nose and ears. Horrified, Haddy had carried him back to the village, convinced he had just killed his best friend. Dunn recovered, but Haddy never would. He never spoke to Arbor again. Three days later, the boy known as Haddy had left for good. Hadrian slumped to the ground and sat in the shade of the tree with his back to the old oak's trunk. When he had been a boy, this had been where he had always come to think. From here he could see the whole village below and the hills beyond, hills that had called to him and a horizon that had whispered of adventure and glory. Royce and Arista would be wondering where he had gone. Hadrian was not usually self-indulgent on the job. The job. He unconsciously shook his head. This was Royce's job, not his. He had kept his part of the bargain, and all that remained was for Arista to reach the rendezvous. When she did... That would end the assignment and his career in the world of intrigue. Strange how the end brought him back to the beginning. Coming full circle could be a sign for him to make a fresh start. Near the centre of the village he could see the smithy, which was easy to pick out by its rising black smoke. He had worked those bellows for hours each day. Hadrian remembered the sound of the anvil and the ache in his arms. That had been a time when all he had known of the world had stopped at this tree, and Hadrian couldn't help wondering how different his life might have been if he had stayed. One thing was certain. He would have more calluses and less blood on his hands. Would I have married Arbor? Had children of my own? A stout, strong son who would complain about working the bellows and come to this tree to kiss his first girl? Could I have found contentment making plowshares and watching Da smile as he taught his grandson fencing, like a commoner's version of the Pickerings? If I'd stayed, at this very moment, would I be sitting here thinking of my happy family below? Would Da have died in peace? He sighed heavily. Regret was a curse without a cure, except to forget. He closed his eyes. He did not want to think. He fell asleep to the sound of songbirds and woke to the thunder of horses' hooves. As night approached, Royce became worried. Once more, they enjoyed the hospitality of the bakers, Arbor was making a dinner of pottage while Dunstan ran a delivery of loaves to the manor. Arista offered assistance but appeared more of a hindrance than a help. Arbor did not seem to mind. The two were inside, chatting and laughing, while Roy stood outside, watching the road with an uneasy feeling. 
the village felt different to him. The evening had an edge, a tension in the air. Somewhere in the distance a dog barked. He felt a nervous energy in the trees and an apprehension rising from the earth and rock. Before Avampartha he had considered it intuition, but now he wondered. Elves drew power from nature. They understood the river's voice and the chatter of the leaves. Did that pass to me? He stood motionless, his eyes panning the road, the shops, the houses, and the dark places between. He was hoping to spot Hadrian returning, but felt something else. The cabbage goes in last, Arbo was telling Arista, her voice muffled by walls, and cut it up into smaller pieces than that. Here, let me show you. Sorry, Arista said. I don't have a lot of experience in a kitchen. It must be wonderful to have servants. Dunn could never make that much money here. There aren't enough people to buy his bread. Royce focused on the street. The sun had set and the twilight haze had begun to mask the village. He was looking at the candlemaker's shop when he spotted movement by the livery. When he looked closer, nothing was there. It could have been Hobby coming to check the animals, but the fact that the image had vanished so quickly made him think otherwise. Royce slipped into the shadows behind Armigal's brew shop and crept toward the livery. He entered from the rear, climbing to the loft. A fresh pile of hay cushioned his movements and muted his approach. In the dark he could clearly see the back of a figure standing by the doorway, peering at the street. Move and die, Royce whispered softly in his ear. The man froze. Duster, he asked. Royce turned the man to face him. Etcher, what are you doing here? The meeting has been set. I've been sent to fetch you. That was fast. We got word back this morning, and I rode hard to get here. The meeting is set for tonight at the ruins of Amberton Lee. We need to get going if we're going to make it in time. We can't leave right now. Hadrian is missing. We can't wait. God's people are suspicious. They think it could be an imperial trap. They'll back off if we don't stick to the plan. We need to leave now, or the opportunity will pass. Royce silently cursed to himself. It was his own fault for not having chased after Hadrian that afternoon. He almost had. Now there was no telling where he was. Etcher was right. The mission had to come first. He would leave word for Hadrian with the bakers and get the princess to her meeting with Gaunt. The moist, steamy smell of the boiling cabbage and wood smoke filled the bakery. The candles Arista lit flickered with the opening of the door. Arbor was stirring the pot while Arista set the table. Both looked up, startled. Hadrian hasn't shown. No, Arista replied. We need to get going, Royce told her. Now? But what about Hadrian? You'll have to catch up. Get your things. Arista hesitated only a moment, and then crossed to the flower storage to gather her bags. Can't you even stay for dinner? Arbor asked. It's almost ready. 
We need to get moving. We have a... Royce stopped as he heard the noisy approach of a horse and cart being driven fast down the road. It stopped just out front, so close they could hear the driver pull the handbrake. Dunstan came through the door a moment later. Adrian's been arrested, he announced hurriedly, and then pointed at Royce and Arista. The steward ordered your arrests as well. Their arrests, Arbor said, shocked. But why? The bailiff was wrong. It looks like Lurit has more influence than he thought, Royce muttered. Let's get the horses. His lordship's soldiers are just behind me as I started down the hill. They'll be here in minutes, Dunstan said. My horse is down the river, Etcher said. It can carry two. Royce was thinking quickly, calculating risks and outcomes. You take it to the rendezvous on your horse, then, he told Etcher. I'll see what I can do to help Adrian. With any luck, we'll catch up to you. If we don't, it shouldn't matter. He looked at Arista. From what I've heard of your contact, he will see to your safety, even if he ultimately declines your offer. Don't worry about me. The princess rushed toward the door with her bags. I'll be fine. Just make sure that Hadrian is okay. Taking a bag and the princess's hand, Etcher pulled her out into the night and dodged into the shadows of the buildings. Royce followed them out, caught hold of the eaves, and climbed up on the baker's shake roof, where he crouched in the shadow of the chimney, listening. He watched about half a dozen men with torches moving fast down the main street from the direction of the manor. They stopped first at the livery, and then went to the baker's. Where are the strangers that rode in with the old blacksmith's son? A loud voice he had not heard before demanded. They left hours ago, Dunstan replied. Royce heard a grunt and a crash, followed by a scream from Arbor and the sound of furniture falling over. Their horses are still in the livery. We saw you race from the manor to warn them. Now where are they? Leave him alone, Arbor shouted. They ran out when they heard you coming. We don't know where. They didn't tell us anything. If you're lying, you'll be arrested for treason and hanged. Do you understand? There was a brief silence. Fan out in pairs. You two cover the bridge. You and you search the fields. And you two start going door to door. Until further notice, all citizens of Hintendar are to remain in their homes. Arrest anyone outside. Now move! The men, marked conveniently by their flaming torches, scattered out of the bakery in all directions, leaving Royce to watch them scurrying about. He glanced across the dark fields. Etcher would have no trouble avoiding the foot search. Once they reached his horse, they would be gone. Arista was safely on her way, his job done. All he had to worry about now was Hadrian. The manor house's jail was less a dungeon and more an old well. Forced to descend by a rope, Hadrian was left trapped at the bottom. He waited in silence, looking up at the stars. The rising moon cast a shaft of pale light that descended the wall, marking the slow passage of the night. Cold spring water seeped in through the walls, leaving them damp and creating a shallow pool at the base. With his feet tiring, Hadrian eventually sat in the cold puddle.
jagged rocks hidden under the water added to his misery. In time he was forced to stand again to fight the cold. The moonlight was more than halfway down the wall when Hadrian heard voices and movement from above. Dark silhouettes appeared, and the iron grate scraped as it slid clear. A rope lowered, and Hadrian thought they had reconsidered. He stood up to take hold of it, but stopped when he saw another figure coming down. "'In you go!' someone at the top ordered and laughed, his voice echoing. "'We keep all our rats down there!' The figure was nimble and descended quickly. "'Royce!' Hadrian asked. They... they captured you? The rope was pulled up and the grate slid back into place. More or less, he replied, glancing around. Not much on accommodations, are they? I can't believe they caught you. It wasn't as easy as you'd think. They aren't very bright. Royce reached out and let his fingers run over the glistening walls. Was this just a well that went dry? Isendar doesn't have much need for a big prison, Hadrian shook his head. So you let them capture you. Ingenious, don't you think? Oh, brilliant. I figured it was the easiest way to find you. Royce shuffled his feet in the water, grimacing. So what's your excuse? Did they come for you with an army of twenty heavily armoured men? They caught me sleeping. Royce shot him a sceptical look. Let's just say I was put in a position where I'd have to kill people and I chose not to. This is my home, remember? I don't want to be known as a killer here. So it is good I didn't slit throats. I'm smarter than I thought. Oh, yes, I can see the genius in your plan. Hadrian looked up. How do you suggest we get out now? Eventually, Lorit will haul us out and hand us over to a press gang, just as he threatened. We'll serve in the Imperial Army for a few days, learn what we can, and then slip away. We can report what we discover to Ulrich for an added bonus. What about Arista? She's safely on her way to the rendezvous with Gaunt. Etcher arrived just before dark, and they sent her with him. She'll likely stay with Gaunt, sending dispatches back to Melengar via messengers until Ulrich's forces join with the Nationalists. And what if Gaunt turns her down? It's in Gaunt's best interest to see to her safety. It's not like he's going to turn her over to the Empire. She'll probably end up returning to Melengar by sea. Actually, it's better we aren't with her. If Merrick is out there, I'm sure he'll be more interested in me than her— so that job is complete. I guess there's that to be thankful for, at least. Royce chuckled. What? I'm just thinking about Merrick. He'll have no idea where I am now. My disappearance will drive him crazy. Hadrian sat down. Isn't that water cold? Royce asked, watching him and making an unpleasant face. He nodded, and the bottom has sharp rocks coated in a disgusting slime. Royce looked up at the opening once more, then gritted his teeth and slowly eased himself down across from Hadrian. 
Oh, yeah, real comfortable. They sat in silence for a few minutes, listening to the breeze flutter across the grating. It made a humming noise when it blew just right. Occasionally, a droplet of water would drip into the pool with a surprisingly loud plop, magnified by the chamber. You realize that with this job over, I'm officially retired. I assumed as much. Royce fished beneath him, withdrew a rock and tossed it aside. I was thinking of returning here. Maybe Grimbald could use a hand, or Armagill. She's getting older now, and probably would welcome a partner. Those barrels can be heavy, and brewing beer has its perks. Moonlight revealed Royce's face. He looked tense. I know you're not happy with this, but I really need a change. I'm not saying I'll stay here, I probably won't, but it's a start. I consider it practice for a peaceful life. And that's what you want. A peaceful life. No more dreams of glory. That's all they were, Royce. Just dreams. It's time I faced that and got on with my life. Royce sighed. I've something to tell you. I should have told you a long time ago, but I guess I was afraid you'd do something foolish. He paused. No, that's not true either. It's just taken me a while to see that you have the right to know. Know what? Royce looked around him. I never thought I'd be telling you in a place like this, but I must admit it could be a benefit that they took your weapons. He pulled out Danbury's letter. How do you have that? Hadrian asked. From Arista. Why didn't they take it when they grabbed you? Are you kidding? I practically had to remind them to take my dagger. They don't seem too accustomed to thieves, much less ones that turn themselves in. Royce handed the note to Hadrian. What did you think of when you read this? That my father died filled with pain and regret. He believed the words of a selfish fifteen-year-old, that he was a coward and wasted his life. It's bad enough I left him, but I had to paint that stain on him before leaving. Hadrian, I don't think this letter had anything to do with your leaving. I think it's due to your heritage. I think your father was trying to tell you something about your past. How would you know? You never met my father. You're not making any sense. Royce sighed. Last year, in Avampartha, Ezra Hardin was using a spell to find the heir. I remember you told me that before. But I didn't tell you everything. The spell didn't find the heir exactly, but rather the magical amulets worn by him and his guardian. Ezra Hardin made the necklaces so he could locate the wearers and prevent other wizards from finding them. As I told you, I didn't recognize the face of the heir. He was some guy with blonde hair and blue eyes I'd never seen before. And this is important. Why? I didn't know, at least not for certain, not really— 
I always thought Ezra was using us. That's mainly why I never told you. I wanted to be sure it was true, and that's why I asked you to come, and why I led us here. Royce paused a moment, then asked, Where did you get that necklace? The amulet you wear under your shirt. I told you, my father... Adrian paused, staring at Royce, his hand unconsciously rising to his neck to feel the necklace. I didn't recognize the heir, but I did recognize the guardian. Your father had a secret, Hadrian. A big secret. Hadrian continued to stare at Royce. His mind flashed back to his youth, to his grey-haired father spending day after day toiling humbly on the anvil and forge, making harrows and ploughshares. He recalled Danbury growling at him to clean the shop. No, Hadrian said, my father was a blacksmith. How many blacksmiths teach their sons ancient Teshlaw combat skills, most of which have been lost for centuries? Where did you get that big spadone sword you've carried on your back since I first met you? Was that your father's too? Hadrian slowly nodded and felt a chill raise the hairs on his arms. He had never told Royce about that. He had never told anyone. He had taken the sword the night he had left. He had needed his own blade. Da often had several weapons in his shop, but taking them would have cost his father money. Instead, he had taken the only weapon he felt his father would not miss. Da had kept the spadone hidden in a small compartment under the shop's fifth floorboard. Danbury had taken it out only once, a long time ago, when Hadrian's mother had still been alive. At the time, Hadrian was very young, and now the memory was hard to recall. His mother was asleep, and Hadrian should have been as well, but something had woken him. Crawling out of bed, he had found his father in the shop. Da had been drinking Armigal's ale and was sitting on the floor in the glow of the forge. In his hands he cradled the huge two-handed sword, talking to it as if it were a person. He was crying. In fifteen years of living with the man, Hadrian had seen him cry only that one time. I want you to do me a favor. Read this again, only this time pretend you hadn't run away. Read it as if you and your father were on great terms, and he was proud of you. Hadrian held the parchment up to the moonlight and read it again. Haddy, I hope this letter will find you. It's important that you know there is a reason why you should never use your training for money or fame. I should have told you the truth, but my pain was too great. I can admit to you now I'm ashamed of my life, ashamed of what I failed to do. I suppose you were right. I'm a coward. I let everyone down. I hope you can forgive me, but I can never forgive myself. Love, Da. Before you were born... The year 92 lost what was precious 
and that what was new. The blink of an eye, the beat of a heart, out went the candle, and guilt was my part. A king and his knight went hunting a boar. A rat and his friends were hunting for lore. Together they fought, till one was alive. The knight sadly wept. No king had survived. The answers to riddles, to secrets and more, are found in the middle of legends and lore. Seek out the answer, learn, if you can, the face of regret, the life of a man. You realize a spadone is a knight's weapon? Royce asked. Hadrian nodded. And yours is a very old sword, isn't it? Hadrian nodded again. I would venture to guess it's about nine hundred years old. I think you're the descendant of Jerish, the guardian of the air, Royce told him, although maybe not literally. The way I heard it, the heir has a direct bloodline, but the guardian just needed to pass down his skills. The next in line didn't need to be his son, although I guess it's possible. Hadrian stared at Royce. He didn't know how to feel about this. Part of him was excited, thrilled, vindicated, and part of him was certain Royce was insane. And you kept this from me? Hadrian asked, astonished. I didn't want to tell you until I knew for sure. I thought Ezra Hardin might be playing with us. Don't you think I would have thought of that too? What do you take me for? Have you worked with me for twelve years because you think I'm stupid? How conceited can you be? You can't trust me to make my own decisions, so you make them for me? I'm telling you now, aren't I? Took you a whole damn year, Royce, Hadrian shouted at him. Didn't you think I'd find this important? When I told you I was miserable because I felt my life lacked purpose, that I wanted a cause worth fighting for, you didn't think that protecting the air qualified? Hadrian shook his head in disbelief. You stuck-up, manipulative, lying... I never lied to you. No, you just concealed the truth, which to me is a lie, but in your twisted little mind it's a virtue. I knew you were going to take it this way, Roy said in a superior tone. How else would you expect me to take it? Gee, pal, thanks for thinking so little of me that you couldn't tell me the truth about my own life. That's not the reason I didn't tell you, Roy snapped. You just said it was. I know I did. So you're lying to me again? Call me a liar one more time. And what? What? You're going to fight me? It's dark in here. But there's no room for you to hide. You're only a threat until I get my hands on you. I just need to grab your spindly little neck. For all your quickness, once I get a grip on you, it's all over. Without warning, cold water poured down on them. Looking up, Hadrian saw silhouetted figures. You boys, be quiet down there, shouted a voice. His Excellency wants a word with you. One head disappeared from view, and another replaced it at the opening's edge. I'm Lorit, the Imperial Envoy of Her Eminence, the Grand Imperial Empress Modina Navronian. 
Because of your involvement in escorting a member of the royal court of Melengar to Her Eminence's enemy, the Nationalists, the two of you are hereby charged with espionage, and hitherto will be put to death by hanging in three days' time. Should, however, you wish to attempt to rescind that sentence to life in prison, I'd be willing to do so, under the condition that you reveal to me the whereabouts of Princess Arista Esendon of Melengar. Neither said a word. Tell me where she is, or you'll be hanged as soon as the village carpenter can build a proper gallows. Again they were silent. Very well. Perhaps a day or two of rotting in there will change your mind. He turned away and spoke to the jailer. No food or water. It might help to loosen their tongues. Besides, there's really no sense in wasting it. They waited in silence as the figures above moved away. How does he know? Hadrian whispered. A ghastly look stole over Royce's face. What is it? Etcher. He's the mole in the diamond. Royce kicked the wall, causing a splash. How could I have been so blind? He was the one who lit the lamp on the river, alerting the wherry behind us. The only reason he never thought to check the mill's sails was because it didn't matter to him. I bet he never even told Price where we were, so there would be no way for the diamond to find us. There must be an ambush waiting at Amberton Lee, or somewhere along the way. But why take her there? Why not just turn Arista over to lure it? I'd wager this is Merrick's game. He doesn't want some imperial clown like Lurid getting the prize. She's a commodity which can be sold to the Empire or ransomed to Melengar for a profit. If Lurid grabs her, he gets nothing. So why tell Lurid about us at all? Insurance. With the manor officials after us, we'd be pressed for time and wouldn't question Etcher's story. I'm sure it was to hasten our departure and have us unprepared, but it turned out even better— because you were captured, and I decided to stay behind to help you. And you sent Arista off alone with Etcher. She's on her way to Merrick, a guy, or both. Maybe they'll keep her and demand Alric surrender Medford. He won't, of course. Pickering won't let him. I can't believe Alric sent her in the first place. What an idiot! Why didn't he pick a representative out of the royal court? Why did he have to send her? He didn't send her, Royce said. I doubt anyone in Medford has a clue where she is. She did this on her own. What? She arrived at the Rosenthorn unescorted. Have you ever seen her go anywhere without a bodyguard? So why did you— Because I needed an excuse to bring you here, to find out if what Ezra Hardin showed me was true. So this is my fault, Hadrian asked. No, it's everyone's fault. You for pushing so hard to retire, me for not telling you the truth, Arista for being reckless, even your father for never having told you who you really are. They sat in silence a moment. So what do we do now? Hadrian said at last. Your original plan isn't going to work so well anymore. Why do I always have to come up with the plans, Mr. I'm-not-so-stupid. Because, 
When it comes to deciding how I should live my own life, I should be the one to choose. But when getting out of a prison, even as pathetic as it is, that's more your area of expertise. Royce sighed and began to look around at the walls. By the way, Adrian began, what was the real reason you didn't tell me? Huh? A bit ago you said, oh. Royce continued to study the walls. He seemed a little too preoccupied by them. Just as Hadrian was sure he wouldn't answer, Roy said, I didn't want you to leave. Hadrian almost laughed at the comment, thinking it was a joke, and then nearly bit his tongue. Thinking of Royce as anything but callous was difficult. Then he realized Royce never had a family and precious few friends. He'd grown up an orphan on the streets of Ratabor, stealing his food and clothes, and likely receiving his share of beatings for it. He had probably joined the diamond as much from a desire to belong as a means to profit. After only a few short years, they had betrayed him. Adrian realized at that moment that Royce didn't see him as just his partner, but his family. Along with Gwen and perhaps Arcadius, Hadrian was the only one he had. You ready? Royce asked. For what? Turn around. Let's go back to back and link arms. You're kidding. We aren't going to do that again, are we? Hadrian said miserably. I've been sitting in cold water for hours. I'll cramp. You know another way to get up there? Royce asked. And Hadrian shook his head. Royce looked up. It isn't even as high as the last time, and it's narrower, so it'll be easier. Stand up and stretch a second. You'll be fine. What if the guard is up there with a stick to poke us with? Do you want to get out of here or not? Hadrian took a deep breath. I'm still mad at you, he said, turning and linking arms back to back with Royce. Yeah, well, I'm not too happy with me either right now. They began pushing against each other as they walked up the walls of the pit. Immediately, Hadrian's legs began to protest the effort, but the strain on his legs was taken up some by the tight linking of their arms and the stiff leverage it provided. Push harder against me, Royce told him. I don't want to crush you. I'm fine, just lean back more. Initially, the movement was clumsy and the exertion immense, but soon they fell into a rhythm. Step, Royce whispered. The pressure against each other was sufficient to keep them pinned. Step. They slid another foot up, scraping over the stony sides. The water running down the walls gave birth to a slippery slime, and Hadrian carefully placed his feet on the drier bricks and used the cracks for traction. Royce was infinitely better at this sort of thing, and likely impatient with their progress. Hadrian was far less comfortable and often pushed too hard. His legs were longer and stronger, and he had to remember to relax. They finally rose above the level of the slime to where the rock was dry, and they moved with more confidence. They were now high enough that a fall would break bones— he started to perspire with the effort, and his skin was slicked with sweat. A droplet 
cascaded down his face and hung dangling on the tip of his nose. Above, he could see the grate growing larger, but it was still a maddening distance away. What if we can't make it? How can we get back down besides falling? Hadrian had to push the thought out of his mind and concentrate. Nothing good would come from anticipating failure. Instead, he forced himself to think of Arista riding to her death or capture. They had to make it up, and quickly, before his legs lost all their strength. Already they shook from fatigue, buckling under the strain. As they neared the top, Royce stopped calling steps. Hadrian kept his eyes on the wall where he placed his feet, but felt Royce tilting his head back, peering up. Stop, Royce whispered. Panting for air, they steadied themselves, unlinked arms, and grabbed the grating. Letting their tortured legs fall loose, they hung for a minute. The release of the strain was wonderful, and Hadrian closed his eyes with pleasure as he gently swayed. Good news and bad news, Royce said. No guards, but it's locked. You can do something about that, right? Just give me a second. He could feel Royce shifting around behind him. Got it. There was another brief pause, and Hadrian's fingers were starting to hurt. Okay, if we slide it to your left. Ready? Feet up. The grate was lighter than Hadrian expected, and it easily slid clear. They hauled themselves out, rolling on the damp grass of the manor's lawn, and lay for a second catching their breath. They were alone in a darkened corner of the manor's courtyard. Weapons? Hadrian asked. I'll check the house. You see about getting horses. Don't kill anyone, Hadrian mentioned. I'll try not to. But if I see Lurid, oh yeah, kill him. Hadrian worked his way carefully toward the courtyard stable. The horses started at his approach, snorting and bumping loudly into the stall dividers. He grabbed the first saddle and bridle he found and discovered they were familiar. Arista's bay mare, his horse and mouse were corralled with the rest. Easy, girl. Hadrian whispered softly as he threw the blankets on the two of them. He buckled the last bridle around Mouse's neck when Royce came in carrying a bundle of swords. Your weapons, Sir Knight. Lure it, Hadrian asked, strapping his swords on. Royce made a disappointed sound. Didn't see him. Didn't see hardly anyone. These country folk go to bed early. We're a simple lot. Mouse? Royce muttered. I just can't seem to get rid of this horse, can I? Arista discovered riding on the back of a horse was significantly less comfortable than riding in a saddle. Etcher added to her misery by keeping the horse at a trot. The hammering to Arista's body caused her head to ache. She asked for him to slow down but was ignored. Before long, the animal slowed to a walk on its own. It frothed, and Arista could feel its sweat soaking her gown. Etcher kicked the beast until it started again, 
When the horse once more returned to a walk, Etcher resorted to whipping it with the ends of the reins. He missed and struck Arista hard across the thigh. She yelped, but that was also ignored. Eventually Etcher gave up and let the horse rest. She asked where they were going and why they needed to rush. Still he said nothing. He never even turned his head. After a mile or two, he drove the animal into a trot once more. He acted as if she was not there. With each jarring clap on the horse's back, Arista became increasingly aware of her vulnerability. She was alone with a strange man somewhere in the backwoods of Renyard, where any authority of law would seize her rather than him, regardless of what he did. All she knew about him, the only thing she could be certain of, was that he was morally dubious. While it was one thing to trust herself to Royce and Hadrian, it was quite another to leap onto the back of a horse with a stranger who took her off into the wilds. If she had thought about it, if there had been time to think, she might have declined to go, but now it was too late. She rode, trusting the mercy of a dangerous man in a hostile land. His silence did nothing to alleviate her fear. When it came to silence, Etcher put Royce to shame. He said nothing at all. The profession of thievery wasn't likely to attract gregarious types, but Etcher seemed an extreme case. He even refused to look at her. This was perhaps better than some alternatives. A man such as Etcher was likely acquainted only with sun-baked easy women in dirty dresses. How appealing it must be to have a young noblewoman clutching to him alone in the wilderness, and a royal princess at that. If he attacks me, what can I do? A good, high-pitched scream would draw a dozen armed guards in the Essendon castle, but since leaving Hintendar, she hadn't seen a house or a light. Even if someone heard her, she would probably spend her life in an imperial prison once her identity was discovered. He could do anything he wanted with her. When he was done, he could either kill her or hand her over to imperial authorities, who would, no doubt, pay richly. No one would care if he delivered her bruised and bloodied. She regretted her fast escape without taking the time to think. She had nothing to defend herself with. Her small side pouch held only her father's hairbrush and a bit of coin. Her dagger was somewhere in the bundle of her bedding. How long will it take me to find it in the dark? She sighed. Why must I always focus on the negative? The man has done nothing at all. So, he's quiet. So what? He's risking his own life smuggling me to this meeting. He's nervous. Watchful. Perhaps he's frightened, too. Is it so odd he's not making small talk? I'm just scared, that's all. Everything looks bad when you're scared. Isn't it possible he's just shy around women, cautious around noble ladies, concerned anything he says or does could be misconstrued and lead to dangerous accusations? Obviously he has good cause to be concerned. I've already practically convicted him of a host of crimes he hasn't committed. Royce and Hadrian are honourable thieves, 
Why not Etcher as well? The trail disappeared entirely, and they rode across unmarked fields of windswept grass. They seemed to be heading toward a vague and distant hill. She spotted some structures silhouetted against the pallid sky. They entered yet another forest, this time through a narrow opening in the dense foliage, where Etcher was content to let the horse walk. Away from the wind, it was quiet. Fireflies blinked around them, and Arista listened to the clacking steps of their mount. We're on a road? Although it was too dark to see anything clearly, Arista recognized the sound of hooves on cobblestone. Where are we? When, at last, they cleared the trees, she could see the slope of a bald hill where the remains of buildings sat. Giant stones spilled and scattered into the embrace of grass, forming dark, heaped ruins of arched doorways and pylons of rock. Like grave markers, they thrust skyward at neglected angles, the lingering cadavers and bleached bones of forgotten memories. What is this place? Arista asked. She heard a horse whinny and spotted the glow of a fire up the slope. Without a word, Etcher kicked the horse once more into a trot. Arista took solace in knowing the end of her ordeal was at hand. Near the top, two men sat huddled amidst the ruins. A campfire flickered, sheltered from the wind by a corner section of weathered stone and rubble. One man was hooded, the other hatless, and immediately Arista thought of Royce and Hadrian. Did they somehow arrive ahead of us? As they drew closer, Arista realized she was wrong. These men were younger and both as large as, if not larger, than Hadrian. They stood at the horse's approach, and Arista saw dark shirts, leather tunics, and broadswords hanging from thick belts. Running late, the hooded one said. Thought you weren't going to make it. Are you nationalists? she asked. The men hesitated. Of course, the other replied. They approached, and the hooded one helped her down from the horse. His hands were large and powerful. He showed no strain taking her weight. He had two days of beard and smelled of sour milk. Is one of you Deegan Gaunt? No, the hooded one replied. He sent us ahead to see if you were who you said you were. Are you Princess Arista Essendon of Melangar? She looked from one face to the next, all harsh expressions. Even Etcher glared at her. Well, are you or aren't you? He pressed, moving closer. Of course she is, Etcher blurted out. I've a long ride back, so I want my payment, and don't try to cheat me. Payment? Arista asked. Etcher once more ignored her. I don't think we can pay you for delivery until we know it's her. And we certainly aren't taking your word for it. She could be a whore from the swill yards of Colnora that you washed and dressed up. And did a piss-poor job of it at that. She's pretending to be a commoner, and she's dirty on account of the ride here. The hooded man advanced even closer to study her. 
She backed up instinctively, but not fast enough, as he grabbed her roughly at the chin and twisted her face from side to side. Infuriated, she kicked at him and managed to strike his shin. The man grunted, and anger flashed in his eyes. "'You bloody little bitch!' He struck her hard across the face with the flat of his hand. The explosion of pain overwhelmed her. She found herself on her hands and knees, gripping a spinning world with fists full of grass. Her face ached and her eyes watered. The men laughed. The humiliation was too much. "'How dare you strike me!' she screamed. "'See?' Etcher said, pointing at her. The hooded man nodded. "'All right. We'll pay you. Danny, give him twenty gold.' Twenty? The Sentinel agreed to fifty. Etcher protested. "'Keep your mouth shut or it'll be ten. Arista panted on the ground, her breath coming in short, stifled gasps. She was scared and rapidly losing herself to panic. She needed to calm down, to think. Through bleary eyes, she looked at Etcher and his horse. There was no chance of grabbing the animal and riding away. Etcher's feet were in the stirrups, and her weight could never pull him off. "'Guy won't appreciate you pocketing thirty of the gold he sent with you.' They laughed. "'Who do you think he'll believe, you or us?' Arista considered the fire. She could try to run to it and grab a stick. She concluded she would never make the distance. Even if she did, a stick would be useless against swords. They would only laugh at her. Take the twenty and keep your damn mouth shut, or you can ride away with nothing. She thought about running. It's downhill, and in the dark I could... No, I'm not fast enough, and the hill has no cover. Arista would have to make it all the way to the forest before having the slightest hope of getting away, and Etcher could ride after her and drag her back. Afterward they would beat and tie her, and then all hope would be lost. "'Don't even think about it, you little git,' the hooded one was saying to Etcher. Etcher spat in anger. "'Give me the twenty. The hooded man tossed a pouch that jingled, and Etcher caught it with a bitter look. Arista started to cry. Time was running out. She was helpless, and there was nothing at all she could do. For all her royal rank, she couldn't defend herself— nor was her education in the art of magic any help. All she could do was make them sneeze, and that wasn't going to save her this time. Where are Royce and Hadrian? Where is Hilfred? How could I be so stupid, so reckless? Isn't there anyone to save me? Not surprisingly, Etcher left without a word to her. So... This is what a princess looks like, the hooded one said. There's nothing special about you, is there? You look just as dirty as any wench I've had. I don't know, the other said. She's better than I've seen. Throw me the rope over there. I want to enjoy myself, not get scratched up. She felt her blood go cold. Her body trembled. 
Tears streamed down her cheeks as she watched the man set off to fetch the rope. No man had ever touched her before. No one dared to think in such terms. Doing so would mean death in Melangar. She had no midnight rendezvous, no casual affairs or castle romances. No boy had ever chanced so much as a kiss. But now... She watched as the man with the stubble beard came at her with a length of twine. If only I'd learned something more useful than tickling noses and boiling water, I could... Arista stopped crying. She didn't realize it, but she had stopped breathing as well. Can it work? There was nothing else to try. The man grinned expectantly as Arista closed her eyes and began to hum softly. Look at that. I think she likes the idea. She's serenading us. Maybe it's a noble ritual or something. Arista barely heard them. Once more, using the concentration method Ezra Hardin had taught her, she focused her mind. She listened to the breeze swaying the grass, the buzz of the fireflies, the whine of the mosquitoes, and the song of the crickets. She could feel the stars and sense the earth below. There was power there. She pulled it toward her, breathing it in, sucking it into her body, drawing it to her mind. How do you want her? Wrists behind the back works for me, but maybe we should ask her how she likes it. They laughed again. Never know what might tickle a royal's fancy. She was muttering, forming the words, drawing in the power, giving it form. She focused elements, giving them purpose and direction. She built the incantation as she had before, but now varied it. She pushed, altering the tone to shift the focus just enough. The crickets stopped their song, and the fireflies ceased their mating flashes. Even the gentle wind no longer blew, the only sound now was Arista's voice as it grew louder and louder. Arista felt herself pulled to her feet as the man spun her and maneuvered her arms behind her back. She ignored him, concentrating instead on moving her fingers as if she were playing an invisible musical instrument. Just as she felt the rough, scratchy rope touch her wrists, the men began to scream. The ruins of Amberton Lee stood splintered on the hilltop. Pillars, steps of marble, and slab walls lay fractured and fallen. Only three trees stood near the summit of the barren hill, all of them dead, leafless corpses, like the rest of the ruins still standing long after their time. There's a fire up there, but I only see Arista, Royce said. Bait? Probably. Give me a head start. Maybe I can free her before they know something is up. If nothing else, I should spring whatever trap is waiting, and then hopefully you can rush in and save the day. It bothered Royce how quiet the hill was. He could hear the distant snorting and hoofing of horses, and the crackle of the campfire, but nothing else. 
They had raced as fast as their horses could manage, and still Royce was afraid they would be too late. When riding, he had been certain she was dead. Now he was confused. There was no doubt that the woman near the fire was Arista. So, where is Etcher, and where are those they intended to meet? He crept carefully, slipping nimbly around a holly tree and up the slope. Half-buried stones and tilted rocks lay hidden beneath grass and thorns, making the passage a challenge. He circled once and found no sentries or movement. He climbed higher and happened upon two bodies. The men were dead, yet still warm to the touch. More than warm, they felt hot. There were no wounds, no blood. Royce proceeded up the last of the hill, advancing on the flickering fire. The princess sat, huddled near it, quietly staring into the flames. She was alone, and lacked even her travel bags. Arista, he whispered. She looked up lazily, drunkenly, as if her head weighed more than it should. The glow of the fire spilled across her face. Her eyes appeared red and swollen. A welt stood out on one of her cheeks. It's Royce. Are you all right? Yes, she replied. Her voice sounded distant and weak. Are you alone? She nodded. He stepped into the firelight and waited. Nothing happened. A light summer breeze gently brushed the hill's grass and breathed on the flames. Above them the stars shone, muted only by the white moon, which cast nighttime shadows. Arista sat with the stillness of a statue, except for the hairbrush she turned over and over in her hands. As tranquil as the scene appeared, Royce's senses were tense. This place made him uneasy. The odd marble blocks, toppled and broken, rose out of the ground like teeth. Once more he wondered if somehow he was tapping into his elven heritage, sensing more than could be seen, feeling a memory lost in time. He caught sight of movement down the slope and spotted Hadrian climbing toward them. He watched him pause for a moment near the bodies before continuing up. Where is Etcher? Royce asked the princess. He left. He was paid by Louis Guy to bring me here, to deliver me to some men. Yeah, we found that out a bit late. Sorry. The princess did not look well. She was too quiet. He expected anger or relief, but her stillness was eerie. Something had happened. Something bad. Besides the welt, there was no sign of abuse. Her clothes were intact. There were no rips or tears. He spotted several blades of dead grass and a brown leaf tangled in her hair. "'You all right?' Hadrian asked as he crested the hill. "'Are you hurt?' She shook her head and one of the bits of grass fell out. Hadrian crouched down next to her. "'Are you sure? What happened?' Arista didn't answer. She stared at the fire and started to rock. What happened to the men down the hill? 
Hadrian asked Royce. Wasn't me. They were dead when I found them. No wounds, either. But how— I killed them, Arista said. They both turned and stared at her. You killed two Serret knights, Royce asked. Were they Serret? Arista muttered. They have the broken crown rings, Royce explained. There's no wound on either body. How did you kill them? She started trembling, her breaths drawn in staggered bursts. Her hand went to her cheek, rubbing it lightly with her fingertips. They attacked me. I... I couldn't think of... I didn't know what to do. I was so scared. They were going to... And I was alone. I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice. I couldn't run. I couldn't fight. I couldn't hide. All I could do was make them sneeze and boil water. I didn't have a choice. It was all I could do. She began sobbing. Hadrian tentatively reached toward her. She dropped the brush and took his hands, squeezing them tightly. She pulled at him, and he wrapped his arms around her while she buried her face into the folds of his shirt. He gently stroked her hair. Hadrian looked up at Royce with a puzzled expression and whispered, She made them sneeze to death? No, Royce said, glancing back over his shoulder in the direction of the bodies. She boiled water. I didn't know. I didn't know if it would really work, she whispered between hitching breaths. I... I had to change it. Switch the focus. Fill in the blanks on my own. Invent a whole new spell. I was only guessing, but... But it felt right. The pieces fit. I felt them fit. I made them fit. Arista lifted her head, wiped her eyes, and looked down the slope of the hill. They screamed for a very long time. They were on the ground, writhing. I... I tried to stop it then, but I didn't know how, and they just kept... They kept on screaming, their faces turning so red. They rolled around on the ground and clawed the dirt. They cried and their screams... They... They got quieter and quieter, and then they didn't make any noise except... Except they were hissing. Hissing and I could see steam rising from their skin. Tears continued to slip down her cheeks as she looked up at them. Adrian wiped her face. I've never killed anyone before. It's okay, Adrian told her, stroking the back of her head and clearing away the remainder of the grass and leaves. You didn't want to do it. I know. It's just... just that I've never killed anyone before and you didn't hear them. It was horrible, like part of me was dying with them. I don't know how you do it, Royce. I just don't know. You do it by realizing that if the situation was reversed and they succeeded, they wouldn't be crying. Hadrian slipped a finger under her chin and tilted her face. He cleared the hair stuck to her cheeks and brushed his thumbs under her eyes. 
It's okay. It wasn't your fault. You did what you had to. I'm just sorry I wasn't here for you. Arista looked into his eyes for a moment, then nodded and took a clear, deep breath and wiped her nose. I'm really ruining your impression of me, aren't I? I get drunk, I wolf down food, I think nothing of sharing a room with you, and now I... You've got nothing to be ashamed of, Hadrian told her. I only wish more princesses were as worthy of their title as you. Royce made another survey of the hill and a thorough check of the serret, their horses and their gear. He found symbol-emblazoned tunics, confirming their knightly identities, and a good-sized bag of gold, but no documents of any sort. He pulled the saddle and bridle off one horse and let it go. "'There's only the two? Hadrian asked when he returned. "'I expected more.' He stirred the coals of the fire with a stick, brightening the hilltop. Arista looked better. She was eating a bit of cheese. Her face was washed, her hair brushed. She certainly was showing more resilience than he had expected. "'Gives you a whole new respect for Etcher, doesn't it?' Roy said. "'How do you mean? You never planned to bring all of us here. Just her. He's a lot brighter than I gave him credit for.' He wasn't too smart, Arista told them. The Serret cheated him out of thirty gold Luis Guy had promised. So, this was Guy's operation, not Merrick's, Hadrian said. Not sure, Royce responded. Seems too sophisticated for Guy. But Merrick's plans don't fail. He looked at the princess. Of course. Not even Merrick could have anticipated what she did. Hadrian stood up and threw away the stick, then looked at the princess. You gonna be okay? Can you ride? She nodded rapidly and followed it with a sniffle. I was pretty scared. Really missed you two. You've no idea, no idea how happy I am to see you again. She blew her nose. I get that from a lot of women. Hadrian replied, grinning, but I'll admit you're the first princess. She managed a slight smile. So, what do we do now? I haven't a clue where we are, and I'm pretty sure there isn't any meeting with Gaunt. There could be, Roy said, but Cosmos doesn't know where we are to tell us. I'm sure Etcher never carried any message about Hintendar back to Colnora. I should have told Price before we left, but I didn't want to take chances. Just stupid, really. I was being too cautious. Well, you know, I'm not going to argue, Hadrian told him. It was withholding information that got us into this. Arista looked at Royce questioningly. I told him, Royce said. No bruises, she asked. Not even a black eye. We never got that far, but maybe later when we have more time, Hadrian said. Turned out we had to hurry to save a woman who didn't need saving. I'm really glad you did. We should head to Ratabor, Royce said. We aren't too far. We can re-establish connection with the diamond there. Ratabor? Hadrian said suddenly. Yeah, 
You know, dirty, filthy rat hole, the capital of Renyard. We've seen where you grew up, so we might as well stop by my hometown as well. Hadrian started searching his clothing. Hunting a boar, he exclaimed, as he pulled out the note from his father. He rushed toward the firelight. A king and his knight went hunting a boar. A rat and his friends were hunting for law. A rat and a boar. Ratibor. The king and his knight are my father and the heir. Who must have travelled to Ratibor and were attacked by law hunters? Hadrian pointed over his shoulder in the direction of the dead man. Seret. What's the rest of it? Royce asked, intrigued. Together they fought till one was alive. The knight sadly wept. No king had survived. So they fought, but only your father survived the battle and the heir was killed. No king had survived, Hadrian said. An odd way to put that, isn't it? Why not say, the king died? Because it doesn't rhyme, Royce suggested. Good point. What comes next? Arista asked. The answers to riddles, to secrets and more, are found in the middle of legends and lore. There's more to the story, apparently, she said, and you can find the answers in ancient lore. Maybe you should ask Arcadius. I think not, Royce said. There's a street in Ratibor called Legends Avenue, and another named Lore Street. Do they intersect? Royce nodded. Just a bit south of Central Square. And what's there? A church, I think. Royce is right. We need to get to Ratibor, Hadrian announced. Arista stood up. Trust me, I'm more than ready to leave this place. When I... She stopped herself. When I used the art, I sensed something unpleasant. It feels... Haunted, Royce provided, and she nodded. What is this place? Royce asked Hadrian. I don't know. It's only a few miles from where you grew up. Adrian shrugged. Folks in Hintendar never talked about it much. There are a few ghost stories and rumours of goblins and ghouls that roam the woods, that kind of thing. Nothing about what it was. There was a children's rhyme, I remember, something like, Ancient stones upon the lee, dusts of memories gone we see, Once the centre, once the all, lost forever for the wall. What's that supposed to mean? Hadrian shrugged again. We used to sing it when playing Fall the Wall. It's a kid's game. I see, Royce lied. Whatever it used to be, I don't like it, Arista declared. Royce nodded. It almost makes me look forward to Ratibor. Almost. Chapter 10 Rewards The midday bell rang, and Amelia stopped, uncertain of which way to go. As a kitchen servant, she was unfamiliar with areas reserved for nobles. 
Only on rare occasions had she filled in for sick chambermaids by servicing bedrooms on the third floor. She'd worked as fast as possible to finish before the guests returned. Working with a noble present was a nightmare. They usually ignored her, but she was terrified of drawing attention. Invisibility was her best defense, and it was easy to remain unseen in the steam and bustle of the scullery. In the open corridors, anyone could notice her. This time she had no choice. Soldor had ordered her to his office. A soldier had found her on the way to breakfast and told her to report to his grace at the midday bell. She lost her appetite and spent the rest of the morning speculating on what horrible fate awaited her. The bell rang for the second time, and Amelia began to panic. She had visited the regent's office only once, and since she had been under armed escort at the time, the route had been the last thing on her mind. She remembered going upstairs, but didn't recall the number of flights. Oh, why didn't I leave earlier? She passed the great hall, filled with long tables set with familiar plates and shining goblets, which she had washed each day, old companions all. They were friends of a simpler time, when the world had made sense. Back then, she had woken each morning knowing every day would be as the one before. Now, each day was filled with fear of being discovered a failure. On the far side of the hall, men entered, dressed in embroidered clothing rich in colors. Nobles. They took seats, talking loudly, laughing, rocking back in chairs, and shouting for stewards to bring wine. She held the door for Bastion, who carried a tray of steaming food. He smiled gratefully at her as he rushed by, wiping his forehead with his sleeve. "'How do I get to the regent's office?' she whispered. Bastion didn't pause as he hurried past, but called back, "'Go around the reception hall, through the throne room.' "'Then what? Just ask the clerk.' She headed down the corridor and around the curved wall of the grand stair towards the palace entrance. Workers propped the front doors open, granting entry to three stories of daylight, which revealed the cloud of dust they were building. Sweat-oiled men hauled in timber, mortar, and stone. Teams cut wood and marble. Workers scrambled up and down willowy ladders, while pulleys hoisted buckets to scaffold-perched masons. All of them were working hard to reshape visitors' first impressions. She noticed with amazement that a wall had been moved and the ceiling was higher than the last time she had been here. The entrance was now more expansive and impressive than the darkened chamber it once had been. "'Excuse me,' a voice called. A thin man stood in the open doorway to the courtyard. He hesitated on the steps, dodging the passing workers. "'May I enter?' He coughed, waving a handkerchief before his face. Amelia looked at him and shrugged. "'Why not? Everyone else is.' He took several tentative steps, glancing up fearfully, his arms partially raised as if to ward off a blow. A thin, brittle-looking man wearing a powdered wig 
a brilliant yellow tunic and striped orange breeches, he stood taller than Amelia. "'Good day to you, my lady,' he greeted her with a bow as soon as he had cleared the activity. "'My name is Nimbus of Vernes, and I've come to offer my services.' "'Oh,' she said with a blank stare, "'I don't think—oh, please, I beg of you, hear me out. I am a courtier, formerly of King Frederick and Queen Josephine of Galianon. I am well versed in all courtly protocol, procedures, and correspondence. Prior to that, I was Chamberlain to Duke Ibsen of Vernis, so I am capable of managing—he paused. Are you all right? Amelia swallowed. I'm just in a hurry. I'm on my way to a very important meeting with the Regent. Please forgive me, then. It is just that, well, I have— He slouched his shoulders and sighed. I am embarrassed to say that I am a refugee of the Nationalists' invasion, and have nothing more than the clothes in my back and what little I have in this satchel. I have walked my way here, and I am a bit hungry. I was hoping I could find employment at the palace court. I am not suited for anything else, he said, dusting his shoulders clear of the snowy debris that drifted down from the scaffolds. I am sorry to hear that, but I am not— she stopped when she saw his lip tremble. "'How long has it been since you've eaten?' "'Quite some time, I'm afraid. "'I've actually lost track. "'Listen,' she told him, "'I can get you something to eat, "'but you have to wait until after my meeting.' "'She thought he would cry then "'as he bit his lip and nodded several times, saying, "'Thank you ever so much, my lady. "'Wait here.' I'll be back soon, I hope. She headed off, dodging the lathered men in leather aprons, and slipped past three others in robes, holding measuring sticks like staffs and arguing over lines on huge parchments spread across a work table. The throne room, which also showed signs of renovation, was nearly finished, and only a few towers of scaffolding remained. The marble floor glistened with a luster, as did the mammoth pillars that held up the domed ceiling. Near the interior wall rose the dais, upon which stood the golden imperial throne, sculpted in the shape of a giant bird of prey. The wings spread into a vast circle of splayed feathers which formed the chair's back. She passed through the arcade behind it to the administration offices. "'What do you want?' the clerk asked Amelia. She had never liked him. His face looked like a rodent's, with small eyes, large front teeth, and a brief smattering of black hair on a pale, balding head. The little man sat behind a formidable desk, his fingers dyed black from ink. "'I am here to see Regent Salder,' she replied. "'He sent for me.' "'Upstairs, fourth floor,' he said dismissing her by looking back down at his parchments. On the second floor, plaster covered the walls. On the third floor, she found panelling. And by the fourth level, the panelling was a richly carved dark cherry wood. Lanterns became elegant chandeliers. A long red carpet ran the length of the corridor, and glass windows let in light from outside. 
She recalled how out of place Saldor had seemed when he had visited the kitchen. She looked down at her dirty smock and recognized the irony. The door lay open, and Regent Saldor stood before an arched window built from three of the largest pieces of glass she had ever seen. Bird songs drifted in from the ward below as the Regent read a parchment he held in the sunlight. You're late, he said without looking up. I'm sorry, I didn't know how to get here. Something you should understand. I'm not interested in excuses or explanations. I'm only interested in results. When I tell you to do something, I expect it'll be done exactly as I dictate, not sooner, not later, not differently, but exactly how I specify. Do you understand? Yes, Your Grace. She felt considerably warmer than she had a moment earlier. The regent walked to his desk and laid the parchment on it. He placed his fingertips together, tapping them against each other while studying her. What's your name again? Amelia of Tarin Vale. Amelia. A pretty name. Amelia, you impressed me. That is not easy to do. I appointed five separate women to the task of Imperial Secretary. Ladies of breeding, ladies of pedigree. You are the first to show an improvement in her eminence. You have also presented me with a unique problem. I can't have a common scullery maid working as the personal assistant to the Empress. How will that look? He took a seat behind his desk, brushing out the folds of his robe. It's conceivable that the Empress could have died if not for whatever magic you performed. For this you deserve a reward. I'm bestowing on you the diplomatic rank equal to a baroness. From this moment on, you will be known as Lady Amelia. He dipped a quill into ink and scribbled his name. Present this to the clerk downstairs, and he will arrange for you to obtain the necessary material for a better, well, for a dress. Amelia stared at him, unable to move, taking shallow breaths, not wanting to disturb anything. She was riding a wave of good fortune and feared the slightest movement could throw her into an unforgiving sea. He wasn't punishing her after all. The rest she could think about later. Have you nothing to say? Amelia hesitated. Could the Empress get a new dress as well? You are now Lady Amelia, Imperial Secretary to Empress Modina Novronian. You can take whatever measures you feel are necessary to ensure the well-being of the Empress. Can I take her outside for walks? No, he said curtly, and then softened his tone and added, As we both know, Medina is not well. I personally feel she may never be, but it's imperative that her subjects believe they have a strong ruler. Through her name, Ethelred and I are doing great things for the people out there. He pointed at the window. 
But we can't hope to succeed if they discover their beloved Empress doesn't have her wits about her. It's a difficult task that Novron has laid before us to build a better world while concealing the Empress's incapacitation. Which brings me to your first assignment. Amelia blinked. Despite all my efforts, word is getting out that the Empress is not well. Since the public has never seen her, there's a growing rumor that she doesn't exist. We need to calm the people's fear. To this end, it will be your task to prepare Medina to give a speech upon the Grand Balcony in three days' time. What? Don't worry, it's only three sentences. He picked up the parchment he had been reading and held it out to her. It should be a simple task. You got her to say one word. Now get her to say a few more. Have her memorize the speech and train her to deliver it. Like an empress. But I remember what I said about excuses. You are part of the nobility now, a person of privilege and power. I've given you means, and with that comes responsibility. Now, out with you. I've more work to do. Taking the parchments, she turned and walked toward the door. And, Lady Amelia, don't forget that there were five imperial secretaries before you, and all of them were noble as well. Well, if that don't put a stiff wind in your mane, Ibis declared, looking at the patent of nobility Amelia showed him. Most of the kitchen staff gathered around the cook as he held the parchment up, grinning. It's awfully pretty, Cora pointed out. I love all the fancy writing. Never had a desire to read before, Ibis said, but I sure wish I could now. May I? Nimbus asked. He carefully wiped his hands on his handkerchief and, reaching out, gently took the parchment. It reads, I, Modina, who am right wise empress, appointed to this task by the mercy of our Lord Meribor, through my imperial regents, Maurice Saldor and Lanus Ethelred, decree that in recognition of faithful service and commission of charges found to our favour, Amelia of Terran Vale, daughter of Bartholomew, the carriage-maker, be raised from her current station and shall belong to the unquestionable nobles of the Navronian Empire and will henceforth and forever be known as Lady Amelia of Terran Vale. Nimbus looked up. There's a good deal more concerning the limitations of family inheritance and nobility rights, but that is the essence of the writ. They all stared at the cornstalk of a man. This is Nimbus, Amelia said, introducing him. He's in need of a meal, and I was hoping you could give him a little something. Ibis grinned and made a modest bow. You're a lady now, Amelia. There isn't a person in this room who can say no to you. You hear that, Edith? He shouted at the headmaid as she entered. Our little Amelia is a noble lady now. Edith stood where she was. Says who? The Empress and Regent Soldor, that's who. 
says so right on this here parchment. Care to read it? Edith scowled. Oh, that's right. You can't read any more than I can. Would you like Lady Amelia to read it to you? Or how about her personal steward? It's an excellent reading voice. Edith grabbed up a pile of linens from the bin and headed for the laundry, causing the cook to burst into laughter. She's never given up spouting how you'd be back scrubbing dishes, or worse. Clapping his big hands, he turned his attention to Nimbus. So, what would you like? Anything, actually, Nimbus replied, his hands quivering, shaking the parchment he still held. After several days, even shoe leather looks quite appetizing. Well, I'll get right on that then. Can we clear a place for Nimbus to sit? Amelia asked, and immediately Cora and Nipper were cleaning off the baker's table and setting it just as they had before. Thank you, Amelia said. You don't need to go to this much trouble, but thank you, everyone. Pardon me, my lady, Nimbus addressed her. If I may be so bold, it is not entirely proper for a lady of nobility to convey appreciation for services rendered by subordinates. Amelia sat down beside him and sighed. She dropped her chin into her hands and grimaced. I don't know how to be a noble. I don't know anything. But I'm expected to teach Modena how to be an empress? The contrast of fortune and pending disaster left her perplexed. His grace might as well kill me now. She took the parchment from Nimbus and shook it in her hand. At least now that I'm a noble, I might get a quick beheading. Leaf delivered a plate of stew. Nimbus looked down at the bowl and the scattering of utensils arrayed around him. The kitchen staff is not very experienced in setting a table, are they? He picked up a small two-pronged fork and shook his head. This is a shellfish fork. It should be on the left of my plate, assuming I was eating shellfish. What I do not have is a spoon. Amelia felt stupid. I don't think anyone here knows what a fork is. She looked down incredulously at the twisted spindle of wire. Even the nobility don't use them. At least, I've never washed one before. That would depend on where you are. They are popular farther south. I'll get you a spoon. She started to get up when she felt his hand on hers. Again, he said, forgive my forwardness, but a lady does not fetch flatware from the pantry, and you are now in the nobility. You there, he shouted at Nipper as the boy flew by with a bucket. Fetch a spoon for her ladyship. Right away, the boy replied, setting the bucket down and running to the pantry. See, he said, it's not that difficult, and takes just a bit of confidence and the right tone of voice. Nipper returned with the spoon. It never touched the table. Nimbus took it right from his hand and began to eat. Despite his ravenous state, he ate slowly, occasionally using one of the napkins that he placed neatly on his lap to dab the corners of his mouth. He sat straight, in much the same way Lady Constance had, his chin up, 
his shoulders squared, his fingers placed precisely on the spoon. She had never seen anyone eat so... perfectly. "'You need not stay here,' he told her. "'While I appreciate the company, I am certain you have more important things to attend to. I can find my way out when I'm finished, but I do wish to thank you for this meal. You saved my life.' "'I want you to work for me,' she blurted out, "'to help me teach Modina to act like an empress.' Nimbus paused with a spoonful halfway to his mouth. "'You know all about being a noble. "'You even said you were a courtier. "'You know all the rules and stuff. "'Protocol and etiquette. "'Yeah, those too. "'I don't know if I can arrange for you to be paid, but I might.' The regent said I could take whatever steps necessary. Even if I can't, I can find you a place to sleep and see that you get meals. At the moment, my lady, that is a fortune, and I would consider it an honour if I could assist her eminence in any way. Then it's settled. You are officially the imperial tutor to her eminence, the Empress Modena, Nimbus supplied. Right. And our first job is to teach her to give a speech on the Grand Balcony in three days. That does not sound too difficult. Has she done much public speaking? Amelia forced a smile. A week ago, she said the word no. Chapter 11 Ratabor Entering the city of Ratabor at night, Arista thought it the most filthy, wretched place she could ever imagine. Streets lay in random, confusing lines, crisscrossing at intersections as they ran off at various odd angles. Refuse was piled next to every building, and narrow, dirt thoroughfares were appalling mires of mud and manure. Wooden planks created a network of haphazard paths and bridges over the muck, forcing people to parade in lines like tightrope walkers. The houses and shops were as miserable as the roads. Constructed to fit in the spaces left by the street's odd, acute corners, buildings were shaped like wedges of cheese, giving the city a strange, splintered appearance. The windows, shut tight against the city's stench, were opaque with thick grime repeatedly splashed by passing wagons. Ratabor reveled in its filth like a poor man who was proud of the calluses on his hands. Arista had heard of its reputation, but until experiencing it firsthand, she hadn't truly understood. This was a working man's town— a struggling city where no quarter was expected or given. Here men bore poverty and misfortune as badges of honour, deriving dubious prestige from contests of woe over tankards of ale. Idlers and vagabonds, hawkers and thieves, moved along the plankways, appearing and disappearing again into the shadows. There were children on the street, orphans by the look, ragged and pitiful waifs covered in filth, crouching under porches. Small families also moved among the crowds. Tradesmen, with their wives and children, carried bundles or wheeled overfilled carts loaded with all their worldly possessions. 
all looked exhausted and destitute as they trudged through the city's maze. The rain had started not long after they had left Amberton Lee and poured the entire trip. She was soaked through. Her hair lay matted to her face, her fingers were pruned, and her hood collapsed about her head. Arista followed Royce as he led them through the labyrinth of muddy streets. The cool night wind blew the downpour in sheets, making her shiver. During the trip, she had looked forward to reaching the city. Although it wasn't what she had expected, anything indoors would be welcomed. "'Care for a raincoat, Mum?' a hawker asked, holding up a garment for Arista to see. "'Only five silver!' he continued, as she showed no sign of slowing her horse. "'How about a new hat?' "'Either of you gentlemen looking for companionship for the night?' called a destitute woman, standing on a plank beneath the awning of a closed dry goods shop. She flipped back her hair and smiled alluringly, revealing missing teeth. "'How about a nice bit of poultry for an evening meal?' another man asked, holding up a dead bird so thin and scraggly it was hardly recognisable as a chicken. Arista shook her head, saying nothing except words to urge her horse forward. Signs were everywhere, nailed to porch beams or attached to tall stakes driven into the mud. They advertised things like ale, cider, mead, wine, no credit, and three-day-old pork, cheap. But some were more ominous, such as beggars will be jailed, and all elves entering the city must register at the sheriff's office. This last poster's paint was still bright. Royce stopped at a public house with a signboard of a grotesque, cackling face and a scripted epitaph that read, The Laughing Gnome. The tavern stood three stories, a good size even by Colnora's standards, yet people still struggled to squeeze in the front door. Inside, the place smelled of damp clothes and wood smoke, a large crowd filled the common room, such that Hadrian had to push his way through. "'We're looking for the proprietor,' Royce told a young man carrying a tray. "'That will be Ayers. He's the grey-haired gent behind the bar.' "'It's true, I tell you!' A young man with fiery red hair was saying loudly as he stood in the centre of the common room. To whom he was speaking, Arista wasn't certain— it appeared to be everyone. My father was a Praleon guard. He served on His Majesty's personal retinue for twenty years. What does that prove? Eurith and the rest of them died in the fire. No one knows how it started. The fire was set by Andros, shouted the red-haired youth with great conviction. Abruptly, the room quieted. The young man wasn't content with this, however, and he took the stunned pause to press his point. He betrayed the king, killed the royal family, and took the crown so he could hand the kingdom over to the empress. Good King Eurith would never have accepted annexation to the new empire, and those loyal to his name shouldn't either. The crowd burst into an uproar of angry shouts. In the midst of this outburst, the three of them reached the bar, 
where a handful of men stood watching the excitement with empty mugs in hand. Mr. Ayers, Royce asked of a man and a boy as they struggled to hoist a fresh keg onto the rear dock. Who wants to know? asked the man in a stained apron. A drop of sweat dangled from the tip of his red nose, his face flushed from exertion. We're looking to rent a pair of rooms. Not much luck of that. We're full up, Ayers replied, not pausing from his work. Jimmy, jump up and shim it. The young lad, filthy with sweat and dirt, leapt up onto the dock and pushed a wooden wedge under the keg, tilting it forward slightly. Do you know of availability elsewhere in the city? Hadrian asked. Gotta be the same all over, friend. Every boarding house is full. Refugees been coming in from the countryside for weeks. Refugees? Yeah. The nationalists have been marching up from the coast, sacking towns. People been running ahead of them, and most come here. Not that I mind. Been great for business. Ayers pulled a tap out of the old keg and hammered it into the face of the new barrel with a wooden mallet. He turned the spigot and drained a pint or two to clear the sediment. Wiping his hands on his apron, he began filling the demands of his customers. Is there no place to find lodging for the night? I can't say that. Just no place I know of, Ayers replied, and finally took a moment to wipe a sleeve over his face and clear the drop from his nose. Maybe some folks will rent a room in their houses, but all the inns and taverns are packed. I've even started to rent floor space. Is there any left? Hadrian asked, hopefully. Any what? Floor space. It's raining pretty hard out there. Ayers lifted his head up and glanced around his tavern. I've got space under the stairs that no one's taken yet, if you don't mind the people walking on top of you all night. It's better than a gutter, Hadrian said, shrugging at Royce and Arista. Maybe tomorrow there'll be a vacancy. Ayers' face showed he doubted this. If you want to stay, it'll be forty-five silver. Forty-five? Hadrian exclaimed, stunned. For space under the stairs? No wonder no one has taken it. A room at the Regal Fox in Colnora is only twenty. Go there, then. But if you want to stay here, it'll cost you forty-five silver. In tenants. I don't take those imperial notes they're passing now. It's your choice. Hadrian scowled at Ayers, but counted out the money just the same. I hope that includes dinner. Ayers shook his head. It doesn't. We also have three horses. Lucky you. No room at the stable either. Is it okay to leave them out front? Sure. For another five silver a horse. They pushed and prodded their way through the crowd with their bags until they came to the wooden staircase. Beneath it, several people had discarded their wet cloaks on nail heads or on empty kegs and crates stored there. Royce and Hadrian stacked the containers to make a cubby and threw the coats and cloaks on them. A few people shot them harsh looks, the owners of the cloaks, no doubt, but no one said anything, as it appeared most understood the situation. Looking around, Arista saw others squatting in corners and along the edge of the big room. 
Some were families with children trying to sleep, their little heads resting on damp clothes. Mothers rubbed their backs and sang lullabies over the racket of loud voices, shifting wooden chairs, and the banging of pewter mugs. These were the lucky ones. She wondered about families who couldn't afford floor space. How many are cowering outside under a boardwalk, or in a muddy alley somewhere in the rain? As they settled, Arista noticed the noise of the inn wasn't simply the confusing sounds of forty unrelated conversations, but rather one discussion voiced by several people with various opinions. From time to time, one speaker would rise above the others to make a point, and then drown in the response from the crowd. The most vocal was the red-haired young man. No, he's not, he shouted once more. He's not a blood relative of Eurith. He's the brother of Eurith's second wife. And I suppose you think his first wife was murdered, so he could be pushed into marrying Amateur just so Andros could become Duke. That's exactly what I'm saying, the youth declared. Don't you see? They planned this for years, and not just here either. They did it in Alburn, Warwick. They even tried it in Melangar, but they failed there. Did anyone see that play last year? You know, The Crown Conspiracy. It was based on real events. Amrath's children outsmarted the conspirators. That's why Melangar hasn't fallen to the new empire. Don't you see? We're all the victims of a conspiracy. I've even heard that the Empress might not exist. The whole story of the heir of Novron is a sham, invented to placate the masses. Do you really think a farm girl could kill a great beast? It's men like Andros who control us. Evil, corrupt, murderous men without an ounce of royal blood in their veins or honour in their hearts. So what? A fat man in a checked vest asked defiantly. What do we care who rules us? Our lot is always the same. You speak of matters between blue bloods. It doesn't affect us. You're wrong. How many men in this city were pressed into the army? How many are off to die for the Empress? How many sons have gone to fight Melangar, who has never been our enemy? Now the Nationalists are coming. They're only a few miles south. They will sack this city just as they did Vernis. And why? Because we are now joined to the Empire. Do you think your sons, brothers, and fathers would be off dying if Eurith were alive? Do you want to see Ratabor destroyed? They won't destroy Ratabor, the fat man shouted back. You're just spouting rumours, trying to scare decent people and stir up trouble. Armies will fight, and maybe this city will change hands, but it won't affect us. We'll still be poor and still struggling to live, as we always have. King Eurith had his wars, and Viceroy Andros will have his. We work, fight, and die under both of them. That's our lot, and treasonous talk like this will only get people killed. They will burn the city, an older woman in a blue kerchief said suddenly. Just as they burned Kilnar, I know. I was there. I saw them. All eyes turned to her. That's not true. It can't be, the fat man protested. It doesn't make sense. 
The nationalists have no cause to burn cities. They would want them intact. The nationalists didn't burn it, she said. The Empire did. This statement brought the room to stunned silence. When the Imperial government saw that the city would be lost, they ordered Kilnar to be torched, to leave nothing for the nationalists. It's true, said a man seated with his family near the kitchen. We lived in Werner's. I saw the city guards burning the shops and homes there too. The same will happen here. The youth caught the crowd's attention once more. Unless we do something about it. What can we do? A young mother asked. We can join the nationalists. We can give the city to them before the Viceroy has a chance to torch it. This is treason, the fat man said. You'll bring death to us all. The Empire took Renyard through deceit, murder and trickery. I don't speak treason. I speak loyalty. Loyalty to the monarchy. To sit by and let the Empire rape this kingdom and burn this city is treason. And what's more, it's foolhardy cowardice. Are you calling me a coward? No, sir. I'm calling you a fool and a coward. The fat man stood up indignantly and drew a dagger from his belt. I demand satisfaction. The youth stood and unsheathed a long sword. As you wish. You would duel me, sword against dagger, and call me a coward. I also called you a fool, and a fool it is who holds a dagger and challenges the man with a sword. Several people in the room laughed at this, which only infuriated the fat man more. Do you have no honour? I'm but a poor soldier's son from a destitute town. I can't afford honour. Again, the crowd laughed. I'm also a practical man who knows it's more important to win than to die, for honour is something that concerns only the living. But understand this. If you choose to fight me, I'll kill you any way I can, the same way that I'll try to save this city and its people any way I can. Honour and allegiance be damned. The crowd applauded now, much to the chagrin of the fat man. Red-faced, he stood for a moment, then shoved his dagger back in his belt and abruptly stalked out the door into the rain. But how can we turn the city over to the nationalists? The old woman asked. The youth turned to her. If we raise a militia, we can raid the armory and storm the city garrison. After that, we'll arrest the viceroy. That will give us the city. The imperial army is camped a mile to the south. When the nationalists attack, they'll expect to retreat to the safety of the city walls. But when they arrive, they'll find the gates locked. In disarray and turmoil, they'll be routed, and the nationalists will destroy them. After that, we'll welcome the nationalists in as allies. Given our assistance in helping them take the city, we can expect fair treatment and possibly even self-rule, as that is the nationalists' creed. Imagine that, he said dreamily. Ratabor, the whole city, the whole kingdom of Renyard, being run by a people's council, just like Tour de Four. This clearly caught the imagination of many in the room. Craftsmen would own their own shops instead of renting. Farmers would own their land and be able to pass it tax-free to their sons. Merchants could set their own rates 
and taxes wouldn't be used to pay for foreign wars. Instead, that money can be used to clean up this town. We could pave the roads, tear down the vacant buildings, and put all the people of the city to work doing it. We would elect our own sheriffs and bailiffs, but they would have little to do, for what crime would there be in a free city? Freemen, with their own property, have no cause for crime. I would be willing to fight for that, a man seated with his family near the window said. For paved roads, I would too, said the elderly woman. I'd like to own my own land, another said. Others voiced their interest, and soon the conversation turned more serious. The level of the voices dropped, and men clustered together to speak in small groups. You're not from Renyard, are you? someone asked Arista. The princess nearly jumped when she discovered a woman had slipped in beside her. She wasn't immediately certain that it was a woman, as she was oddly dressed in dark breeches and a man's loose shirt. Arista initially thought she was an adolescent boy due to her short blonde hair and dappled freckles, but her eyes gave her away. They were heavy and deep, as if stolen from a much older person. No, Arista said apprehensively. The woman studied Arista, her old eyes slowly moving over her body as if she were memorizing every line of her figure and every crease in her dress. You have an odd way about you. The way you walk, the way you sit. It's all very precise, very proper. Arista was over being startled now, and was just plain irritated. You don't strike me as the kind of person who should accuse others of being odd, she replied. There, the woman said excitedly and wagged a finger. See? Anyone else would have called me a mannish little whore. You have manners. You speak in subtle innuendo, like a... Princess? Who are you? Hadrian abruptly intervened, moving between the two. Royce also appeared from the shadows behind the strange woman. Who are you? She replied saucily. The door to the laughing gnome burst open, and uniformed imperial guards poured in. Tables were turned over, and drinks hit the floor. Customers nearest the door fell back in fear, cowering in the corners, or were pushed aside. Arrest everyone, a man ordered in a booming voice. He was a big man with a pot belly, dark brows, and sagging cheeks. He kept his weight on his heels and his thumbs in his belt as he glared at the crowd. What's all this about, Trenchin? Ayers shouted from behind the bar. You would be smart to keep your holes shut, Ayers. I'll close this tavern tonight and have you in stocks by morning. Or worse... Harboring traitors and providing a meeting place for conspirators will buy you death at the post. I didn't do nothing, Ayers cried. It was the kid. He's the one that started all the talk. And that woman from Kilnar. They're the ones. I just serve drinks like every night. I'm not responsible for what customers say. I'm not involved in this. It was them and a few of the others who were going along with it. Take everyone in for questioning. Trenchin ordered. We'll get to the bottom of this. I want ringleaders. This way, 
the mannish woman whispered. Grabbing Arista's arm, she began to pull the princess away from the soldiers toward the kitchen. Arista pulled back. The woman sighed. Unless you want to have a long talk with the Viceroy about who you are and what you're doing here, you'll follow me now. Arista looked at Royce, who nodded, but there was concern on his face. They grabbed up their bags and followed. Starting at the main entrance, the Imperial soldiers began hauling people out into the rain and mud. Women screamed and children cried. Those who resisted were beaten and thrown out. Some near the rear door tried to run, only to find more soldiers waiting. The mannish woman ploughed through the crowd into the tavern's kitchen, where a cook looked over, surprised. "'Best look out,' their guide said. "'Trenchin is looking to arrest everyone.' The cook dropped her ladle in shock as they pressed by her, heading to the walk-in pantry. Closing the door, the woman revealed a trapdoor in the pantry's floor. They climbed down a short wooden stair into the laughing gnome's wine cellar. Several dusty bottles lined the walls, as did casks of cheese and containers of butter. The woman took a lantern that hung from the ceiling and, closing the door above, led them behind the wine racks to the cellar's far wall. There was a metal grate in the floor. She wedged a piece of old timber in the bars and pried it up. Inside, all of you, she ordered. Above, they could still hear the screams and shouts, the sound of heavy boots on the kitchen floor. Hurry, she whispered. Royce entered first, climbing down metal rungs that formed a ladder. He slipped into darkness, and Hadrian motioned for the princess to follow. She took a deep breath, as if going underwater, and climbed down. The ladder continued far deeper than Arista would have expected, and instead of the tight, cramped tunnel she anticipated, she found herself dropping into a large gallery. It was completely dark, except around the lantern, and the smell was unmistakable. Without pause or a word of direction, the woman walked away. They had no choice but to follow her light. They were in a sewer far larger and grander than Arista had imagined possible after seeing the city above. Walls of brick and stone rose twelve feet to a roof of decorated mosaic tiles. Every few feet, grates formed waterfalls that spilled from the ceiling, raining down with a deafening roar. Stormwater frothed and foamed in the centre of the tunnel as it churned around corners and broke upon dividers, spraying walls and staining them dark. They chased the woman with the lantern as she moved quickly along the brick curb near the wall. Like ribs supporting the ceiling, thick stone archways jutted out at regular intervals, blocking their path. The woman skirted around these easily, but it was much harder for Arista, in her gown, to traverse the columns and keep her footing on the slick stone curb. Below her, the storm's runoff created a fast-flowing river of dirty water and debris that echoed in the chamber. The corridor reached a four-way intersection. In the stone at the top corners were chiseled small notations. These read, On her way, going one direction, and 
Herald Street, going the other. The woman with the lantern never wavered and turned without a pause, leading them down on her way at a breakneck pace. Abruptly, she stopped. They stood on a curb beside the sewer river, which was like any other part of the corridor they had travelled except a bit wider and quieter. Before we go further, I must be certain, she began. Allow me to make things easier by guessing the lady here is actually Princess Arista Essendon of Melangar. You are Hadrian Blackwater, and you're Duster, the famous demon of Colnora. Am I correct? That would make you a diamond, Royce said. At your service. She smiled, and Arista thought how cat-like her face was, in that she appeared both friendly and sinister at the same time. You can call me Quartz. In that case, you can assume you're correct. Thanks for getting us out of there, Hadrian offered. No need to thank me. It's my job, and in this particular case, my happy pleasure. We didn't know where you were since leaving Colnora, but I was hoping you would happen by this way. Now follow me. Off she sprang again, and Arista once more struggled to follow. How is this here? Hadrian asked from somewhere behind Arista. This sewer is incredible, but the city above has dirt roads. Ratabor wasn't always Ratabor, Quartz shouted back. Once it was something bigger. All that's been forgotten, buried like this sewer under centuries of dirt and manure. They moved on down the tunnel until they came to an alcove, little more than a recessed area surrounded by brick. Quartz leaned up against a wooden panel and gave a strong shove. The back shifted inward slightly. She put her fingers in the crack and slid the panel sideways, exposing a hidden tunnel. They entered and travelled up a short set of steps to a wooden door. Light seeped around its cracks, and voices could be heard from the other side. Quartz knocked and opened it, revealing a large subterranean chamber filled with people. Tables, chairs, desks, and bunk beds stacked four high filled the room, lit by numerous candles that spilled a wealth of waxy tears. A fire burned in the blackened cooking hearth, where a huge iron pot was suspended by a swivel arm. Several large chests lay open, displaying sorted contents of silverware, candlesticks, clothes, hats, cloaks, and even dresses. Still other chests held purses, shoes, and rope. At least one was partially filled with coins, mostly copper, but Arista spotted a few silver and an occasional gold tenant sparkling in the firelight. This last chest they closed the moment the door opened. A dozen people filled the room, all young, thin predators, each dressed in an odd assortment of clothing. Welcome to the rat's nest, Quartz told them. Rats, let me introduce you to the three travellers from Colnora. Shoulders settled, hands pulled back from weapons, and Arista heard a number of exhales. The older gent back there is Polish, 
Quartz pointed over some heads at a tall, thin man with a scraggly beard and drooping eyes. He sported a tall, black hat and a dramatic-looking cloak like something a bishop would wear. He's our fearless leader. This comment drew a round of laughter. Damn you, Quartz! A boy no older than nine cursed her. Sorry, Carrot, she told him. They just walked into the gnome while I was there. We heard the imps just crashed the gnome, Polish said. Aye, they did, Quartz gleamed. Eyes left them and focused abruptly on Quartz, who allowed herself a dramatic pause as she took a seat on a soft, beat-up chair, throwing her legs over the arm in a cavalier fashion. She obviously enjoyed the attention as the members of the room gathered around her. Emery was speeching again, she began, like a master storyteller addressing an eager audience. This time, people were actually listening. He might have gotten something started, but he got under Lavin's skin. Lavin challenged him to a duel, but Emery says he'll fight sword to dagger, which really irks Lavin, and he storms out of the gnome. Emery should have known to beat it then, but the dispute with Lavin gets him in real good with the crowd, see, so he keeps going. Arista noticed the thieves hanging on every word. They were enthralled as Quartz added to her tale's drama with sweeping arm gestures. Lavin, being the bastard that he is, goes to Bailiff Trenchin, right, and returns with the town garrison. They burst in and start arresting everyone for treason. What did Ayres do? Polish asked excitedly. What could he do? He says, What's going on? And they tell him to shut up. So he does. Anyone killed? Carrot asked. None that I saw, but I had to beat it out of there real quick-like to save our guests here. Did they take Emery? I suppose so, but I didn't see it. Polish crossed the room to face them up close. He nodded as if in approval and pulled absently on his thin beard. Princess Arista, he said formally, and tipped his hat as he made a clumsy bow. Please excuse the place. We don't often entertain guests of your stature here. And, quite frankly, we didn't know when or even if you'd be coming. If we had known, we'd have at least washed the rats. Someone in the back shouted, bringing more laughter. Quiet, you reprobate. You must forgive them, lady. They're the lowest form of degenerates, and their lifestyle only aggravates their condition. I try to elevate them, but, as you can see, I've been less than successful. That's because you're the biggest blackguard here, Polish. Quartz shot at him. Polish ignored the comment and moved to face Royce. "'Duster,' he said, raising an eyebrow. At the mention of that name, the whole room quieted, and everyone pushed forward to get a better look. "'I thought he was bigger,' someone said. "'That's not Duster,' Carrot declared, bravely stepping forward. "'He's just an old man.' "'Carrot,' Quartz said dismissively, "'the cobbler's new puppy is old compared to you.' This brought forth more laughter, and Carrot kicked Quartz's feet off the chair's arm. Shut up, freckle face, 
The lad makes a good point, Polish said. I don't have that many freckles, Quartz countered. Polish rolled his eyes. No, I meant just how do we really know this is Duster and the Princess? Could be the imps knew we were looking and are setting us up. Do you have any proof about who you are? As he said this, Arista noticed Polish let his hand drift casually to the long black dagger at his belt. Others in the room began to spread out, making slow but menacing movements. Only Quartz remained at ease on her chair. Hadrian looked a bit concerned as Royce cast off his cloak, letting it fall to the floor. Eyes narrowed on him as they stared at the white-bladed dagger in his belt. Everyone waited anxiously for his next move. Royce surprised them by slowly unbuttoning his shirt and pulling it down to expose his left shoulder, revealing a scarred brand in the shape of an M. Polish leaned forward and studied the scar. The mark of Manzant, he said, and his expression changed to one of wonder. Duster is the only living man known to have escaped that prison. They all nodded and murmured in awed tones as Royce put his cloak back on. He still doesn't look like no monster to me, Carrot said with disdain. That's only because you've never seen him first thing in the morning, Hadrian told him. He's an absolute fiend until he's had breakfast. This brought a chuckle from the diamonds and a reluctant smile from Carrot. Now that that's settled, can we get to business? Royce asked. You need to send word to the jewel that Etcher is a traitor and find out if a meeting has been set up with Gaunt. All in good time, Polish said. First, we have a very important matter to settle. That's right. Quartz came to life, leapt to her feet, and took a seat at the main table. Pay up, people. There were irritated grumblings as the thieves reluctantly pulled out purses and counted coins. They each set stacks of silver in front of Quartz. Polish joined her, and they started counting together. You too, Set, Quartz said. You are down for half a stone. When everyone was finished, Polish and Quartz divided the loot into two piles. And for being the one to find them, she said, smiling at Polish. Polish scowled and handed her a stack of silver, which she dropped into her own purse, now bulging and so heavy she needed to use two hands to hold it. You bet we wouldn't make it here. Arista asked. Most everyone did, yes, Polish replied, smiling. Except Polish and I, Quartz said happily. Not that I thought you'd make it either, I just liked the odds and the chance for a big payoff if you did. Great minds, my dear, Polish told her as he also put his share away. Great minds indeed. Once his treasure was safely locked in a chest, Polish turned with a more serious look on his face. Court, take Set and visit the Nationalists' camp. See if you can arrange a meeting. Take Deegan Street. It'll be the safest now. Not to mention poetic, Court said, smiling at her own insight. 
She waved at Set, who grabbed his cloak. I know exactly how much is in my trunk, Quartz told everyone as she dropped her purse in a chest. It had best be there when I come back, or I'll make sure everyone pays. No one scoffed or laughed. Apparently, when it came to money, thieves did not make jokes. Yes, yes, now, out with the two of you. Polish shooed them into the sewer, then turned to face the new guests. Hmm, now what to do with you? We can't move around tonight with the city watch in a frenzy, besides which the weather has been most unfriendly. Perhaps in the morning we can find you a safe house, but for tonight I'm afraid you'll all have to stay here in our humble abode. As you can see, we don't have the finest accommodations for a princess. I'll be fine, she said. Polish looked at her, surprised. Are you sure you are a princess? She's becoming more human every day, Hadrian said, smiling at her. You can sleep over here. Carrot told them, bouncing on one of the bunks. This is Quartz's bed, and the one below is Set's. They'll be out all night. Thank you, Arista told him, taking a seat on the lower berth. You're quite the gentleman. Carrot straightened up at the comment and puffed out his chest, smiling back at Arista fondly. He's a miserable thief. Behind on his accounts is what he is, Polish admonished, pointing a finger. You still owe me, remember? The boy's proud face dropped. I'm surprised they already named a street after Deegan Gaunt, Arista mentioned, changing the subject. I had no idea he was that popular. Several people snickered. You got it backward, an older man with a craggy face said. The street wasn't named after Gaunt, Polish explained. Gaunt's mother named him after the street. Gaunt is from Ratibor, Hadrian asked. Polish looked at him as if he had just questioned the existence of the sun. Born on Deegan Street. They say he was captured by pirates and that's where his life changed and the legend began. Hadrian turned to Royce. See, being raised in Ratibor isn't always such a bad thing. Duster is from Ratibor. Whereabouts did you live? Royce kept his eyes on his pack. Don't you think you should send someone with that message about Etcher back to Colnora? The Jewel will want to know about him immediately, and any delay could get people killed. Polish wagged a finger at Royce. I remember you, you know. We never met, but I was in the Diamond back when you were. You were quite the bigwig, telling everyone what to do. Polish allowed himself a snicker. I suppose that's a hard habit to break, eh? Still, practice makes perfect, Polish said, turning away. There are dry blankets here you can use. We'll see about better arrangements in the morning. Royce and Hadrian rooted around in their bags. Arista watched them enviously. Etcher had taken her bundle with him. Maybe he needed it as proof, or perhaps he had thought there could have been something of value in it. In any case, he had known she would not need it. Most likely he had forgotten her pack was still on the horse. 
The loss wasn't great. A mangled and dirty dress, her nightgown and robe, her crisp dagger and a blanket. The only thing she still had with her was the only thing she cared about, the hairbrush from her father, which she took out. She attempted to tame the tangled mess that was her hair. You have such a way with people, Royce," Hadrian mentioned as he opened another pack. Royce growled something Arista couldn't make out and seemed overly focused on his gear. Where did you live, Royce? Arista asked. When you were here. There was a long pause. Finally, he replied, "This isn't the first time I've slept in these sewers." The sun had barely peaked over the horizon, and already the air was hot, heavy with the stifling blanket of humidity. The rain had stopped, but clouds lingered, shrouding the sun in a milky haze. The streets were filled with puddles, great pools of brown water, still as glass. A mongrel dog, thin and mangy, roamed the market, sniffing garbage, flushing a rat. The mutt chased it to the sewers. Having lost it, he lapped from the brown water, then collapsed, panting. Insects appeared. Clouds of gnats formed over the larger puddles, and biting flies circled the tethered horses. They fought them as best they could with a shake of the head, a stomp of the hooves, or a swish of the tail. Before long, people appeared. Most were women. Clad in plain dresses, the few men were shirtless, and everyone went about barefoot, their legs caked with mud to their knees. They opened shops and stands, displaying a meager assortment of fruits, eggs, vegetables, and some meat laid bare to the flies' delight. Royce had barely slept. Too wary to close his eyes for more than a few minutes at a time, he had given up. He rose sometime before dawn and made his way to the surface. He climbed on the bed of a wagon left abandoned in the mud and watched East End Square come alive. He had seen the sight before, only the faces were different. He hated this city. If it were a man, he would have slit its throat decades ago. The thought appealed to him. As he stared at the muddy, puddle-filled square, some problems were easily fixed by the draw of a knife, but others—he wasn't alone. Not long after first light, Royce spotted a boy lying under a cart in the mud, only his head visible above the ruts. For hours, the two remained aware of each other, but neither acknowledged it. When the shops began to open. The boy slipped from his muddy bed, crawled to one of the larger puddles, and washed some of the muck off. His hair remained caked with the grey clay, because he didn't submerge his head. As the boy moved down the road, Royce saw he was nearly naked, and kept a small pouch tied around his neck. Royce knew the pouch held all the boy's possessions. He imagined a small bit of glass for cutting, string. A smooth rock for hammering and breaking, and perhaps even a copper coin or two. It was a king's ransom that he would defend with his life if it came to that.
The boy moved to an undisturbed puddle and drank deeply from the surface. Untouched rainwater was best, cleaner, fresher than well water, and much easier to get, much safer. The boy kept a keen eye on him, constantly glancing over. With his morning wash done, the lad crept around the cooper's shop, which was still closed. He hid himself between two tethered horses, rubbing their muddy legs. He glanced once more at Royce with an irritated look, and then threw a pebble in the direction of the grocer. Nothing happened. The boy searched for another, paused, then threw again. This time the stone hit a pitcher of milk, which toppled and spilled. The grocer howled in distress and rushed to save what she could. As she did, the boy made a dash to steal a small sour apple and an egg. He made a clean grab and was back around the corner of the cooper's barn before the grocer turned. His chest heaved as he watched Royce. He paused only a moment, then cracked the egg and spilled the gooey contents into his mouth, swallowing with pleasure. Over the waif's right shoulder, Royce saw two figures approaching. They were boys like him, but older and larger. One wore a pair of men's breeches that extended to his ankles. The other wore a filthy tunic tied around his waist with a length of twine and a necklace made from a torn leather belt. The boy did not see them until it was too late. The two grabbed him by the hair and dragged him into the street, where they forced his face into the mud. The bigger boys wrenched the apple from his hand and ripped the pouch from his neck before letting go. Sputtering, gasping, and blind, the boys struggled to breathe. He came up swinging and found only air. The kid wearing the oversized breeches kicked him in the stomach, crumpling the boy to his knees. The one wearing the tunic took a turn and kicked the boy once, striking him in the side and landing him back in the mud. They laughed as they continued up Herald Street, one holding the apple, the other swinging the neck pouch. Royce watched the boy lying in the street. No one helped. No one noticed. Slowly the boy crawled back to his shelter beneath the wheel cart. Royce could hear him crying and cursing as he pounded his fist in the mud. Feeling something on his cheek, Royce brushed away the wetness. He stood up, surprised his breathing was so shallow. He followed the plank walkway to the grocer, who smiled brightly at him. Terribly hot today, ain't it, sir? Royce ignored her. He picked out the largest, ripest apple he could find. Five copper, if you please, sir. Royce paid the woman without a word, then pulled a solid gold tenant from his pouch and pressed it sideways into the fruit. He walked back across the square. This time he took a different path, one that passed by the cart the boy lay under, and, as he did, the apple slipped from his fingers and fell into the mud. Royce muttered a curse at its clumsiness and continued his way up the street. 
As the day approached mid-morning, the temperature grew oppressive. Arista was dressed in a hodgepodge of boyish clothes gleaned from the diamond stash. A shapeless cap hid most of her hair. A battered, oversized tunic and torn trousers gave her the look of a hapless urchin. In Ratabor, this nearly guaranteed her invisibility. Adrian guessed it was more comfortable than her heavy gown and cloak. The three of them arrived at the intersection of legends and lore. There had been a brief discussion about leaving Arista in the rat's nest, but after Hintendar, Hadrian was reluctant to have her out of his sight. The thoroughfares of the two streets formed one of the many acute angles so prevalent in the city. Here, a pie-shaped church dominated. Made of stone, the building stood out among its wooden neighbors, a heavy, overbuilt structure, more like a fortress than a place of worship. "'Why a Nephron church, of all things?' Hadrian asked as they reached the entrance. "'Maybe we got it wrong. I don't even know what I'm looking for.' Royce nudged Hadrian and pointed at the cornerstone. Chiselled into its face, the epitaph read, "'Established 2992.' "'Before you were born, the year 92,' he whispered. I doubt it's a coincidence. Churches keep accounts concerning births, marriages, and deaths in their community, Arista pointed out. If there was a battle in which people died, there could be a record. Pulling on the thick oak doors, Hadrian found them locked. He knocked, and when no response came, knocked again. He pounded with his fist, and then, just as Royce began looking for another way in, the door opened. I'm sorry, but services aren't until tomorrow, an elderly priest announced. He was dressed in the usual robes. He had a balding head and a wrinkled face that peered through the small crack of the barely opened door. That's okay. I'm not here for services, Hadrian replied. I was hoping I could get a look at the church records. Records? Hadrian glanced at Arista. I heard churches keep records of births and deaths. Oh, yes, but why do you want to see them? I'm trying to find out what happened to someone. The priest looked sceptical. My father, he added. Understanding washed over the priest's face, and he beckoned them in. As Hadrian had expected, it was oppressively dark. Banks of candles burned on either side of the altar, and at various points around the worship hall, each doing more to emphasize the darkness than provide illumination. "'We actually keep very good records here,' the priest mentioned as he closed the door behind them. "'By the way, I'm Monsignor Bartholomew.' I'm watching over the church while his reverence Bishop Talbert is away on pilgrimage to Irvanon. And you are... Adrian Blackwater. He gestured to Royce and Arista. These are friends of mine. I see. Then, if you'll please follow me, Bartholomew said. Hadrian had never spent much time in churches. 
The darkness, opulence, and staring eyes of the sculptures unnerved him. He was at home in a forest or a field, a hovel or a fortress, but the interior of a church always made him uneasy. This one had a vaulted ceiling supported by marble columns and sink-foil-shaped stonework and blind tracery mouldings common to Nephron churches. The altar itself was an ornately carved wooden cabinet with three broad doors and a blue-green marble top. His mind flashed back to a similar cabinet in Essendon Castle that had concealed Magnus, a dwarf waiting to accuse him and Royce of Amrath's death. That incident had started his and Royce's long-standing employment with Medford's royal family. On this one, more candles burned, and three large gilded tomes lay sealed. The sickly sweet fragrance of salaphon incense was strong. On the altar stood the obligatory alabaster statue of Novron. As always, he knelt, sword in hand, while the god Merobor loomed over him, placing a crown on his head, anointing his son the ruler of the world. All the churches Hadrian had visited had one each a replica of the original sculpture preserved in the crown tower of Irvanon. They varied only in size and material. Taking a candle, the priest led them down a narrow, curling stair. At the base, they stopped at a door, beside which hung an iron key on a peg. The priest lifted it off and twisted it in the large square lock until it clanked. The door creaked open, and the priest replaced the key. "'Doesn't make much sense, does it, to keep the key there?' Royce pointed out. The priest glanced back at it blankly. "'It's heavy, and I don't like carrying it.' "'Then why lock the door?' "'Only way to keep it closed. And if left open, the rats eat the parchments.' Inside, the cellar was half the size of the church above, and divided into aisles of shelves that stretched to the ceiling, and were filled with thick leather-bound books. The priest took a moment to light a lantern that hung near the door. "'They're all in chronological order,' he told them, as the lantern revealed a low ceiling, and walls made of small stacked stones— quite unlike the larger blocks and bricks used in the rest of the church. About what time period are you looking for? When did your father die? 2992. The priest hesitated. 92? That was 42 years ago. You age remarkably well. How old were you? Very young. The priest looked sceptical. Well, I'm sorry. We have no records from 92. The cornerstone outside says this church was built then, Roy said. And yet we do not have the records for which you ask. Why is that? Adrian pressed. The priest shrugged. Maybe there was a fire. Maybe there was a fire. You don't know. Our records cannot help you, so if you'll please follow me, I'll show you out. 
The priest took a step toward the exit. Royce stepped in his path. You're hiding something. I'm doing nothing of the sort. You asked the sea records from 92? There are none. And the question is, why? Any number of reasons. How should I know? The same way you knew there aren't any records here for that date without even looking, Royce replied, his voice lowering. You're lying to us, which again brings up the question of why. I'm a Monsignor. I don't appreciate being accused of lying in my own church. And I don't appreciate being lied to. Royce took a step forward. Neither do I, Bartholomew replied. You're not looking for anyone's father. Do you think I'm a fool? Why are you back here? That business ended decades ago. Why are you still at it? Royce glanced at Hadrian. We've never been here before. The priest rolled his eyes. You know what I mean. Why is the Surrette still digging this up? You're Sentinel Frannick, aren't you? He pointed at Royce. Talbot told me about the interrogation you put him through. A bishop of the church. If only the Patriarch knew what his pets were up to, you would all be disbanded. Why do you still exist, anyway? The heir of Novron is on her throne, isn't she? Isn't that what we're all supposed to believe? At long last, you've found the seed of Novron, and all is finally right with the world. You people can't accept that your mandate is over, that we don't need you any more, if we ever did. We aren't Sirette, Adrian told him, and my friend here is definitely not a sentinel. No? Talbot described him perfectly. Small, wiry, frightening, like death himself. But you must have shaved your beard. I'm not a sentinel, Royce told him. We're just trying to find out what happened here forty-two years ago, Hadrian explained. And you're right, I'm not looking for a record of my father's death because I know he didn't die here. But he was here. The Monsignor hesitated, looking at Hadrian and shooting furtive glances at Royce. What was your father's name? he asked at length. Danbury Blackwater. The priest shook his head. Never heard of him. But you know what happened, Royce said. Why don't you just tell us? Why don't you just get out of my church? I don't know who you are, and I don't want to. What happened, happened. It's over. Nothing can change it. Just leave me alone. You were there, Arista muttered in revelation. Forty-two years ago, you were there, weren't you? The Monsignor glared at her, his teeth clenched. Look through the stacks if you want, he told them in resignation. I don't care. Just lock up when you leave, and be sure to blow out the light. Wait. Hadrian spoke quickly as he fished his medallion out of his shirt and held it up toward the light. Bartholomew narrowed his eyes and then stepped closer to examine it. Where did you get that?
My father left it to me. He also wrote me a poem, a sort of riddle, I think. Maybe you can help explain it. Hadrian took out the parchment and passed it to the cleric. After reading, the cleric raised a hand to his face, covering his mouth. Hadrian noticed his fingers tremble. His other hand sought and found the wall, and he leaned heavily against it. You look like him, the priest told Hadrian. I didn't notice it at first. It's been over forty years, and I only knew him briefly, but that's his sword on your back. I should have recognized that, if nothing else. I still see it so often in my nightmares. So, you knew my father. You knew Danbury Blackwater. His name was Tramus Dan. That's what he went by, at least. Will you tell us what happened? He nodded. There's no reason to keep it secret, except to protect myself. And perhaps it's time I faced my sins. The Monsignor looked at the open door to the stairs. Let's close this. He stepped out, then returned, puzzled. The key is gone. I've got it, Royce volunteered, revealing the iron key in his hand. Pulling the door shut, he locked it from the inside. I've never cared for rooms I can be locked in. Bartholomew took a small stool from behind one of the stacks and perched himself on it. He sat bent over with his head between his knees as if he might be sick. They waited as the priest took several steadying breaths. It was forty-two years ago, next week, in fact. He began, his head still down, his voice quiet. I had been expecting them for days, and was worried. I thought they had been discovered, but that wasn't it. They were travelling slowly, because she was with child. Who was? Hadrian asked. The Monsignor looked up, confused. Do you know the significance of that amulet you wear? It once belonged to the guardian of the heir of Novron. Yes, the old man said simply. Your father was the head of our order, a secret organization dedicated to protecting the descendants of Emperor Nerion. The Theorem Eldership, Royce said. Bartholomew looked at him, surprised. Yes, shopkeepers, tradesmen, farmers, people who preserved a dream handed down to them. But you're a priest in the Nephron Church. Many of us were encouraged to take vows. Some even tried to join the Serret. We needed to know what the Church was doing, where they were looking. I was the only one in Ratabor to receive the would-be Emperor and his guardian. The ranks of the Eldership had dwindled over the centuries. Few believed in it any more. My parents raised me to believe in the dream of seeing the heir of Nerion return to an imperial throne, but I never expected it would happen. I often questioned if the heir even existed, if the stories were just a myth.'
You see, the Eldership only contacted members if needed. You had a few meetings, and years could go by without a word. And then messages were only words of encouragement reminding us to stay strong. We never heard a thing about the air. There were no plans to rise up, no news of sightings, victories, or defeats. I was only a boy, a young deacon, recently arrived in Ratabor, assigned to the old South Square Church, when my father sent a letter saying simply, He is coming. Make preparations. I didn't know what to think. It took several readings before I even understood what he meant. When I realized, I was dumbstruck. The heir of Novron was coming to Ratabor. I didn't know exactly what I should do, so I rented a room at the Bradford's boarding house and waited. I should have found a better place. I should have... He paused for a moment, dropped his head again to look at the floor, and took a breath. What happened? Hadrian asked, keeping his voice calm, not wanting to do anything to stop the cleric from revealing his tale. They arrived late, around midnight, because his wife was about to give birth, and their travel was slow. His name was Neron, and he travelled with his guardian, Tramus Dan, and Dan's young apprentice, whose name I sadly can't recall. I saw them to their rooms at the boarding house, and your father sent me in search of a midwife. I found a young girl, and sent her ahead, while I set out to find what supplies were needed. By the time I returned with my arms full, I saw a company of Serret knights coming up the street, searching door to door. I was horrified. I'd never seen Serret in Ratabor. They reached the boarding house before I could. They found it locked, and beat on the door. There was no answer. When they tried to break in, your father refused them entry, and the fight began. I watched from across the street. It was the most amazing thing I ever saw. Your father and his apprentice stepped out and fought back to back, defending the entrance. Night after night died until as many as ten lay dead or wounded on the street. And then came a scream from inside. Some of the serret must have found a way into the building from the back. The apprentice ran inside, leaving your father alone at the door to face the remainder of the knights. There must have been a dozen or more. By wielding two swords in the shelter of the entrance, he kept them at bay. He held them off for what felt like an eternity. And then... Neron appeared at the doorway. He was mad with rage and drenched in blood. He pushed past Dan into the street. Your father tried to stop him, but Neron kept screaming they killed her, and threw himself into the crowd of knights, swinging his sword like a man possessed. Your father tried to reach Neron, to protect him. The Surette surrounded Neron, and I watched him die on their swords. I fell to my knees. The blankets, 
needle and thread falling to the street. Your father, surrounded by his own set of knights, cried out and dropped his two swords. I thought they had stabbed him too. I expected to see him fall, but instead he drew the spadone blade from his back. The bloodshed I witnessed up to that point did not compare to what followed. Tramastan, with that impossibly long sword, began cleaving the serette to pieces. Legs, arms and heads, explosions of blood. Even across Law Street I felt the spray carried on the wind like a fine mist on my face. When the last of the serette fell, Dan ran inside and emerged a moment later with tears streaking down his cheeks. He went to Neron and cradled the air, rocking him. I admit that I was too frightened to approach or even speak. Dan looked like Oberlin himself, bathed slick from head to foot in blood, that sword still at his side, his body shaking as if he might explode. After a time, he gently laid Neron on the porch. A few of the knights were still alive, groaning, twitching. He picked up the sword again, and cut through them as if he were chopping wood. Then he picked up his weapons and walked away. I was too scared to follow, too terrified to even stand up, and I did not dare approach the house. As time passed, others arrived, and together we found the courage to enter. We found the younger swordsman, your father's apprentice, dead in the upper bedroom, surrounded by several bodies of serette. In the bed was a woman stabbed to death, her newborn child murdered in her arms. I never saw or heard anything of your father again. They sat in silence for a few minutes. It explains a lot I never understood about my father, Adrian finally said. He must have wandered to Hintendar after that and changed his name. Dan... Burry. Even his name was a riddle. So, the line of Novron is dead? The old priest said nothing at first. He sat perfectly still except for his lips, which began to tremble. It's all my fault. The seed of Meribor is gone. The tree so carefully watered for centuries has withered and died. It was all my fault. If only I had found a better safe house, or if I had kept a better watch. He looked up. The light from the lantern glistened off tears. The next day, more serette came and burned the boarding-house to the ground. I petitioned for this church to be built. The bishops never realized I was doing it as a testament, a monument to their memory. They thought I was honoring the fallen serette. So here I remained, upon their graves, guarding still. Yet now I protect not hope but a memory, a dream that, because of me, will never be.
At noon, the ringing of the town bell summoned the citizens to Central Square. On their way back from the church, Arista, Hadrian, and Royce entered the square, barely able to see due to the gathering crowd. There they found twelve people locked in stocks. They all stood bent over with head and wrists locked, their feet and lower legs sunk deep in mud. Above each hung a hastily scrawled sign with the word Conspirator written on it. The young, red-haired Emery was not in a stock, but instead hung by his wrists from a pole, naked to the waist. His body was covered in numerous dark bruises and abrasions. His left eye was puffed and sealed behind a purple bruise, and his lower lip was split and stained dark with dried blood. Next to him hung the older woman from the Laughing Gnome, the one who had mentioned that the Imperialists had burned Kilnar. Above both of them were signs reading, Traitor. Planks circled to the prisoners, and around them paced the Sheriff of Ratibor. In his hands he held a short whip, comprising several strands knotted at the ends, which he wagged threateningly as he walked. The whole city garrison had turned out to keep the angry crowd at bay. Archers were poised on roofs, and soldiers armed with shields and unsheathed swords threatened any who approached too close. Many of the faces in the stocks were familiar to Arista from the night before. She was shocked to see mothers, who had sung their children to sleep on the floor of the tavern, now locked in stocks beside their husbands, sobbing. The children reached out for their parents from the crowd. The treatment of the woman from Kilnar disturbed her the most. Her only crime was telling the truth, and now she hung before the entire city, awaiting the whip. The sight was all the more terrifying because Arista knew it could have been her up there if Quartz had not intervened. A regally dressed man in a judge's robe and a scribe approached the stocks. When they reached the center of the square, the scribe handed a parchment to the judge. The sheriff shouted for silence, and then the judge held up the parchment and began to read. For the crimes of conspiracy against her royal eminence, the Empress Modena Novronian, the new empire, Maribor, and all humanity— for slander against His Excellency, the Empress's Imperial Viceroy, and for the general agitation of the lower classes to challenge their betters, it is hereby proclaimed, good and right, that punishment be laid immediately upon these criminals. Those guilty of conspiracy are hereby ordered to be flogged twenty lashes and spend one day in stocks, not to be released until sunset. Those guilty of treason will receive one hundred lashes and, if they remain alive, will be left hanging until they expire from want of food and water. Anyone attempting to help or lend comfort to any of these criminals will be likewise found guilty and receive similar punishment. He rolled up the parchment. Sheriff Eigen, you may commence. With that, he thrust the scroll into the hands of the scribe and promptly walked back the way he had come. 
With a nod from the sheriff, a soldier approached the first stock and ripped open the back of the young mother's dress. From somewhere in the crowd a child screamed. Yet without pause the sheriff swung his whip, even as the poor woman cried for mercy. The knots bit into the pale skin of her back, and she howled and danced in pain. Stroke after stroke fell, with the scribe standing by keeping careful track. By the time it was done, her back was red and slick with blood. The sheriff took a break and handed the whip to a soldier, who performed a similar punishment on her husband as the sheriff sat by, leisurely drinking from a cup. The crowd, already quiet, grew deadly still as they came to the woman from Kilnar, who began screaming as they approached. The sheriff and his deputies took turns whipping her, as the day's heat made such work exhausting. The fatigue in their arms was evident by the wild swings that struck the woman high on her shoulders, as well as low on her back, and even occasionally as low as her thighs. After the first thirty lashes, the woman stopped screaming and only whimpered softly. The whipping continued, and by the time the scribe counted sixty, the woman merely hung limp. A physician approached the post, lifted her head by her hair, and pronounced her dead. The scribe made note of this. They did not remove her body. The sheriff finally moved to Emery. The young man was not daunted after seeing the punishment carried out on the others, and made the bravest showing of all. He stood defiant as the soldier with the whip approached him. Killing me will not change the truth that Viceroy Andros is the real traitor and guilty of killing King Eurith and the royal family. He managed to shout before the first strokes of the whip silenced him. He did not cry out, but gritted his teeth, and only dully grunted as the knots turned his back into a mass of blood and pulpy flesh. By the last stroke he also hung limp and silent, but everyone could see him breathing. The physician indicated such to the scribe, who dutifully jotted it down. Those people didn't do anything. Arista said as the crowd began to disperse. They are innocent. You, of all people, know that isn't the point, Royce replied. Arista whirled. She opened her mouth, hesitated, and then shut it. Ulrich had twelve people publicly flogged for inciting riots when the church was kicked out of Melangar, he reminded her. How many of them were actually guilty of anything? I'm sure that was necessary to keep the peace. The Viceroy will tell you the same. This is different. Mothers weren't whipped before their children, and women weren't beaten to death before a crowd. True, Royce said. It was only fathers, husbands, and sons who were whipped bloody and left scarred for life. I stand corrected. Melangar's compassion is astounding. Arista glared at him but could say nothing. As much as she hated it, as much as she hated him for pointing it out, she realized what Royce said was true. Don't punish yourself over it, Royce told her. 
The powerful control the weak. The rich exploit the poor. It's the way it's always been and how it always will be. Just thank Meribor you were born both rich and powerful. But it's not right, she said, shaking her head. What does right have to do with it? With anything? Is it right that the wind blows or that the seasons change? It's just the way the world is. If Ulrich hadn't flogged those people, maybe they would have succeeded in their revolt. Then you and Ulrich might have found yourselves beaten to death by a cheering crowd because they would hold the power and you two would be weak. Are you really that indifferent? she asked. I like to think of it as practical. And living in Ratibor for any length of time has a tendency to make a person very practical. He glanced sympathetically at Hadrian, who had been quiet since leaving the church. Compassion doesn't make house calls to the streets of Ratibor, now or forty years ago. Royce, Hadrian said, then sighed. I'm going to take a walk. I'll see you two back at the nest in a little while. Are you all right? Arista asked. Yeah, he said unconvincingly, and moved away with the crowd. I feel bad for him, she said. Best thing that could have happened. Hadrian needs to understand how the world really works and get over his childish affection for ideals. You see Emery up there? He's an idealist, and that's what eventually happens to idealists, particularly those that have the misfortune of being born in Ratibor. But for a moment, he might have changed the course of this city, Arista said. No, he would only have changed who was in power and who wasn't. The course would remain the same. Power rises to the top like cream and dominates the weak with cruelty disguised as and often believed to be, benevolence. When it comes to people, there is no other possibility. It's a natural occurrence, like the weather, and you can't control either one. Arista thought for a moment, and glanced skyward. Then she said defiantly, I wouldn't be so sure of that.